This episode of How To Wrestling was requested by Christopher Hollinshead, one of our lovely backers over on patreon.com forward slash Wrestling. If you want to get access to over 40 bonus episodes where we review all of the pay-per-views from 2015 onwards, as well as our new How To Revisited series where Joe and I are revisiting all of our old episodes and revisiting and adding to them. The new John Cena episode recently dropped and Stone Cold Steve Austin is next. Become a backer now, get access to a whole load of audio content and help support your pals here at How To Wrestling. You can head over to patreon.com forward slash how to wrestling now, become a backer, and get access to all of our back catalogue. But for now, enjoy this episode. It is How to Vince Russo. Greetings, friend, and welcome to another episode of How To Wrestling, the world's first podcast detailing how to wrestling, how to get into wrestling, how to understand wrestling, and goodness knows, maybe even how to swerve, hate wrestling, no, enjoy wrestling. Hello once again, it is I, Cowboy Kevin Mann, taking my better half and best pal Joe Graham through the wild world of professional wrestling, and as such, I am joined by the aforementioned Joe Graham. Hi. How are you doing today, Joe? Not great kevin not great what's happened joe well someone thought it would be a really good idea for me to watch a full week of vince russo shoot interviews yeah it's been terrible (laughs) i mean we've done a lot of spicy episodes recently i think it's safe to say we've done some ones which maybe we shied away from in the past the ones who involve a lot of controversial figures well this week we're definitely talking about one of the most controversial figures in the history of professional wrestling none other than the former head writer of tna former head writer of wcw and former head writer of wwe monday night raw it's Vince Russo! How has this last week been for you? We've watched a couple of matches, we've watched a lot of Raw, we've watched a lot of segments, we've watched a lot of shoot interviews. Honestly, compared to most times, the menu was a little bit shorter because it was a lot of small, punchy bits, but how are you feeling? I was so excited to do this episode because I knew that it would just be kind of like shorter clips and, and silly videos and silly moments from like the Attitude Era mm. like involving wizards and, and stuff I know that Vince <laughs> Russo's known for those kind of silliness in that time of wrestling so I thought it would just be like a bunch of really short fun wrestling clips and I'd be like wow this is a really fun episode to do Vince Russo's great didn't go that way for you then? no spoiler alert at the start then it was a little bit like it's a bit you found it tough to watch this stuff yes I mean For me, it's a really weird one. Vince Russo is someone who has been, for whatever reason, involved heavily in my life and what I've had to watch and what I've had to record and talk about for the last five or so years of my life. You you met me as I was, you know, a year or so into doing the Attitude Era podcast. So you probably met me in the peak of my obsession with Vince Russo. And it must have been quite hard in the last few years, obviously, with me, Adam and Billy around here talking about this man all the time to avoid hearing about him. I mean, had you heard much before we got into our research this week? Had you heard much about the name, who he was, what he was about? You'd think that he'd have come up a lot more than than he has, actually, because he's only really popped up a couple of times and once was around the death of China, Mm. which I know mentioned on that episode. Yeah, That was, I think, the first real time I actually watched anything to do with him. 
Yeah, it was very strange. I came down and you were watching, watching Vince, Vince Russo, Russo like, shoots. Yeah, God, I know I'm trying to get her into wrestling, but I don't know if I want to, you know, have her in the, mm. the, the mind space of watching shoot interviews with Vince Russo at nine in the morning. Yeah, I, <laughs> around that time of the China episode, I made myself watch a two and a half hour shoot interview with Vince Russo, mm. and it was really, really good. I thought it was a really good little, little two and a half hour long discussion on sort of her treatment in WWE. Because I think we pointed out at the time, and it still stands to this day, one of the very, very, very few voices who kind of spoke out in, kind of, I don't want to say in her defence necessarily, but like, it felt that when she passed that there was maybe a lot of people who were quick to distance themselves or quick to kind of reframe her as being a very, very small maybe less significant part of wrestling. And mm. he was one of the few people who really put himself out there and says that he thought it was total bullshit. And I think yeah. I, a lot of people appreciated that. And I think because of that being my first impression of him, I kind of got the idea that he was this quite nice guy who like, you know, he's he's there, he's supporting this poor woman who's been, you know, unfairly treated by a huge corporation. He seemed to empathise a lot with that. And although I didn't know the details at the time, he said, you know, I've been fucked over by WWE too. So, mm. you know, we, we're all in this together he's online a lot these days i mean do you see him appear on twitter and on people's timelines much no really yeah i think i must follow the right people i think so someone sent me a couple of screenshots of his twitter actually in the research for this episode Mm. and some of the stuff he said is horrifying yeah i mean i want to get into that in a bit later but i will say and i think i should address this at the start and in case people think we we don't realize there's a lot of people out there who reacted to us doing this episode in a roundabout similar ways to when we announced we were doing an episode about Donald Trump, <laughs> which some people can say, I, I accept that. Other people might think, well, that's quite a jarring thing to compare those two in any way, shape or form. But he has upset a lot of people and very much distanced himself from a large portion of the wrestling community online. And I think a lot of that might be people he's offended, particularly could be a lot of our listeners. Mm. So what we're going to try and do today is look at his background, his impact, the role that he had, how he maybe changed the world of wrestling for better or for worse. And we're going to look at a new fan's perspective and see if maybe Vince Russo killed wrestling as so many people seem to claim that he did. So Vince Russo obviously isn't a wrestler, no matter what he likes to tell himself. (laughs) Why on earth is he such a huge part of wrestling that he deserves his own episode? And how on earth did he even get involved in wrestling when he's so clearly, A, not a wrestler, and B, doesn't even really seem to particularly enjoy wrestling? I mean, yeah, that's a really fair, fair question. I mean, he is probably, other than maybe Vince McMahon, the biggest, like like non-wrestler who had an impact on wrestling and I think maybe the reason for that is is because he was the first writer of a wrestling show as opposed to a booker of a wrestling show now have I told you the difference like what a booker is before yeah I mean way back when we did our first episode I think you kind of told me the differences so the booker decides the outcome of the match and the writer decides the dialogue within the promos within the kind of the scripted bits is that right well kind of what it was was like way back in the olden times so maybe like the 80s like pre-attitude era so anything like kind of before the the mid to late 90s you would have a booker in your company and the booker would usually be a former wrestler like dusty Rhodes was a booker rick flair was a booker you know jerry lawler was a booker and the booker was basically the person whose job it was was the overall direction of the show so they're the person who decides what the main events are going to be 
who's going to be headlining the shows and who's going to be fighting who. They'd book the show, they'd write it up on the board, who's going to wrestle who. That was usually a wrestler, and the reason why they did a wrestler is because, well, wrestlers know wrestling. You know, who's better to tell you how to finish a match than Ric Flair or Dusty Rhodes or whoever? But Russo was the first time we had a writer. Well, he was the first writer. He was the first ever writer whose title was a writer of the show. And and who was this for? For for WWF at so the time. So WWF had the first ever writer in wrestling. Yes, they're the first people to ever have writing staff. Which is really funny because like when Vince expanded in the 80s... Everyone was like, oh, God, Vince, he's, like, completely ripping up the rule book. He's changing everything. He still was, you know, he was the booker, you know, himself still. And they they formed it usually by a bit of a committee. He had some people who would advise him and all that. But it was only until Russo came along, it was like, you write the promos, write the fucking ideas for the show, the storylines. So, I mean, that's pretty much, like, a lot of wrestling fans, I'd say, is that is probably their dream job. I would love, <laughs> I would love to write wrestling. Yeah. But, like, how on earth do you even get into wangling a position because you'd think that with the wrestling industry the way it is it would be wrestlers writing wrestling shows because it seems to be in wrestling wrestlers are the only people who can do anything yeah because wrestlers will only listen to other wrestlers that's always been the charge so what did he write tv beforehand or like no he didn't he had a uh, quite like us he had like an equivalent of a podcast today a local radio show Vicious Vincent's World of Wrestling. Does this mean I'm as qualified as Vince Russo <laughs> to write for WWE? Well, you know, can't just have a wrestling show because he had other qualifications as well. He owned a, a few video stores and also as well, he wrote a letter to Linda McMahon. Oh, well, there you go. That's In, what I need to do. Yeah. Write your congresswoman. <laughs> <laughs> write your small business administrator. What he did was in like 1992... He wrote a letter to Linda McMahon. It's literally saying, here are all the things that are wrong with your show. What? Yeah, it's like, your show is juvenile. It's, you know, the wrestling is silly. It's cartoonish. You know, we were in the 80s. We loved our Hulk Hogan's and stuff. But now it's the 90s and we're growing up. We're not 10 anymore. We're all in our 20s. Wrestling needs to move on a bit. Like, it's the gist of what you were saying to her, like, that wrestling needed to have a bit of a change. That's how I got all my jobs, is I just emailed my manager and just was like, hey, you're rubbish. I can do all these things better than you, so you should give me money to do well, them instead. I mean, it's it's really ballsy, and it's, you know, it's it's one of those things that, how does, this, like, a non-wrestler get into this role? And it's like, literally, he wrote a letter basically saying, here's all the things wrong with the company. And all the things wrong as well with their magazine that they had at the time, um, WF Magazine. Do you reckon that's what's wrong with the, the internet wrestling community of today is that you've got all these these Twitter marks going, why am I not getting given a job at WWE <laughs> even though I tweet every day how much I hate it? You know there's people out there who every day will t- tweet Vince McMahon. Like, yeah. This will get me a job. More than Vince. Figure you should turn Roman Reigns heel. Sent. I sent it, guys. <laughs> right in this timeline. Yo, Vince, why ain't you returning my DMs? Figure you should turn Roman Reigns heel by now. How come I'm not the head of creative yet? What's the deal, man? But yeah, he wrote a letter and she offered him a job as a freelance writer for the WWF magazine at the time. Right. Now, have you ever been fortunate enough to read WWF magazine? I know Adam has got them like stashed all over this house now. Are they... I don't. I think I get them confused because I I got a kids one. It's different than the kids magazine, which is kind of more like 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 the Bean or something with like comic strips and activities and stuff. The WWF magazine was for the the connoisseur wrestling fan who wanted to read long form articles written about their favorite wrestlers and characters, a hundred percent in kayfabe. So, would it be 
articles about them or like articles written by the characters or sometimes it'll be articles written by the the characters themselves yeah question was there ever a diary segment oh there has to have been i mean i can't say with authority because i mean i i read w magazine from 2000 2001 past his time but i definitely say that there was more than likely a diary segment in there. I, I mean, want- The Ask the Undertaker was a favourite episode of The Sopranos was, so, I mean, that's got to be in there. I want a diary from Kane. <laughs> in fact, I would love to make my own WWE in kayfabe character newsletter. It would yeah. be great, like, in character of all the various characters in wrestling. I mean, I, as a kid, the magazine, like, was the best thing ever because I knew it was, you know, I knew it was kayfabe and it was fake and all that, but it was like, you know, it was just extended universe. Yeah. It's, it's like, like I, reading the Star Wars books. Yeah, exactly. You know, you, you, you hear about, you know, Stunkle Steve Austin, what a tough guy he is. You open up the magazine, there's a four-page spread about him in cut-off jeans sitting on benches looking menacingly wearing an, an earring. Very I, tough, yes. I would want an Agony Aunt section with The Miz. They had an Agony Aunt section with Steve Stephen Richards, who uh, was from the right to censor at the time. Oh, really? Who just write about how morally corrupt America was in a long-form <laughs> article. But, like, Russo, he wanted their... T- like, he would write stuff, like, as the wrestlers. Like, mm. he would write their voices, essentially, and write these, like, you know, long, long uh, articles about them. He'd do fake interviews. He'd try to promote matches. They actually started another magazine then uh, called Raw Magazine, and the idea was was that it was going to be edgy and it was going to be like, you know, for, for the 18-year-olds with like a, a nice uh, sexy centerfold in there and, you know, you know centerfolds and like bikini shoots and lingerie and like loads of like real Austin swearing and all sorts of really naughty stuff. And like literally Russo became the editor of the two magazines because he was so successful at doing it, you know. It was during a time, I don't know if you know, like before the Attitude Era, do you know how WWF was doing, the company generally speaking? Oh, I always get confused. It was either doing really, really well or really, really badly. Yes, really, really badly. Right. To the point that actually in 1998, they nearly got cancelled on TV. Oh, okay. That's how bad their ratings were. And this is, was this when they were feuding with WCW? Yes. Right. And Ted Turner was doing really well because he put all the money in WCW. Got all the top talent. So like when Russo's knocking on the door here as the writer, you have like Hulk Hogan, he's leaving. You know, Macho Man, Randy Savage, he's leaving. Like, all the big names are leaving to go over and wrestle for WCW. And WCW bet the WWF for 83 weeks in a row on television. Whoa. They would go head to head. So, like, when Russo was writing, Vince and some of the people were knew that they had to change. And this is where the big question comes in. Who invented the Attitude Era? Who's responsible for it? Vince Russo and a lot of his fans would say that he is responsible for it. Some people would say it's... Because of Stone Cold Steve Austin, him being so successful, or The Rock being so mainstream and successful, or Vince McMahon because he runs the whole fucking thing, or some people say it was, you know, Triple H and Shawn Michaels went to Vince and said, hey, you know, we got to make things a little bit cooler and a little bit more raunchy and, you know, make it more adult. Everyone lays claim that they're the ones who invented it. Of course, naturally. But Russo, in around 1996, he said that he was randomly asked one day, hey, can you write some promos for some guys? And then before you know it, he's part of a writing committee. And then before you know that, he's the head writer. He's writing raw. All of us. Wow. <laughs> and that's quite a strange thing. I mean, we talked about our Vince episode. Vince doesn't really like to share the load, if you know what I mean. No, he would do all of the roles in wrestling just by himself if he could. But one thing that Vince was always quite good at, McMahon that is, is recognising when other people can maybe provide him a service or a talent or do something that could benefit him. And he knew that Russo had his finger on the pulse of pop culture, which is something that Vince McMahon 
never, ever, ever has in his entire life. Because Russo, you know, he grew up on a diet of sci-fi movies and, you know, uh, he, he run the video store. He was a big nerd. Like, he, mm. he loves pop culture. He was obsessed with everything from the Honeymooners to the Batman 60s show to I Love Lucy. Like, he was a proper child of the zeitgeist, you right. know. I, that's my new favourite word, <laughs> in case anyone knows. So he had a... He wrote on a committee. He was... He wrote with, like, a group of people to help him. Mm. So Vince Russo would be the writer. He'd write the show, like, so the main feuds, the main kind of storylines, a lot of the promos. He would then have to meet with a group of people that was Vince McMahon, uh, Jim Cornette, Jim Ross, a couple of other people, and they'd all meet at Vince's pool. Not bad, is it? Not a bad job. Well, I mean, in fairness, though, we know what happens when you Vince McMahon in the pool, though. Oh, that's true, actually. I wouldn't want to go within a feet of Vince McMahon in a pool. He could push you in there and he'll laugh all day long. So, like, what he had to do was he'd write the show and he'd go and he'd have to pitch it to Vince and say, look, here's the idea. I think, you know, The Undertaker should do this this week and Steve Austin is going to do this, this and this and they'd work on it together. And he said every single time that he went to Vince... Vince would always change something. Mm. Always. And I imagine that must have been quite frustrating if you're trying to watch. It's trying to... It must be quite frustrating trying to rein in Vince Russo all the time. That would be <laughs> exhausting. Well, I mean, if we could maybe point out now some of the things that maybe you've noticed from the stuff that we've watched. Ways in which Vince Russo wrote the show differently. I mean, what is it that Vince Russo do you think that he was doing or changing when it comes to there between him writing the show and what came before it. Hmm. I mean, some bits are more bits I've been told than bits I've seen myself. Okay. Well, I mean, any bits that you've maybe noticed yourself, like from the, the style of show we've watched with him. He loves people running out into the match <laughs> in, in the middle, like just random people. <laughs> he loves not ending a match in a traditional sense. And to mm. that, I'll say he seems quite heavily inspired by Monty Python. <laughs> <laughs> Why so? I, I'm going to start referring to it as the Python finish, which is <laughs> when you kind of do the match and then yeah. you realise you've not got an, a punchline or an ending or a finish. <laughs> and so you go, oh shit, what do we do? I know, let's just move on to the next one. Yeah. Or let's end it in a really silly way. Like, Quick, cover send, everyone in blood. Send Graham Chapman out there right this second. Have him cut a promo in the middle of the ring. Steve Austin, stop that, you son of a bitch. That is silly and you know it bro <laughs> you pointed out it's so funny we were watching a lot of python recently and very often you would yeah like a non-traditional end like python would just like sweep off like mm. going nope not that this thing instead now and he is so obviously influenced by them as well mm. like the fact that as you say he was absorbing all that pop culture and he'd have been a child of the 70s yeah so he would have definitely been into Monty Python and stuff like that. I don't even know if he realises that's what he's referencing, if it's intentional or not, but it's definitely that. It is so that. Like Python in some ways, though. I mean, you know, Python looked at the traditional sketch show or the traditional comedy show, and they're like, this is all played out. You know that... You know the end of this. You know how it's always going to go. And then we go... Da, da, da. You know, they, they, there's a documentary we watched recently and they said, you know, all the punchlines end the same way. It would go... Da, 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 you know, yeah. you, have, you could even get it out to the cadence perfectly so in the same way Russo wanted to throw a lot of what was established out the, the window like for instance a world championship should be the most important thing in the world wait wait according to Vince Russo no no according to say Vince McMahon or wrestling oh, okay, purists right. like you couldn't have the title defended on TV 
You what? couldn't. You know, you couldn't have the title defended on a regular TV show. It has to be on pay per view. Oh, okay, right. You know, you couldn't just throw it out there like that. God, that's so weird to think that now you get like world titles won on a dark match. Yeah, I know. That's literally has happened in the last couple of years, like in NXT and stuff. Yeah. yeah. But Russo was the first person who would have suggested things like, you know, let's do a title change on TV this week. Like when I watched wrestling in the, you know, when I was growing up as a kid, like literally within the space of four weeks, Mankind, Triple H, Vince McMahon, and Stone Cold Steve Austin were all the world champion. <laughs> you know, like week to week, it, like the the twenty four hour reign. Like there was one week where Kane won the belt. He beat Steve Austin on pay per view. The next night, Austin won him back. Like you know, he got the belt back. He would right. change the belt. It's kind of like it's a prop. That's all he viewed it as. Mm. The wrestlers are just characters. All the established tropes of wrestling are just props and rules to play with. I kind of agree with that to an extent. Me, me too, yeah. Because I honestly, this is going to, okay, this is a real talk moment, okay? okay? I've never revealed this on the podcast because I've been so scared of people judging me. Okay. But I think it's finally time I accepted this is who I am. Okay. I don't know who the current champion is in WWE and I watch Raw and SmackDown week to week. <laughs> because it means so little to me. Yeah. It doesn't even no I've no idea. Could be Roman Reigns, no clue. Does but, not matter to me whatsoever. Because you as a fan, the way you watch, and I I've, I've accepted it's different to how I watch. Yeah. You know? I watch with a certain kind of expectation of structure, a certain expectation of because I've been watching it for so long, it's like when I'm sitting down, it's kind of like, what date is it? It's like asking, you know, who's the champion? That's how yeah. I kind of know and figure out, like, if you want me to give you an indication of what was wrestling like in this year, and I kind of, the first thing I would think, well, who was the champion? And I'd think back from there. Yeah. But, like, that really only is because I grew up and it was pounded into my head over and over again and watching documentaries, how important the championship is and how important it is. But as a new fan, if you're just watching, it's like, yeah. it isn't as self-evident as you might think as a long-term fan. Yeah. Like, Russo likes to play with those rules a little bit. But the only trouble is he doesn't play with them in a way that is clever. Sometimes I would say that it's clever. Oh, yeah, maybe it's just the bits that I watched. I mean, well, well, what would you mean by some bits you've seen where it's like kind of not been like clever then, for instance? This isn't one I've seen personally, but I know it's one that holds a great point of contention, I think, for a lot of wrestling fans. I think I, I'd say at least a quarter of the tweets were about mentioned this incident I think you were going to bring up. Yeah, so... He put the world title on a famous actor. Famous in inverted covers, I was David Arquette. <laughs> David Arquette. Who I didn't, I've not heard of. And apparently he was doing a movie that was written by Vince Russo. WCW had a movie that was coming out. It wasn't written by Vince Russo, but it was like there was a WCW movie coming out. Oh, okay. That David Arquette was the lead role in. And Vince Russo thought, great, let's give him the world title? Yeah. Now, here's the thing, though, right? Now, see, for me, I'll always think that that's bad business. Like I think that's that's bad. And I think people are going to be upset about it until the end of time. There's a lot of stuff that people will be upset about in wrestling forever. And I think that's one that I don't think can be defended. But you, you've just said that you don't care who the champion no, is. No, so I don't. Does it matter? I don't, right. And I think even that, by its nature, isn't bad. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Honestly, I, I don't care if any celebrities hold the world title. I think it can be <laughs> done really well. My issue is with, from what I've heard, the way it was handled. So, mm. like, he... 
didn't wrestle. Is that right? He was in like a tag match that involved like Eric Bischoff, who was like one of the the, the on screen bosses. Right. So he he pinned like Eric Bischoff in a tag match that the world championship was on the line in. So he like in a fluke like became the the world champion. But he kept the world championship. Didn't oh, he, he defended on pay per view and on TV as well against How- Tank Abbott and DDP and all sorts. Jesus. And Joe, he turned heel then. So how long did he have it? He had it for around a month, I'd say, in total, all being said. But, you know, he turned heel and then he turned heel and came out like, it would have been like Hollywood suit going, I'm from Hollywood, you shouldn't trust me. And then he was gone the next week, like... But Russo said that's worth it because... People are talking about people it. People are talking about it. But there's a way to have it be done and have people talk about it and have people talk about it in a good way. Like, there's no reason to aim so low. Like, mm. if your standard is... Well, people remember it, though, don't they? Yeah. That's You're setting the bar quite low there. It's just so interesting because, like, I feel like I could I could have not shown you any of the actual clips that we've watched. And if I just sat down with a pen and paper and said... Well, Russo felt that, you know, a lot of the tropes of wrestling or the established old-timey stuff kind of could have went out the door. I would have felt you're, you're in agreement with that. That's and a lot with, of his stuff, I would have felt that way. That's the thing with Vince Russo. On paper, I actually do agree with a lot of his ideas. And I mm. do think that so many times when we were watching his matches and, oh my God, the ridiculously long episode it felt of his m- Monday Night Raw. The oh, yeah, we watched Ninety Nine Raw, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the highest rated episode. Highest rated ever, yeah, we'll nothing, talk about that. Nothing happened. <laughs> no wrestling. Nothing, nothing happened. It wasn't even a wrestling show. So strange. There are so many times watching these matches where I feel like he's so close to doing something really innovative and mm. cool and then just doesn't quite make it. Mm. Like, he has this idea of breaking the fourth wall or, or genre-breaking elements but then does it really badly? Like the thing with the world title, right? Again, I, yep. don't, I don't care. And I think it's a really neat idea to give it to a celebrity to then maybe use... Like, for example, if I was going to do the David Arquette booking thing and I was going to yeah. keep it as close to the original as possible, the only things I would change is I wouldn't have it be David Arquette. I'd have it some big name Hollywood celebrity that You mentioned like lot. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Or yeah. yeah, yeah. Someone who you could look at and conceivably be like, yeah, okay, they're a bit of a muscle. Mm. Like, they could be a wrestler in another life. Like, them wearing a world wrestling title doesn't seem like an absurd yeah. visual image or yeah. whatever. I think it's very important for them to do as little wrestling as possible mm. for the sake of their safety and well-being and as well as the wrestlers around them Yeah, and the reputation of, of all other wrestlers. Um, and then what I'd do is I'd have them take the belt with them on all their promotional activity for promoting another thing that they're doing. Mm. Like, for example, the Ready to Rumble tie-in. Yeah. If it was an Arnie movie, I'd have him there in all the interviews with the world title on his shoulder. Perfect. You, that's that's you're right though because you see you seem so close so often of the yeah. time and it's funny because like when you compare maybe some of the stuff when he was writing under uh, Vince McMahon and people always like the, the dreaded F word we're going to mention now the filter like because this is anything you mention about Vince Russo or any kind of accepted discussion points about him there's like literally YouTube channels dedicated to people like you know breaking down myths that Vince Russo did anything wrong altogether you know he, he's got an answer for everything and that's his his prerogative but, like, oftentimes you look at the filter and you'll kind of, with Vince McMahon, kind of go, oh, wow, he was held up to a point there and it kind of it works better for it. Like, you mentioned that he wants to break the fourth wall a little bit. Russo was one of the first people who would 
allow or encourage wrestlers to use like insider terms and stuff like that like he had there's a famous promo that he had like Mark Merrow cut once where he came out to face a wrestler named Tom Brandy and he goes Tom Brandy you used to be called Sal Sincere you're just a jabber I'm not gonna fight you and I was like whoa no one had ever used the word jobber on TV before. And, like, the job squads, like, we did a whole episode about jobbers a while ago, but, like, the job squad, I think, is one of Russo's greatest creations in a way because it managed to poke fun a little bit at some insider wrestling terms, but it wasn't exclusionary. Yes, and that's what's important, I think. If you're going to lovingly satirise a whole industry, you have to be quite careful on which elements you're satirizing and how you're doing it. If you're doing it condescendingly or if you're doing it lovingly. Yeah, because like as a kid, I thought the Job Squad was like, it was really funny because it was all these random misfits that all banded together and they didn't want to lose anymore. I didn't know what a jobber was. If I was watching over when he was doing the weird stuff in WCW where he has wrestlers literally talking like, can you believe the finish they've booked tonight? I'm not going over, brother. It's ridiculous. You know, when it gets to that point, I don't know how I would have reacted as a kid. Yeah, no, that's just strange. And it's, again, it's odd because wrestling by its nature is such a fourth wall breaking industry Mm. like it's the only media i can think of that has such a participation with its own audience yeah and like that relationship is so important because obviously with tv with music with like pretty much anything else you don't have that immediate feedback from the crowd from the audience yeah yeah and i think there's so many interesting wall breaking things you could do with wrestling that vince seems so close to getting that idea but then doing it really badly Mm. I mean, I wanted to maybe pick up on one or two of the other kind of tropes of his writing style and stuff that he helped kind of usher in. One of them which I think really worked well was that he wanted to ensure that the characters you were seeing on screen were more authentic. So, you know, we looked at what he did our episode with Silly Gimmicks. That was the stuff that Vince Russo came into, the likes of Mantor and Friar Ferguson, you know, like silly cartoon character gimmicks. He thought it was better if someone was like had a real-life kind of personality, or it was like their personality dialed up a bit. They were authentic, they were real. You could kind of buy into it a little bit more. Like, every character should have an edge to them in some way, shape, or form, if you know what I mean. So, like, that meant that you had your kind of every... your working man, Stone Cold Steve Austin. And he wouldn't, like, write promos for Austin or tell him how to be Austin. But he would try and think of ways and storylines or situations to put him and Vince in that would get the best out of both of them. Mm. And I think people are very quick to kind of say, oh, Austin, Vince, and The Rock, they all—they were just great anyway. I mean, you can have great wrestlers without having someone to point them in a good direction and interesting scenarios. I think that, you know, that's really, really important. And that's something he did a lot of. So what are some of the scenarios that he would have he would be held responsible for then. Say, for instance, Stone Cold Steve Austin has been fired and he's not allowed back into the company. And then we cut, you know, the next night on Raw, you cut outside and Austin's there in his hunting gear, sitting in his truck. And it's like, what the hell's going on here? You know, two segments later, you see Steve Austin tying someone up in a net or something like that. Or like bringing Vince McMahon out to the ring with a gun and holding it to his head saying, I'm going to kill you unless you reinstate me. And then Vince pisses his pants and Austin shoots the gun and says, bang, bang, 316 on a little flag or whatever. Right. Or like, he, he, he would have been the person who pitched the idea that, you know, Mick Foley as mankind, who wants to get his tag team partner, The Rock, to really be his best friend, to do a This Is Your Life segment. That's a Vince That's Russo. That's Vince Russo. You know, he very much believed in the powers of comedy, backstage segments, 
and bits with characters that didn't happen in the wrestling ring. It's very, the thing. You know, he, he obviously resents the actual wrestling of wrestling yes. so much. Like yeah. I think his dream wrestling show would have actually no wrestling in. Like yeah, the most iconic moments I could think of Russo, and we went to watch like the highest rated episode of Raw ever that was penned by himself and his partner Ed Ferreira. And like as I was scrolling through the network on the TV, we have to go through you know, each episode manually and scroll. It's like all within weeks and weeks, it's all this iconic stuff like here's Steve Austin, you know, in a monster truck, and now here's Steve Austin in a Zamboni. Here's The Rock throwing Steve Austin off a bridge and trying to kill him. Here's him holding a funeral for Steve Austin the next week. Here's Vince McMahon uh, breaking down in tears because The Undertaker has kidnapped his daughter. Here's The Undertaker marrying Stephanie in a black wedding. Here's Vince McMahon revealing he was in on it all along. <laughs> Here's Stone Cold Steve Austin countering by becoming the CEO of the World Wrestling Federation. You know, this is all within a span of six weeks, kind of. And none of it happens in a wrestling ring. But I'll tell you, Joe, that's what made me a fan. Mm. That's what made me kind of go in my head. Wrestling's not boring men hugging each other and falling asleep in the ring. It's crazy characters. Like, they had The Undertaker and Kane throwing lightning at each other. <laughs> you know, that's that's what made me a fan. You know, <laughs> that's so weird to think because like, I, I love that those elements of wrestling are some of my absolute favorites. Yeah, because you said you often like the kind of the silliness yeah, and the craziness and whatnot. I think most wrestling fans love the silliness, but like that's the thing, like the silliness, and then there's the t- getting it to the point where it's just it's too much and it's just taken too far and it's weird or creepy or like boring the, the black wedding we watched the black wedding segment it's one of my all-time favorite segments in in wrestling where the undertaker and his evil cult the ministry of darkness have kidnapped vince mcmahon's pure daughter stephanie mcmahon dressed her in a black gown and are reading from a velvet book and are going to marry her to the undertaker and seemingly become a vessel for satan that's my favorite shit in wrestling ever. And we watched it. I don't know. What did you did you like that? Did you find it it was interesting or wild or wacky or was it, it boring? Was, uh, it was very silly, <laughs> but I must admit it was also boring. Mm. Like that's the downside to I think some of these silly gimmick bits and silly angles is that sometimes they're dragged on a bit too long or they're not planned effectively. Mm. With the time given. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the This Is Your Life segment. That's a great cute segment where, like, you know, there's balloons and clowns and it's all funny. You actually sit down and watch it start to finish. It's nearly half an hour long. Really? Yeah. And, like, even that Black Wedding, I like when I think of it, I think of it in highlight packages. Exactly, you do. You think of it as just, like, Stephanie screaming on the, the big crucifix thing. You think yeah. of The Undertaker talking in parcel tongue or whatever. <laughs> And then you think of Steve Austin coming out and beating everyone up. But the reality is, there's like 10 minutes of The Undertaker shuffling awkwardly while Stephanie (laughs) pretends to act very upset. And the whole weird thing with Vince just vanishing. Mm. There's a lot of plot holes, I feel, in a lot of the silliness. It's interesting that even in the few bits that we watched... They didn't make sense. You managed to find plot holes. Yeah. And that is something that Russo was kind of bad for during the Attitude Era and became way worse once he went to other companies where stuff would be set up and never get followed up on. This is a great example from his later run in TNA. Its impact is starting up. Samoa Joe has showed up. We've not seen Samoa Joe in a while. And Samoa Joe, he's a tough cookie Joe. We love Samoa Joe, right? Love Samoa Joe. Vince Russo does love Samoa Joe because the problem was Joe... (laughs) It's great. Instead of bro, I could just say Joe. Joe, let me tell you something. Let me ask you something. 
If Samoa Joe was to come to Impact, what would happen to him before he got in the building? Get out of his car. Yeah, okay. Walk there. Yeah. Then ninjas attack him. Oh. Okay. No, 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 let me, let me, let me explain. Let me explain, okay? Joe, Joe, I'm telling you, okay? They attack Samoa Joe, okay? Then they put him in the back of a van. That van, it's out of here. They see a bite. They're gone, Joe. They're gone. And they never mentioned what happened. What? Yeah, it just happened. Okay, here's another example for you. Okay, Joe. Ric Flair, okay? Ric Flair, he's coming to WCW Nitro, okay? He, he's coming to the building. What's What do you think's going to happen? Look, now ask me, Joe. What's going to happen? What's, what's going to happen? He's going to get out of his car. He's going to get out of his car, yeah. Yeah, and then the filthy animals are going to attack him, bring him out to the desert, and bury him in the sands, okay? Bury him in the sands. And then just leave him there, and they never talk about you it again. You never see it. He's gone, Joe. <laughs> he is gone. You'll never see him again. Two weeks later, he comes back, yeah. And we don't mention him in, in the desert, but he was gone then. In the ground, in the sand, Joe. See, I always think it's silly how today wrestling fans have such short-term memories. <laughs> like, it's weird for me seeing JBL involved in the whole Stephanie McMahon being kidnapped and married to The Undertaker, given that he's like on commentary yeah. on a weekly basis and best friends with Vince. In kayfabe, I'd fire him. How dare you hold my well, daughter in Well, I mean, if we're really in kayfabe, it means that Vince told JBL and that's probably why he's been rewarded today it's because he's actually they were both involved with the kidnapping of Stephanie and JBL was his inside man of course it makes such perfect sense yeah but yeah I mean we something we mentioned with 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 Rusev when we were talking about I tried to explain why things like this would happen is because say for instance in the black wedding he doesn't know what's going to happen in two weeks time he knows that maybe in three or four weeks' time we have to maybe reveal that there's a higher power or a big bad guy. We don't know who that is yet. It might be Jake the Snake Roberts. could be Chris Daniels. might be Vince McMahon. might be The Undertaker himself. Do you think that his lack of planning ahead is a personality aspect or is it due to being overworked? I mean... Is it just laziness? There is there is a lot to be said for the fact that when he started, he made it unpredictable. And that's why not, that's why WCW was winning so much when it was beating Raw in the ratings. is because they were giving you an unpredictable show with the NWO and, you know, Scott Hall showing up. Like, what's he doing here? It was like, must-see unpredictable. I would definitely agree. Vince Russo, in general, is an unpredictable man. And that was his special sauce, was unpredictability. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is for every three or four weeks of it being unpredictable and wild and what's going to happen next week... There is like a, a long-term effect on that and when eventually, like it was his writing style to be like, oh, well, we'll, we'll get there. You know, we'll figure it out. But right. we're going to set it up in a way where we could go one or two different ways. Genuinely, I think it is a mixture of, of both his personality but also the fact as well, like he had to write Raw, he had to write all the pay-per-views, he had to write Sunday Night Heat as well. And then during his latter tenure in WWF, he had to write SmackDown as well. And so would they, he'd have had like a team like they have today then? No, it was him and one other guy, Ed Ferreira. Shit, because how many people do it now? It's like 20 or 30, maybe 40 in total if you conclude the NXT creative teams. It's committees. One committee per show as well, you know? So Russo had to do it all. And that's like, that's one thing that always really upset me is that because he was such a, he was obviously a fan. Like, he he loves... Yeah, he's like the... 
if I could distill a wrestling fan into one person, <laughs> it would be Vince Russo. Yeah, and I think Vince McMahon took advantage of of his eagerness, mm. his his drive and his ability, his need to have Vince McMahon say, yeah, absolutely, that's a great job, good job, Vince. Oh, guess what? Surprise the fucking prize. In all the shoot interviews we've watched, surprisingly, they mentioned a father-son type relationship. Oh, you know, okay. it just That's right. how Vince McMahon works. And I don't know if that's on purpose or not, but... Russo worked himself nearly half to death. He said he never saw his kids or his wife. Like his, he has like four or five. I think he's like three kids. He said he never saw like all their growing up because he was just writing all the time. And like it was a twenty four seven job because he had to go on the road with all the guys to be at every show because you're writing Raw and SmackDown. And then he literally would go to his house with Ed Ferreira. They'd sit down. They'd watch like twelve hours of Jerry Springer or whatever trash was on TV. And then you just start writing out the show. And then they'd have to go to Vince and rewatch week after week after week. Non-stop, no breaks, no holidays. You know, that's you know, the formerly creative podcast we talked about before. Mm. Like, at least all those guys had the benefit of them knowing kind of what came before them. Russo, I don't think, realized how overworked he was, how much he was being exploited, I think. Well, I guess if you hadn't had writers up until this point no one would have had any idea really how much because I mean they could have given it as much or as little writing behind Mm. the scenes as they wanted to really Mm. I'm guessing because like traditionally wrestling you'd have that's part of the skill set right is is talking to the crowd yeah exactly so he didn't he wasn't he wouldn't have written word for word promos for everyone he would have like he was like Paul Heyman in the sense that you know with Steve Austin it's like look you need to get this point across tonight that's kind of it but if it was someone who maybe wasn't as great with their promos like maybe you know hardcore Holly or someone like that he'd sit and work with them and help them get the character out and all that but it was always to try and get their voice across but it's just like writing anything like that that much of tv is, is exhausting but if you could imagine you had to write two episodes of game of thrones a week but you have to go to every member of the cast and ask them is that okay that i'm written the mountain to do this is you're all right with that and you're all right if the mountain goes over on you tonight and kills you is that okay <laughs> like that's what you have to do you have to talk to every wrestler and convince them because if he has an idea and steve austin doesn't like it it's uh, Vincent Mann's not going to go. Well, sorry, pal. Them's the rules. He's the writer. He's written the show. He's going to take the yeah. star's side. Like Russo was always the bottom of the pecking order in terms of say and the overall end of the thing. So fucking sucks. That episode of Raw that we watched sucked. Did it suck? It's the highest rated episode it's ever. Awful. I worked today. Like thirteen million people saw that episode of I Raw. I don't remember anything that happened. I honestly have forgotten all of it. Okay, I've got I've got some of the highlights here. Okay. If anyone's wondering at home, it's from the May 10th, 1999 episode of Monday Night Raw, a night where the corporate ministry battles the union. So what I remember is they started the show Mm -hmm. and then suddenly Shawn Michaels came up on the screen. I think Vince was in the ring or something. Vince was was there. There were loads of people there for some reason. Everyone was there in the ring, like 50 people. And Vince was talking about (laughs) something. And then Shawn Michaels pops up on the screen. Yeah. And he's in like his casual Sunday clothes. And Shawn Michaels is like, hey guys, I'm here and I'm going to shuffle the show up and I'm going to change everything. Whoa! Which, I mean, fine, they haven't announced yet who's wrestling as far as I'm concerned. So, okay, I guess this is how we determine the order of the matches. Yeah. He reads out some of the matches that happened, which I've forgotten already, all of them. We had the Acolytes facing each other. He made Bradshaw face Farouk. He made uh, the Big Show fight Paul Bearer. 
He made Sable and Deborah have an evening gown match. Oh, yeah. How could I forget that? We had tested the big boss man in a nightstick match. How long did you think that match was when you watched it? The one with his nightstick on a pole. 40 minutes. It was seven minutes of your time. That's what it was. This is so funny, right? Literally, we I knew I wanted to show Joe an episode of Russo Raw. And this one was recommended. I remember as a kid, this episode of Raw, I was like, Mom, Shawn Michaels is rebooking. She, the, Mom, this <laughs> But he's like, rebooked the show. Isn't that his job? <laughs> but it's like he's the booker. For me, I was like, it was so exciting that like you know the different things were happening. But you know, I wanted to show Joe this episode, and it was like it was late on one night. I was like, kind of, it was around nine o'clock. I was like, do you want to watch this before we go to bed? And you're like, mm, I don't know how long is it. And I go, it's only like an hour and a half, like because with all the ads taken out, you know, those old raws are no no time at all. So I said, we'll do it the next morning. We'll wake up, we'll have, you know, breakfast in bed, and we'll watch this episode of Russo Raw. It's only 90 minutes. It'll be easy peasy. And they wanted to go back to bed at the end of it. Like, it was literally like, it made you, like, fall asleep. Yeah. Was it, like, I know there was a lot of talking with something that you said. Was it more talking than you're used to on when watching wrestling? Yes, but I don't feel fair criticising the amount of talking because I feel it's it should be a quality over quantity type mm, thing. Because right. I feel that there could be more talking in today's product. Yeah. But there already is a lot of talking. It's a bit shit. Mm. I think it's good to have lots of, of dialogue in wrestling, so long as it's very well written. Mm. And this, unfortunately, was not was not very well written. The main thing I remember was when Shawn Michaels kind of announced all the matches he was doing, he managed to make it quite exciting because yeah. it was supposed to be like, you know, Paul Bearer, he's not even a wrestler and he's going to fight who the big show the big show there you go big show massive scary guy so that's like at the time probably the scariest guy paul Perry could have wrestled oh yeah i mean for me like when he announced it like i like i remember vividly watching this as a kid like i like i was bouncing off the walls i was so excited by by the prospectors because it was so unpredictable like a wrestler fighting a manager what yeah i mean on paper that sounds quite fun yeah and then you've got paul bearer wriggling around and getting all scared beforehand being like (laughs) i don't want to wrestle big show (laughs) but i mean then you've got the reality of the situation. That's isn't it. Yeah, it? the the excitement of the announcement Ooh, never matches. It's, good, it's gonna be fun, and then nothing happens. There was no wrestling. Like when they kind of go, the, the acolytes, they they're gonna have to face each other. A tag team is gonna have to wrestle. It's like, oh my god, those guys are fucked. It's like, well, two heel wrestlers in a heel tag team wrestling each other is actually not that interesting. Especially when they've apparently been told. Don't do any wrestling, please. Were you? I mean, this is nothing to do. Like that's another thing to bear in mind, folks. Like, a writer by their own admission and their their job description, does not tell a wrestler what to do, the finish, who, how to wrestle. They have no say in the actual... And yet... And yet... There was no wrestle... Like, the standard here was so low. And that that's not a, that's not a Russo thing. That's, like, I think, a sign of the times. But it was lower for you, you would say, than current? Absolutely. Oh, my God. I thought there'd at least be one... Because I understand, you know, sometimes... You watch a show and there's only one good match. Mm. Like, okay, for example, Backlash this year, there yeah. was only one good match and all the other matches were just headlocks, right? Yeah. But even that was better than this. There which... seems to be so few bumps compared to... Because, you know, we watched think... it on a Tuesday after we watched Raw clips. I think I like... saw three wrestling moves in the entire... 
90 minutes. Like, no one got off their feet. No, Paul Bearer fell on his back at one point. Like, that's, that's true. Even the evening gown match, which mm. obviously I was not looking forward to. I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, that, that must have been a bit of a, a cold chill, maybe, when that was announced, because that was... That's something that Russo did a lot of was yeah. put the women out front and center as sexy matches, sexy match types as very much as sexual objects. Yeah, absolutely. It's very obvious when you watch a lot of the wrestling around this time how little he he thinks. Well, not just him. I know it's it's a lot. It's a big problem with the industry as a whole. I think mm. around this time is that women aren't seen as wrestlers or they're not allowed to punch each other for God's sake. What's like worse? Because, I mean, it feels like the, the two options you had at the time, because WCW at that time, like 98 or whatever, like simply didn't have women. They had like they had a dance troupe who would dance at the start of the commercial breaks and stuff called the Nitro Girls. But generally speaking, you didn't see women's wrestling on the show. What Over here, Russo was like, well, look, we're putting women on the show. You got Sable, Deborah, Terry, Tori, all blonde ladies with large breasts. Mm-hmm. looking like trying to quite like Pamela Anderson mm-hmm. usually wrestling like I mean the types of matches I mean evening game matches was the, the big Russo one that he kind of popularised and I mean it's worse so cumbersome stuff... what it's a terrible idea evening gown but like what's worse like for for <laughs> it's the worst question ever but like as a fan watching if you're a female fan like what's worse seeing no women at all or seeing women like treat it like because Sable comes out when we watch this thing and she's literally like you boys ready to wank yeah <laughs> For me, personally, I would rather not have any women than have just them be sexualised and objectified the entire time. Mm. I can't speak on behalf of all women, especially a lot of women who would have grown up with this era of wrestling and might be a bit more comfortable with it than I am. Mm. But yeah, for me, it just puts me in a blind rage. I cannot enjoy a wrestling show once. As soon as I've seen that happen, it's like, enjoyment gone. Sorry, I'm not I'm not having fun anymore. This isn't for me. You very clearly made it evident I'm not supposed to have fun, so I'm not having any fun. Particularly when the Women's Championship in this episode of Raw changed hands because Shawn Michaels preferred how Deborah looked without her dress on. No, yeah, that was I, I didn't really understand that. So normally an evening gown match is they come in, they tear each other's clothes off, and the one who is naked first wins. No. It's whoever strips their opponent first, they're the winner. Right, but in this one, it's whoever got stripped first yeah, wins. because good time Shawn Michaels was like, oh, I wanted to see a naked lady, so the winner is Deborah. It's just, honestly, it's just sad. It's just it sad is, to watch all this, because it's, it's sad to think of all the girls watching this wrestling around this time and thinking that this is the only future for female wrestlers, and mm. it's... Oh, I just have to keep myself happy by thinking of like Sasha Banks watching Eddie Guerrero and being inspired by it's just like it's, that. it's sad to see like but I mean like it's very much you know he again was he he would say that what he was doing was he was seeing what was out there on the pop culture in the mainstream and he was reflecting it on the show and if you watched Jerry Springer at the time you would see women tearing each other's clothes off and pulling out each other's hair and cat fights and all that stuff and he was like well that's what people want to see so I'm putting it on TV people love South Park they love juvenile humour so here's DX you know blacking yeah. up and making fun of the nation of domination or and something I, I honestly I can't argue with any of that because he's not wrong mm. I wouldn't say that's enough of a reason to justify his actions but he's not wrong like, I think it, it was a time of that kind of behaviour like sexual objectification of women was widespread and mm. considered socially fine. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that as a modern audience we can't look back and go, well, wow, still fucked up though, wasn't it? 
People will say, though, that it's better back then because they li were listening to the audience and they were listening to pop culture and what was going on around them, that wrestling since then has become this weird little bubble world that doesn't reflect the, the times around it. I would say that's not true, and if you think that, then you are out of touch with the zeitgeist. <laughs> Says more about you than wrestling. Yeah, that's very, very true. Very, very true. I'm sorry, but you, how can you watch wrestling now with Velveteen Dream and not... Like, the fucking The New Day... Breezango. There are so many characters in current wrestling, and I'm not going to give that credit to WWE necessarily because I think a lot of it has to do with the wrestlers themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Particularly with the examples you've given, I think. Yeah, yeah. the New Day. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I just, I don't think it's really fair to say. And then also the fact that obviously you've got a committee of writers. And I mean the the thing that I was wondering if you'd picked up on when we watched the episode of Raw was the fact that everyone seemed to have like a storyline like you top card to the bottom of the card they do but I'd say it's to a point of a fault because it's too overwhelming mm. honestly I lost track of the number of storylines that started and then finished out of nowhere and then had continued from a week ago mm. and then random it was just so confusing and obviously I don't know who 90% of these guys are yeah so as like Someone who was just tuning in for the first time, kind of, if you were switching through the channels, do you think it would have been able to hook you? What, if I had watched at the appropriate age of when it was out? So I'd have been, what, 10? Oh, I guess it's hard to say if you were, you know, 10, because, I mean, for me, like, that that show literally just enraptured me, like, as a kid. Watching it now, it's like, I can see why I liked it as a kid, but as an adult, I found it quite boring Wait, to watch. that actual show we watched? Yeah. What did you like about it? I liked that... It was a big double swerve that at the start of the show you thought, oh God, these evil baddies, the corporate ministry, they're running the show tonight. And it's like, no, no, they're not. It's actually the good guys come in and made it a fun, wacky show where all the, the baddies have to fight each other and the good guys get to win. And I liked that. I mean, for me as a kid and even as an adult, one of my favorite parts of that whole show is watching the two old guys, the Stooges, Patterson and Briscoe, beat up Shane's friends which is so because you didn't even know at the time that they were referencing Hulk Hogan no I didn't I knew nothing I just like here are the old boys and they're beating up these young punks and they have to leave the World Wrestling Federation forever they were back in two weeks but either still like you know it was it was a big deal for me at the time for me the only enjoyable part of that entire 90 minutes was the moment where we had Shawn Michaels on the screen at the beginning saying ha ha we're gonna change everything and also those two cops in the ring look at that sexy one he's a bit sexy look at that sexy boy and then it turns out that the cop in the ring is Shawn Michaels and he takes his clothes and he has a sexy stripping gun and Vince McMahon is like I hope no one can see that I'm looking at this because Boy, Vince wow. is obviously aroused. Shawn Michaels, wow. <laughs> visibly impressed. Very visibly impressed. It's a good thing that Vince is wearing his extra long, big trousers tonight, folks, is all I'm saying. <laughs> Them pleats you could pitch a tent in like a fucking hell. I mean, some of the other examples of storylines, because Russo wanted to kind of to get into the zeitgeist at the time, as we said. And Copy lots. it. Regurgitate I'm, it. Yeah, I mean, for instance, there was the... Uh, the big thing that was in the news at the time, there was there was a guy whose penis got chopped off by his wife and like a Oh, she bit it off. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know, I remember that. Yeah, he had the guy literally come on TV. Oh for fuck's sake. Of course he did. Did he have him win the title as well? <laughs> well no, actually what happened was he was there to console Val Venus. 
because Val Venus, the wrestling porn star, whose gimmick was that he had been an adult film star and had come to wrestling to find new fortunes, he had run afoul of the evil Yakuza-inspired Japanese wrestling group Kayentai. He had looked at Yamaguchi-san's wife a little bit too much, and therefore Kayentai kidnapped him, strung him up, and chopped his penis off with a katana. Wait, what? Yeah, they, they, they had wait, him... Wait, like- wait, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. Canonically in kayfabe, Val Venus has no penis. <laughs> Canonically in kayfabe, you were led to believe that they chopped his penis off. But then he actually revealed, because they put his penis on a cold slab before they chopped it off, he got last minute shrinkage and was able to avoid the cut of the blade. So he was actually okay. Hang on. <laughs> Hang on. What? So we're we all, saying... We all do Hang it. On. <laughs> we're saying now, Val Venus put his penis on a block of ice. Well, no, they, they put on a block of... It was just like a block, like, you know, not a ice. A cold block. cold block, yeah. Granite. Just, I think maybe he was in a cold room, like, you know, the cold room will do it. Right. So what? As they swung the sword down... And they screamed, Banzai! Banzai! When they did it as well, yeah. As that was happening, his penis shrinked by such a significant amount, it yeah. withdrew inside his body, yeah. thus allowing them to cut... Nothing. Yeah, and then the, they the don't lights even... went off when it happened as well. Like, and they don't so. even realise? Could, yeah, could be. He doesn't realise as well? Yeah. Oh, also, the same... No, 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 you don't get to move on. <laughs> How did he not realise that his penis hadn't been cut off? It doesn't matter, Joe. How did he realise? You, I'm sorry, but if you have your penis was... hacked up by a sword and it's not cut off, you'd be like, oh... My penis it withdrew within into its body. It's well, they had to come out with, with ice over his willy, and he's like, "Oh, you know, poor Val." He's like, "Actually, I'm okay, folks." So it was all right in the end, Joe. It's okay. What about the people who are trying to? Joe, you're such penis? a mock. I can't believe you, bro. Why are they happy letting this job be left unfinished? <laughs> they were kind of like, "Well, we, you know, you covered the we king. We tried. Joe. We tried. You know, you covered the king. You best not miss. Like we did miss, and so his penis remains fully intact." Remember in the wire when Stringer Bell was like, "Dang it, guys, that was our one and only chance to kill him." <laughs> you really, oh, now we look like Idris if we try and kill him. We best leave him alone now. There is such an obsession at this time of wrestling of talking about genitals. Yes. Absolutely, including the female group at the time. They included uh, Jacqueline and Terry, who were called Pretty Mean Sisters. PMS. He tries to work it into everything. Like, China gave a bit of a backstage promo. On- oh, yeah, about, uh, uh, about being on our period, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Like, it's, it's every 28 days, like clockwork. Yeah, it seemed to imply that literally on the 28th day, like the new moon that rises, <laughs> I shall bleed from betwixt mine legs. Yes, that's definitely how periods work. Yeah, they make you super powered. I knew one person whose periods came every 28 days. And even back then when she told me that, I was like, no way, that's a fucking lie. You've made that up. (laughs) No way. She's like, yeah, no, it it really happens exactly every 28 days. And that friend's name was China. (laughs) (laughs) Was Vince Russo, the expert on menstrual fluids. But I remember reading Terry Rundle saying, I begged Vince Russo not to call us PMS. I absolutely... Because the idea was... They went to like a girl gang and they had like a boy slave called Meat and she like he was he always lost his matches because he was exhausted from them uh, using him as a sexual object. What? Yeah, that's not cool. He came out and he had all like lipstick marks all over him and Wait, he wrestled in his undies. Was this consensual or? Uh, it was implied that he was kind of like yeah, but he didn't know what he was getting into. Like he's kind of that is so sinister. It is very, and but then PMS is like why would you? You've already got your gimmick there. It's like these evil ladies are taking advantage of this 
virile young man. <laughs> Why call them PMS? Like, does he even know what PMS is? I don't think so. Does he think that PMS is a period? No, I know. I'm not saying right. <laughs> oh, you know that time of the month, bro, when you have your PMS. Oh God, they got PMS all over the floor. Disgusting. <laughs> Guys, please put your PMS away carefully in the provided bins. Okay, yeah. they're, they're they're there for a reason. <laughs> I mean, it's. All right, the same woman, Terry Reynolds, with Val Venus. There was an angle that they did where she was uh, pregnant. It said she'd become pregnant. Val, who had been sleeping around, it's like, Val, you know, I'm pregnant with your child. And Val's like, I want nothing to do with that piece of shit. Get the fuck out of here. And it was like, yeah, Venus. Like, he was the face in this thing. Then she came out and fell off the apron in one match. Like, he run against the ropes. She fell off. And it's like, oh, my God. And they had, like, Jim Ross going, poor little Terry. I think she may have lost. uh, No! May have lost the young in there, and uh, we'll get you an update if she goes to the medical facility. Then the next week, turns out I was never pregnant, Val. I was just lying. Oh my god! Y'all got some issues with women. (laughs) I mean, I guess that's what happens if you get all your wrestling writing idea angles from from Jerry Jerry Springer. Springer. I mean, all right, here's another one. This is what I think is generally one of the most distasteful uh, angles. Wait, worse than the idea of a woman potentially miscarrying? I I don't want to call. She faked a pregnancy to begin with. Yeah, I know, right? To go like the the whole hog from like throw in a false rape accusation there, and you've got the almighty trio. they're all the same, aren't they? Those women. All women. All women. Liars. Well, I want to say this is worse because, I mean, like, they're, it's like he's got, like, a, a broad spectrum of different categories of, like, tastelessness. Yeah, I think he's, like, a level 10 in racism, misogyny, <laughs> homophobia. He's, like, he's really maxed up those stats. Around that time, you had a tag team called the Legion of Doom, the Road Warriors. They were the big kind of spiky armbands, had face paint, really, like, intimidating tag team from the 80s. They would have been synonymous with things like war games and stuff like that. And they were in the WWF and the Attitude Era, and they were kind of, they were a little bit past their prime. You know, they tried to revamp them. They were a bit past their prime. One of the reasons why they were quite past their prime is that one of the members, Hawk, he... And real life had substance abuse problems, like oh God, real I bad. Where this is going. Real, real bad. Like he, uh, he struggled with alcoholism. He struggled with uh, painkillers, cocaine. You know, you name it. He struggled with it. And they did an angle where it's like, here comes the Legion of Doom, and like you know, Hawk like collapses on the ring because he's drunk, or like he's on the ta- he's on the ring apron rubbing his face because he's high and he can't tag into the match. And like he was pretty much still going through that shit right at that time. And they did a storyline where Hawk was worried that his partner was going to get rid of him out of the tag team and replace him with some new young blood, climbed the Titantron and threatened to jump off and kill himself unless his partner, you know, agreed to get rid of this new guy. Wow. And, like, then it's revealed that the new guy, Draws, this young young talent, was actually the pusher man and was giving drugs to Hawk this whole time. And the other thing where, like, Hawk jumped off... It was like... Either Hawk jumped off the Titantron or Draws pushed him off the Titantron. Like, you weren't you weren't to know which it was. And then they did a thing where, like, Draws was like, yeah, he's a scumbag and here's Key. He's his dealer and we gave Hawk all these drugs and Fucking made him kill himself because he's weak. And it's like, you know, turning up the volume on someone's natural personality. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah Very yeah. good idea. To an extent, like... You know, some of the greatest feuds in wrestling history have been built off of real-life grudges. I mean, he would have been involved with a lot of the stuff between Brett and Sean. They hated each other for real. And they managed to manoeuvre that ship in a way so they got a lot of riveting television out of the fact these two men genuinely hated each other. But where it's like, hey, you know who's... Hawk, I was thinking today, you know who loves a drink? You! And you know who struggles with addiction? 
you so would you climb up that titantron there and you could read this out talking about how pathetic you are and how you you've succumbed to your demons and yes we'll 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 make it ambiguous whether or not you've been murdered or you've committed suicide you know it's it's such a shame because i really feel that like wrestling such a unique medium in that you could use a rest like a genuine wrestler's own history and struggle with addiction i think could be told very fairly and very honestly mm through the medium of wrestling, if yeah. it was done really well, and it was done with the respect of the person in question, they kind of gave their blessing, almost say like, look, these are the bits I'm okay with talking about, and this is what I'm okay saying. And mm. and you had someone there to kind of moderate and make sure yeah. it's all tastefully done. A third party just coming to you though and saying, yeah, Yo. ah, let's make fun of your addiction. That's fun, isn't it? And then them being like, well, yeah, okay, let's just do it because I'm probably too stoned and sick to... It never, it never works well. And I think it's a precedent that Russo set because, you know, we'll look at him in an episode at some point, but, you know, Jeff Hardy is a man who had a lot of real-life personal battles with addiction and whatnot, which were then played out on TV sometimes. What about Scott Hall? Scott Hall as well. I mean, WCW, yeah. He would have had a lot of his addictions played out. There wouldn't have been Russo writing that, but, again, that was setting the precedent of kind of, this is what wrestling is now. It's all, it's all fair game. And it's such a shame as well, because I feel like now as a modern audience, we'd almost be dismissive of the suggestion of using real life things that have happened to wrestlers as a plot device, I feel mm. would almost be now thought of as as crude. Because yeah. it's been done so badly. Like you can make a little reference to something here or there. But like if Rich Swan returned to WWE, like and I, you know, this is the type of thing, if Rich Swan returned to WWE and say it was an eight nineties attitude era, he'd have a wife beater angle or something ah. like that and you know what they he did that with the with the rest or not you know there was no real life allegations but uh you know we saw a clip for beaver cleavage ah. yeah they did a thing then where like he came out the next week he's like i don't want to be beaver cleavage i'm Chaz. i'm some guy from new jersey and then his gimmick was that he was allegedly beating his girlfriend and the wrestlers wanted to wanted to beat him up as a result of it and it never I mean, it never went anywhere because where can you go? And very often this would happen with Russo at WWE where it's like he would start a storyline and then Vince is like, what the fuck is this? No, no, no. And Vince McMahon then puts the kibosh on it and it ends. I told you about the Blonde Bitch Project. Yes. Where, you know, this is a perfect Russo example where you have the Blue Meanie and Stevie Richards, two lower card guys who wouldn't have even been in the company had it not been for Vince Russo wanting them there giving young guys, lower card guys, a shot, giving them a story and a character. Well, their story and character was that they were going to spoof the Blair Witch Project, except it was going to be making fun of Sable, who had recently left the company and sued them for sexual harassment. They were called the Blonde Bitch Project. One week of it we got, and then Vincent Mann said, what the fuck is this? Get it off TV. And, you know, you had that happened too often. Mm. Even with Vince the Filter... He was, this came through. Vince McMahon is not an effective filter. No, because all those things I just told you about, they were all prominently positioned on TV when it was being watched by more people who watch wrestling now. So there's your fucking filter. Vince McMahon is just as culpable for that bad stuff. Oh, yeah. You know? God. So, yeah. And we all know Vince McMahon is not a man of taste. No, he's not a man of taste. But Jesus. here's something that might be more to your taste. I have here, Joe, before me... A wee little quiz that I thought that we could do before we get into our matches. Now, we've done some heavy research to try and find a mix of matches that will give you a real true sense of the different gimmicks and preferences of Vince Russo as a writer and a raconteur of professional wrestling. But one of the things that he's known for primarily, Joe, is on a pole matches. 
Did he invent on a pole match? He is the first person who put things on a pole in, in wrestling and mainstream wrestling. Yes, he, he is. You should go to hell for that alone. Now, we've, we've seen an on a pole match live. We saw Elias in the great city of Manchester grab a guitar and hit Jason Jordan with it. Yep. Well, what, what's the objective of an on a pole match, Joe? It seems to be you have a pole and yeah. it's got something on it. And then the idea is the wrestlers have to get that thing off the pole. And then... Now, depending on the type of match, they either can then use the item or by getting the item, they then win. Okay. So, yeah, we, we watched one for Sandman as well, didn't yeah. we? Like, so, yeah, you know, they can either be boring or not fun, you know, or sometimes both. Yeah, normally both. I have got a quiz here for you, Joe, and I want you to use all your considerable know-how and knowledge you've gained over the past few years doing this podcast on your journey as a new fan to try and tell me, was it on a poll? One of these is not on a pole. Okay. Okay. So. As have, in, it's just in a match, but not on a pole. It's, or? I've, I've, one of these, all of these are facts. One of them is a Farago. Okay. So the, one of them is, is untrue. The other are all true. Okay. So you tell me which one you think it might be. A stickball bash. A leather jacket with a knife inside. A pipe. A steel chair. A bottle of Viagra. Pinatas. Buff Bagwell's mother. A coal miner's glove, a blow-up sex doll, a framed picture of Scott Hall, the WCW World Heavyweight Championship, a P45. Oh my god, okay, I can't remember all those. Run through them. Yeah, we'll do one by one, you can tell me if you think it's true or not, and I'll I'll let you know then. Okay, stickball bat. What is a stickball bat? Stickball is a game which kids in Brooklyn and New York and inner cities used to play. It's like baseball, except you don't have enough space for baseball, so you do stickball. It's like a long, thin, aluminum bat that you bop things with. Okay, I think that's true, because it's from... Where did you say it was from? Brooklyn. Brooklyn, yeah, and that's where Vince Russo's from. Yeah, very good. Okay. Thank you. Okay. It happened. We had uh, Reno versus Big Vito in WCW. They had a stickball bat match. Okay. A leather jacket with a knife inside. That's the one. I am not. Sh- I am not sure about that one. I because I could definitely. That's the sounds the silliest. Well, mm. not really the silliest considering some of the other options on that list, but. Yeah, I don't, come back to that one. I'm not sure. That does sound like the one I would have made up the most, though. Yes. Yeah. Right? Okay. A pipe. A pipe, like a smoking pipe. No, a steel pipe. Oh, you yeah, know that's been on a pole. I'm sure. Yes. Steel chair. Yeah. Viagra. Yeah, yeah I'm honestly that's the one I'm most <laughs> confident has been on a pole. Yeah. And I have no idea why, but I am willing to bet it's something to do with Valvinus or <laughs> the Good Father. It was in WCW. So um, yeah, I mean, all right. What would you think would be? You're the booker now. You're the writer, okay? You you fucking write it then, okay? Yeah. How, you tell me how you're going to book the the Viagra on a pole match, Joe, because that's funny, bro, okay? You could check your man card in right at the door if you don't find that funny, bro. Hmm. How are you going to book us? Impotence. Let's see. How do you make the concept of impotence I just funnier? Like the idea like of a wrestling paper, you're opening just with the word impotence. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is hard because I, I wouldn't. I don't think the concept of Viagra is that funny. In 1999, 2000, it was the funniest I thing know. ever. Oh, isn't it strange how people find impotence so hilarious? I'm not going to say how I would book it because I just wouldn't. I, there's no way in hell I would ever think that's a good idea to put Viagra on a pole. I think that's tacky and incredibly 2000s era wrestling. But I, I have a pretty good idea of why they would have done it and how okay. they would have done it. And I reckon it's something to do with... A wrestler, and I'm going to guess it's Val Venus because he's the only one I know who has some kind of like sex 
Joe, we know, canonically his penis has been, you know, chopped off, right? And we no, it's not. <laughs> Remember, it's just become small. It doesn't matter, bro. It's wow. a storyline. It line. grew back the next week. Who the fuck cares? Mine did. <laughs> <laughs> so I reckon, I reckon Val Venus had to have sex with probably an old woman. Yeah. Because they love, they love making fun of, of fat women. women and old women, but... Mm. I think around this time it would have been an old woman. I think an old woman he had to have sex with because he has to convince this old woman that he needs to win a fight or something. So he needs the Viagra to have sex with the old woman to yeah. convince her to give him an advantage in some feud. You don't even have to go, look, look, we know he has to have sex with the old woman. Okay, we have him have sex with the old woman. We go from there. Next week, we'll set something else up. The old woman turns out to be Vince McMahon. The old woman. It was me. (laughs) Oh, Lord. Well, what it was, was uh, Billy Kidman was feuding with the franchise Shane Douglas. I don't know who any of these people are. Well, the franchise Shane Douglas, Joe, turns out that he was impotent and couldn't have sex with his hot-smoking babe girlfriend, Tori Wilson. And they showed backstage footage of him being like, God damn it, why is my dick not getting hard? And then Billy Kim is like, you can't get your dick hard. Well, if you think I can't get my dick hard this Sunday at the pay-per-view, why don't we put a bottle of Viagra up this pole and we'll see whose dick really is hard. Wait, so they're both fighting over... That's a point, because I hadn't even considered that fact, but when you have a an item on a pole match, the yeah. idea is that both opponents want the item on the pole. Yeah. So the other guy is just basically saying, in a very vague, hinting manner... Hey, I could do with that Viagra too. You know? <laughs> oh man, look at this ridiculous <laughs> this Viagra. Look at this, is it chewable? If, what the fuck? That's if you were a real man, you'd fight me for this. <laughs> it's really good Viagra. If you're a real man, you take just as many as I'm taking right now. This sugar-coated. <laughs> Easy to swallow. Yeah, so that did happen. Viagra okay. on a pole. Pinata. Yeah, I know that happened. How so? Because when I was doing the research for this, I heard that Vince Russo's like favorite thing. The, the only way he could ever enjoy any wrestlers that didn't come from America was if he like made them in racist stereotype matches. Mm. So I know he made a lot of lucha wrestlers wrestle pinata on a pole matches. Yeah, he made a lot of lucha wrestlers do a lot of embarrassing things in WCW. I think we showed you a clip of La Parca when he was coming out for a match and they like had someone else speak over on the microphone and like kind of like, oh, I'm, I'm the silly skull man. And you wouldn't mind, folks, not for nothing. La Parca, you look at him, he's a fucking skull man who's got a steel chair and does a chicken dance. He's the coolest motherfucker ever. Also, the only one who can seemingly wrestle. He's the only <laughs> one who did any wrestling. But like, yeah, Pinata and Paul match, it did happen where all the luchadors had to all get in the ring and wrestle. And of course, you didn't even think through the mechanics of it because the pinata falls off the pole straight away and then the wrestlers are all just stood around looking at it. And that match as well, I don't know if you got to see a little fun character that he did, uh, which was Oklahoma. A little fun joke that him and Ed Ferreira did. Oh, that's that really offensive take on Jim Ross, isn't it? Well, (laughs) hang on, Joe. Listen, listen to the loony left PC brigade over here get worked up about nothing. Now, Joe, if you're like me, there's nothing funnier than facial paralysis. (laughs) I'm just laughing, thing. (laughs) Ah, not being able to open up 
one side of your face and it being completely numb. And you know what the funniest thing about it was as well? With Jim Ross, you see, this little character in Oklahoma, he was having a pop of that old curmudgeon Jim Ross, you know, having Bell's palsy. <laughs> and the funniest thing was is that his most recent bout of Bell's palsy he got after his mother died. And, uh, oh, yeah, take him down a peg. Get him. Get him. That son of a bitch. You you stand there with your dead mother and you have the gall to... I mean, why? Why do that? And it's so fucking bad because, like, Jim's Bell's palsy here is is so bad at Yeah, this we watched, time. like, 99. So this would have been around the same time as when we were watching you know, him on Raw. Struggling quite a bit compared to how you would see him maybe, you know, in, in more modern times. Or yeah. You, I mean... Joe, you've seen him, Jim Ross, calling like WCW ninety two, like before he had any afflictions. You know, like yeah. he was having quite a difficulty at the time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. This is like probably one of the hardest parts for him, I think, in his whole time of doing commentary. Like he's he's obviously struggling at points. Fucking hell! And yeah, yeah, they've got this character at Oklahoma who's just like this guy in a cowboy hat slurring, he pulling a face, pulling like. a f- yeah, literally squinting and pulling a face, and just oh, yeah, Vince McMahon is is so. mocked Jim Ross and his Bell's palsy. Yeah, as well, it's like oh, know? it's the funniest thing. Ha ha ha! Imagine not being able to smile. Like as a kid, I didn't understand it. Like I, I knew it was a thing that happened. Most adults don't understand. It's such a scary, not very talked about, very complex illness. There's a friend of mine in the like I was in the film society back in the university in Galway. They had Bell's palsy, and she was like 19 when it happened. Oh and, um, you know, Billy from the ITR podcast, he had Bell's palsy as well. And, like, literally, when we, we talked about this very thing, it's like, how does that kind of strike you? And it's like, I think Billy's take on it was that it's like, Bell's palsy is literally something that strikes either entirely at random or because of like intense stress mm. or, you know, emotional trauma or whatever. Like, it is literally the most victimless, like, it, it it's. It's so unfair. It is. It's not like, oh, well, you lived a bad life still, so mm. ha, ha, ha. You know, there's no right way to parody someone having such no. a horrible affliction. And it's so life-altering as well. Now, they've apologised and made peace since. But, like, you know, that only happened when everyone got podcasts, is all I'm fucking saying, mm. you know? So we're, so we're continuing our list here. So Pinata was on a poll. Buff Bagwell's mom. I've got a feeling that one's real. The reason I think that one's probably real is because I know from the match that we covered, Big Boss Man versus Al Snow (laughs) in a Kennel from Hell match, I know that in the run-up to that, they did a... Basically, a dead dog in the form of Chinese food on a pole match. Yes. Not on my list. I thought that one was too easy. (laughs) (laughs) Love the fact they managed to make it racist as well as needlessly edgy. Yeah. So I reckon... Buff Bagwell's mum died and they used her ashes on a pole. Okay, interesting So take. I think that's, I think, yes, that's true, but I think it's not actually oh, like an actual woman on a pole. I think it's the, the ashes of his mother. Shocking news is Joe Graham fantasy books a woman dying on the How To Wrestling podcast. Am I right? No, you're not right. I'm not right. Well, we'll get back to it. I'll, let, I'll reveal the true answer at the end okay. of this. A blow-up sex doll. Yeah, I didn't think that would happen, yeah. A coal miner's glove. See, I think that one's real too. Yeah. But I couldn't say why. Okay. Probably some stupid angle to do with coal mining. <laughs> the coal miners of America are back and they're taking over. A framed picture of Scott Hall. That one's so hard. Oh, it's because a tricky one. On the one hand, I think it's true because it's so silly. Mm. But on the other hand, I kind of feel that 
wrestling at this time was so scared of ever coming across as even slightly gay that like <laughs> even the concept of having like a framed picture of a man would be like whoa it's a bit gay okay so you reckon that possibly the fake one could be scott, scott hall's, hall's picture picture yeah okay wcw world heavyweight championship yeah i think that's got to be real and a P45. That's definitely real. Yeah, okay. Well, the one that was actually ended up not being real was Buff Bagwell's mom. Really? She was on a forklift, not a pole. And was it an actual mom or was it? It was. It was Buff Bagwell's really shoot mother, thought, Judy Bagwell. I really thought I'd gotten it right with the ashes. I can just imagine. Has someone ashes been on a pole before? No, but they really should be. I'm amazed. Vince Russo, what are you doing? I've just like come up with the one idea you never thought of. I can maybe go through some of these other ones here just to clarify them a little bit. Uh, a leather jacket with a knife inside. Mm. Uh, Tank Abbott, a shoot fighter from WC in WCW, was uh, one of Russo's absolute faves and a man who he early wanted to become the world champion despite having very little wrestling experience. But bro, he's the toughest guy here. No one could beat him. To get him over, they had what was called a Australian Skinner match where there was a leather jacket with a bowing knife inside it hung up on a pole. The match ended when... Tank Abbott got the leather jacket took the knife out held his opponent down put the knife up to his throat and said I could fucking kill you right now if I wanted to motherfucker and then walked off ding 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 uh, the framed picture of Scott Hall was in the same match as the coal miner's glove the blow up sex doll and the world heavyweight championship it was a San Francisco 49ers match which had four poles and the reason why Scott Hall's picture was there was because this was after Scott Hall had been released because of his alcohol issues oh of course it's not it a sexy like, nice photo no, it's a it's, demeaning horrible condescending yeah. nasty aggressive photo so when he opened up the box it's like well he ain't never coming back <laughs> look here he is at his dirt worst ha, rock. he's hit rock bottom here hasn't he ha, so uh, yeah those are our pole matches Joe I'm going to give you an opportunity to fantasy book one item on a pole match involving any two wrestlers of your choosing hmm 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 okay I would choose Jerry Lawler mm-hmm. versus Ric Flair mm-hmm can I travel in time as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You can, you can, you can choose fantasy booking here. Laws means you can choose anyone from any era at any time. Okay, I'd do this in 2002. Okay. And I'd have Jerry Lawler versus Ric Flair in a Vince Russo on a pole match. Oh, I like that a lot. Because I think they'd both really get into it. I think they'd want to fight for who gets to beat up Vince Russo the most <laughs> first. I mean, I'll tell you what, I, I had a similar idea, which was... I like the idea of Vince Russo on the pole. Broadly speaking, that's where I was going as well. Yeah. But I thought we could update an old match type, bring it for the new generation, which is the pinata on a pole match. Oh yeah. Vince Russo pinata on a pole match. Pentagon Junior versus like uh, you know La Parka, maybe yeah. Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn and the Young Bucks could be uh, you know at ringside as mm. the different uh, lumberjacks, and they could beat Vince Russo with sticks and see if candy comes out. That'd be good. If it doesn't, I guess the match just has to keep continuing until it does. Yeah. Figures. <laughs> <laughs> of all the gimmick matches we watch, show, nothing could prepare us for the greatest of all gimmicks. We're going to continue through our timeline now with Vince Russo as the head writer of the World Wrestling Federation. We're into mid-1999. WWF has posted the highest ratings it has ever had in its existence. Two years after Russo has taken over from writing, he has made it not only better than WCW, better than WCW ever was in terms of ratings. More eyes on the product which means more advertising money, which means, you know, more money for everyone, essentially. You know, a lot of that success can be placed at his feet and that he did 
revitalize this show. However, towards the end of his tenure, Russo got a little bit overworked, as we said. He was expected to write all the SmackDown with no pay rise, no new writing staff, and no more time to do it, and expect to do it to the same standards as before. And some of the cracks started to show, notably of which some really awful bits of TV that never made it, including Mankind asking The Rock to marry him because they run out of things for them to do as a tag team. Like, Rock and Sock is great. Don't ask Mankind to marry The Rock. That just makes it uh, weird. That is weird, because I always imagine Mankind being kind of asexual. Yeah, me too. Like, he's just kind of like, oh, sex exists, but that's not for me. No, sock puppets are for me. Yeah. Sex is for other people. Christmas is for me. <laughs> but the cracks are no more evident during the aforementioned Al Snow and Big Boss Man Pepper Feud. We're looking at the kennel from hell from Unforgiven in 1999. This is the Hardcore Championship as Mr. Behaving Badly himself, the big boss man, takes on Al Snow. Joe, this one all started over a cup of pepper. So, Joe, do you think for the benefit of those fans at home who have not immersed themselves into the Attitude Era in 1999 and matches involving dogs, tell the good folks why Al Snow and the boss man, they're having a wrestle here tonight. So, let me go back a bit because I feel that there's a... A bit of exposition I need to give the listeners before I can just jump in on what's going on in this match. Okay. The big boss man is a... He's not a cop, which is what I thought he was. He's a correctional... Corrections officer. He's a corrections officer. Yeah, so implying that he was a CEO, basically, or... uh... Or he, he was like a prison guard. He's a prison guard. Yeah, in Cobb County, Georgia. And Al Snow is some guy who's a bit weird and he carries around a head that mm. he talks to. Mm-hmm. And the head is called Head. Mm-hmm. Now, Big Boss Man, from his years of working at the the prison full of bad men, has turned him mad. Which, by the way, I think is lazy writing because like, the way I'd have done it, obviously, is I'd have had him be like a bit of a sadist in the first place to become a prison's mm. correctional facility officer, whatever. I must admit, like, it's never actually specifically stated, it's stated on camera, I think, he's a sadist because of this. Oh, okay. We, all, we, like, we, we spent a long time discussing the motives of the boss man on the Atchera podcast and all we could figure out was that the only reason why he's like this is because he genuinely enjoys human misery and suffering. Right, and he, see, that is what made me think that then he, that's why he would become a yeah. prison guard, is because like, I kind of imagine my, my headcanon for Boss Man, and literally this is all I've seen of him, is this yeah. match. I imagine him like torturing animals from a young age, yeah. and then, you know, being one of those kids that's like, yeah, I'm going to be a cop when I get older, and then he fails the cop entrance exam. <laughs> becomes a CO. Becomes a prison guard because that's his <laughs> next best option. He knows that he'll have a lot of power and control there, and he can like, you know torture some people basically and get away with it he realises while he's there working at the prison just how much he loves this power and how much he's a, a sadist and I realise we should be saving this for how to be no no man, it's good it's a good underline yeah this is my theory before I know anything about him and then with his ability all this power to torture all these inmates he's then like I want more and I need this to be my job and so he becomes a wrestler where you get to do this and get paid to do yeah, it essentially and be famous as well it's very interesting that was what you read there was the original script treatment for a Paul Blart mall cop before uh, <laughs> Kevin James came in to give it a little bit of a PG rewrite like, you know. <laughs> change it to a mall it's less there's more there's more stores less felons so Al Snow who I only know about because he's mentioned a couple of times in Mick Foley's autobiography as they're being like good friends yeah. he seems like a nice guy Al Snow has this head that he talks to in his matches and then his head gets impaled on some kind of spike yeah and then head dies mm-hmm 
head no longer speaks to Al, so Al gets himself a little puppy chihuahua. Really cute little dog called Pepper. Now, I'm not going to lie to you, folks, in the history of doing this podcast, and one of the main reasons I do this podcast is just for your reactions, because they always, you know, enrapture me in one way or another. When you looked up Pepper, you made a voice that was so high-pitched of... That I think the only thing that could have heard it was a chihuahua. It was Peppa. It was literally... That was why I called her. Yeah, it was like a frequency that mm. was just for small chihuahuas from 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. That was like what it was. Ghost chihuahuas. <laughs> it's a cute dog. So fucking cute. That's like my dream dog. Aww. So perfect. Little cute little doggies. But, so um, cute. <laughs> boss man does... Yeah, boss man kind of shared your sentiments to like, uh, it's so cute, I want it to die, as opposed to I want to die. No. <laughs> so what does he do? He takes the cute little dog. Little popper. How was it watching this with Billy? Poor Billy. <laughs> Knowing his love of pups the way I do. (laughs) So he takes the dog and I don't even know why he does. I literally don't know his motivation to this. Get out! Get him! But why? Because he's he's, he's got the hardcore title, Joe. I don't think it's... Right, I can't... (laughs) I can't have that be the reason he does this because it's so evil what he does. Mm. It can't be just because he wants the title. So I think that's why maybe what he's telling himself is he wants the title. I think he really wants to kill a dog and feed it to someone. Maybe, or maybe it's because Bossman had a really troubled childhood, right? Uh. Which is why he became a sadist. His parents never loved him. They never hugged him or showed him attention or love. He doesn't really understand the concept of love. And because of that, it makes him quite angry and it makes mm. him defensive and, and scared. Kind of like um, Vince McMahon with sneezing. Ah, I see. So he sees love and he wants to kill love. He sees the strong relationship that as ha- Al has between Head and then that Al has between him and Pepper. And he sees that he's talking to him and he's like, whoa, Al, this clearly strange man with problems of his own and still is yet capable enough to communicate them healthily via means that makes him happy. I hate that. That makes me angry because I can't do that myself. I don't know how to communicate my thoughts rationally. Instead, I just destruct and destroy. And so the only way I know how to make myself feel better is to make others feel worse. So I'm going to kill Pepper. And not only am I going to kill Pepper, but I'm going to kill Pepper. And then feed Pepper to Al Snow. But not just feed... Because that's the thing. Like If you were going to feed a dog to someone, you'd mm. think you'd just... This is such hypothetical, strange avenues of thinking here. But, like, we've got to do it, I guess. It's good to know where you stand on these hot-button issues. I know. Someone's got to talk about them. If you were going to kill and eat a dog... Yeah. Would you not just cook it yourself? I wouldn't want to get third parties involved and well, potentially get me in trouble. you don't think he cooked it himself? He turned it into Chinese food. Yeah, he cooked it himself. He deep fried it in salt and pepper seasoning. Yeah, he, he, he it was implied from what he said that he, he did it himself. Really? Like, yeah, he skinned the dog. I thought he, it was uh, implied that, because that's why I thought it was kind of like pretty racist that he turned it. I mean, it's still it, racist. It's the implication, isn't it, of a dog becoming Chinese food? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, in my mind, it's right. Ra- like the boss man was being like, oh, well, it's dog, so I got to make some Chinese food. I'm going to take a weekend cooking class. Wow! You know, and then he learns how to prepare it with this salt and pepper seasoning. That's what you think he's done. Yeah, because he did, he does, he cut a promo where he's like, I can barely got any meat off them bones. Like, he did imply that he had skinned and cooked the dog and prepared him himself. Uh, and made it into Chinese food for Al to eat, which he Why then eats. Why Chinese food? Why um, would you go to that? That's such is the level of hate of the boss man. But look, here's the interesting thing, though, right? You're giving this in-depth talk and analysis and all this fucking storyline that we've been given 
for I two- thought story was the most important thing, bro. But no, he's- Stories are all wrestling is, bro. But you're- You've got all these layers and all this, admittedly a very dark and crazy story, but a very deep layered story mm. for two guys who are right at the bottom of the card. Like the Hardcore mm. Championship, in case you don't know, that was kind of like almost like the gag belt for many years. It was kind of like, here are the silly wrestlers who all don't you know, have proper storylines, so they all wrestle in the Hardcore Division where all these weapons and hit each other in the head with popcorn and silly stuff and who's going to win this terrible belt. But that's a pretty fucking big story with lots of writing and lots of twists and turns. I've just given it depth. I mean, what we were actually given was, here's an evil man. He's going to eat this dog. Yeah, but all those segments all happened, you know? We we saw the boss man piss on Pepper's grave, That's not character development. But it's a lot of time and energy that's been given to guys who would normally, and honestly, have never really since been given that level of time and effort. And that, for me... So yeah, as a kid, anyone who watched wrestling when you were like in the 90s, I think, all had these very strong memories of these lower card guys, like Al Snow and the Big Boss Man. Whereas nowadays, I think a kid who's 9 or 10 years old, I don't think when they're in their 20s or 30s, they're going to remember Kurt Hawkins, you know, or Curtis Axel or whoever, you know, like lower card guys. No, but I would think that for WWE's current mission statement, that's how they want it to be. They want you to remember Roman Reigns. They want you to remember John Cena. Mm. They want you to remember Charlotte Flair, like the big names in wrestling. But the difference here, though, is and why I think this is really important about what Russo did, is you know, in wrestling, you only get your big paydays, particularly during this time, when you appeared on TV and on pay-per-view. And he would give these guys storylines that were so absurd and over the top that they had to get put on pay-per-view. Against all logic, Al Stone, the big boss man, have a match on pay-per-view. I can't believe you're defending this. I am! I'm just defending defending the ethos behind it. Okay, well then, so let's get on to the next bit of what happens then, shall we? (laughs) Okay. See if you can defend this ethos. (laughs) So after Big Boss Man takes the extensive time to travel to China to go on a dog-skinning butchery class he then comes back cooks Pepper feeds Pepper to Um, Al he doesn't eat any himself oh he does he eats it and he goes tastes like chicken okay so okay different angle then maybe Bill Span didn't do it out of pure evil maybe he literally has he's maybe spent some time in his youth in countries where dog is considered a kind of more mainstream so maybe it wasn't that he went on this this week trip just despite Al, maybe it's something he had already picked up in his travels. Yeah, exactly. It, it was an appreciation of culture, it wasn't necessarily just that he thought it would be funny. I'm tired of ham sandwiches every night for dinner. I want to cook a dog. He's looking into more sustainable meats. <laughs> and I mean, honestly, Joe, it's the way it's going. That's what Michael Go says. He wants it to be like the good life. You know, we're growing our veg in the back garden. We're eating our neighbor's dogs. Like mm. that's the it's self sustaining. That's the that's the dream. So after he comes back and he he kills and turns the dog into into food i guess we're calling that yep. and then then they they eat the dog over a shed they're in a hotel room together yeah. as well which is adds a weird sexual chemistry to the yeah, whole yeah when you're in someone's line. hotel room it is kind of like being like trapped on a boat like mm. dennis reynolds style like and they're you know, on this the implication like, once you're in that hotel room and he served you that chinese food yeah there's the like beds in the background yeah they're very sitting very close to each other. Anyway, after that, Al Snow is obviously very upset. Then something happens. I don't know what, but for some reason, then they have a pepper on a pole match. Yeah, the deep fried remains of the dog are, are left in a doggy bag and are hung on a pole for the two to wrestle over. So, you know, because Al just wants him to have a Christian burial. You know? So that's that's why they're wrestling over the 
deep fried remains of the dog. Yeah, because Al just wants to put bury him, and when he finally he wins the match, and he finally does, and then Bossman pisses on the grave afterwards. Right. But all that leads to this match, to this culmination, because Al Snow knows there's only one way, Joe, to get his hands on the big boss man in a way that is fitting and serves the memory of Pepper, and that is to lock him in a cage, and then another cage, and fill that cage full of nice dogs. Yeah. Really lovely, nice dogs. Yeah. I don't understand what he was trying to achieve here. Bossman's already established that he does not care for dogs in the slightest. Yeah, he does. He's not a dog person at all. You know, he, they do taste like chicken, but other than that, his love of dogs ends. Mm. Now, I didn't tell you the rules of this match. It kind of was slowly dawning on you as, as it came along. Um, at what point did you think that dogs were coming or did you think that we would actually see a match with dogs in the inside of these double cages? Well, they mentioned on commentary from the very beginning. It's because it's a slow starting match. It's like 10 minutes. You'd have to put two cages together. Yeah, they build the cage and then you've got everyone on commentary being like, talking about Rottweilers. And Jerry at one point's like, are we going to be stuck in the cage with the dogs? And did you think it was hyperbole or do you think, oh yeah, obviously dogs? I thought he was speaking in a metaphor. <laughs> I thought maybe he meant the boss man and Al Snow were the dogs. Ah, they'd be like at each other like Rottweilers. <laughs> and it wasn't until Jim Ross, I think, made like a couple more comments and he was like, I don't even know how to spell Rottweilers. I was like, oh, they're actually going to do something with Rottweilers, I guess. But they, they didn't come out at the beginning like no. you expect. They waited to construct the cage. They did the entrances. And then like five minutes into the match, out come the Rottweilers. These really nice, young little puppies. Very, very nice dogs. Like I know, like I used to work in a bit of animal behavior research where a lot of my colleagues were doing stuff about attitudes towards supposed dangerous dog breeds. And mm. it's really fascinating like how many breeds of dog have been like really unfairly maligned with little to no actual scientific evidence mm. or any actual proof other than people going, oh, those are nasty dogs. And <laughs> Rottweilers are, can be really fucking lovely dogs. It's all rooted in classism, basically, it is, isn't it? It's because poor people have fucking dang- dangerous, inverted commas, dogs. Like a Rottweiler that's well looked after is the most fucking lovely dog. Case in point here, because when these dogs come out, they're all like... <laughs> cute little puppers the most dangerous thing that they do to these wrestlers is piss on the floor and cause a slipping hazard (laughs) they uh, have sex it's a bit distracting they do as well like you know there was a a great thing where Mick Foley did like funny commentary on this with Kevin Kelly one of the announcers and they were like speculating like what could happen here if these dogs start breeding Mick and then we have a literal army of dogs being bred (laughs) one after the other (laughs) it's such a shame because like I think it could work quite well having like a a ring surrounded by dogs like because at the beginning the dogs are all barking and it sounds cool there is an energy that comes with dogs barking and I told you about when they did the setup for the match they did a thing where they let the dogs loose down the titantron they all ran down and Bossman was like and he jumped over the barricade it was a great visual of Bossman running away from these dogs but the dogs with their really nice handlers who are like and like you know they're pissing everywhere and the cameraman straight away is like we can't film these anymore. The dogs are clearly very happy. I feel it's such a shame, yeah, because, like, if they'd just gotten actual, like, trained dogs, mm. because you can do such cool things with dogs. Dogs are fucking awesome. Yeah. They're so clever and they're so easy to train. You can get them to do pretty much anything. It's like a nightmare. Like, that's the type of thing that, you know, like, uh, f- from the, the work that I had done previously, we, we had folks who would 
talk with companies or, or stage shows who would use dogs about you know stressing them out and what they could and couldn't do. Yeah, keep them away from big crowds and, and stuff. Like, literally, big crowds, unexpected noises, bright lights, mm-hmm. like everything about this is set. Like the reason the dogs are pissing is not because they're marking their territory. It's out of anxiety they'd mm. be pissing, and it's hard. It's hard to watch this match now, knowing how fucking stressed out those lovely dogs are. <laughs> and that's the shame because you can. You can train dogs into getting used to those kinds of environments. And there's there's entire production companies now where you can go to and they have like all these trained dogs for all yeah. different scenarios. They've been raised literally in a certain environment so they're completely used to being in front of like loud, big audiences or whatever. But this is so clearly a Vince Russo thought of this the week before and then yeah. suddenly made a phone call to like a nearby dog shelter or whatever. Yeah, that, that's like, all it is, yeah. Let's get us 10 Rottweilers. Doesn't matter what they look like. That's Doesn't matter need. if they're trained. Doesn't it's, matter if they have no idea what to expect. It's just the visual. That's all we want. We want, we want the dog. <laughs> and that's it, exactly. This was obviously like all throughout this storyline, he knew that he wanted to do some sort of match involving the image in his mind, I think, was dogs chasing the big boss man was, mm. was big money. And... I, I get that, but if there could be such a thing as eyes bigger than your stomach in terms of concepts, this is one of them. And this happens all the time with Russo. Like There are a lot of things that will repeat throughout Russo's career all the time, where it will be similar match types come up again and again and again, or similar storylines. I mean, we talked earlier about the corporate ministry and the union. Replace that with the main event mafia and TNA's frontline, or Aces and Eights, or the Millionaire's Club and the New Blood. Like There's always warring big factions. That's his big thing. He'll have... The Montreal Screwjob replayed over and over and over again. And one thing that often happens is he's got a storyline that's payoff is this high concept match that comes to nothing. Because you have to have that hard work and organisation beforehand to make it pay off. This is the type of thing that people think is really easy to do and is in fact not easy to do, requires a lot of money, requires a huge amount of talent, ultimately, most of all, massive, massive amounts of practice. I appreciate the idea of not viewing it as a wrestling show and viewing it as a TV show and putting putting that expectation on it. Like, this is a TV show. Like, planning it as a season. Yeah, and, like, it should have intertwining storylines like Seinfeld or whatever where it all comes together and crosses over and all that it should have your established characters like I like all of that I do and I think if Russo views them as not being wrestlers and viewing them as being characters on Mm -hmm. a show like something that me and Adam have picked up a lot on from watching a lot of Russo era wrestling is the backstage area and like wrestling feeling as like this living breathing thing like you you can kind of vision if you went backstage the different places, like there's the boiler room where mankind will be, or we know that Vince will be in his office with the corporation. You they know, call it world building. World building, exactly. But when you view it to the point where you don't think about what you can, the constraints of it being a yeah, wrestling you show. you have to be realistic. And if you know is, yeah. you've only got a week to plan this, don't include a bunch of dogs that need training. Bret Hart in his book wrote very hilariously about like, you know, at the end of his career, it was when Russo was writing in WCW, and he's like, he shows up to TV, and it's like, I run over a psycho Sid in a you know monster truck, and then I get into a speeding car, and I screech the tires, I burn out the, you know, the big, and then I screech around the corner, and they all chase after me, and I swing around after, and he's like, I'm not, like, I'm a, a great L wrestler, don't get me wrong, but I'm not a stunt driver. And that gen- that's genuinely what that is. Yeah. It's an entirely different set of skills that requires years and years of training I'm not Uma Thurman you're not Quentin Tarantino you can't create an environment where you force me to do this and then apologise in a half-assed way ten years later okay yeah. it's not going to work that way but yeah uh, and another thing like is you don't even think about like the most important person in this which is 
the viewing audience. Yeah, who can't see fuck all. Like, we get cameras inside the cage and we still couldn't see fuck all. Like, you cut in the cage and all of a sudden Al Snow's bleeding. It's like, when did that happen? You yeah. know? <laughs> if it were me, because I, I do really like this concept of having dogs. Because that that's cool. That can be really cool. But there's like a few changes I would have made. Mm. One, I'd have had the trainers be grizzled looking people yeah not nice people who are like mm-hmm. Be- beautiful flowing blonde hair yeah, the type seriously. of people who look like they hang around with ponies kind of things the like. type of people who quite frankly Joe look like they volunteer at a dog shelter yes exactly. we don't need those people handling our dangerous dogs no I'd have also I'd have done dog casting I'd have made sure those dogs looked the part I want them grizzled and old I don't want puppies oh you had a great idea about yeah. to get them to react I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. getting there right so then I'd have boss man wear a certain colour type of sock mm. and then I'd train the dogs this is the thing you've got to have months of planning for this yeah. you can't do it in a week it's something you work with the training grounds to do this whole angle you, you can train dogs but it needs a lot of time yeah that's what training is it's repetitive action with reward over and over and over and over and over and over again and hence why you can make a lot of money as a dog trainer because yeah. it takes a lot of time <laughs> <laughs> so yeah I'd have had boss man wear a certain colour of sock mm. and then had it when they're trained to bark at the sock ah so when they see him they'll yeah. bark at him they'll bark at the sock and also it meant that if he wanted to do like I know there was one moment where he stuck his hand out of yes! the ring and they yeah, were yeah. supposed to like bite him you could have done that with a foot and a flash of sock so easily because there was a point yeah right uh, it's great this is like you know my third time watching this match now because of the podcast and every time I learn to hate myself a little bit more <laughs> but I pick up a new thing and yeah the hand boss man had his hand out you can hear him and I'm going where the fuck are they like where's the dogs <laughs> And he obviously, because Boss wore gloves, it was probably a gimmicked glove yeah. that he could have gotten a bite on. Which would have looked awesome. But the dog was too, you know, the dog had other things going on. Yeah. When this was planned in the riding meeting, they didn't factor in the dog's ass being there for the other dog to smell. Because mm. that's a lot more appealing. If you're a dog, you're going to want to see another dog's ass, not smelly old boss man hand. Come on, you can't <laughs> fuck that. Come on, that's ridiculous. And the trouble is there's so many people in the cage with the dogs. Because the dogs aren't well trained, it's obvious the fact that they've been told by the training academy, we've got to keep our trainers with the dogs yeah. because they're not... We insurance can't, reasons. Yeah, insurance reasons. We can't just let them run wild in front of this big, loud audience. And again, with all the camera people as well, it's just you can't see anything that's going on. It's so bad. And they miss the most basic things. Like Al Snow, like there's meant to be a big moment where he's handcuffed and he breaks out of the handcuffs, but like you don't see it at all because it's obscured by two cages and 20 people with dogs. And <laughs> the end of the match is so funny because like Al, like it's actually the hell in the cell is the outside cage. And Al, like they cut open a hole in the top and Al gets to the top of it. And Jim Ross is like, really trying to get you into it he's like oh my god hell in the cell that's bringing back some uh, unique memories you know obviously mankind hell in the cell big famous fall and he goes every time king someone is on top of this structure something memorable happens and then Al just walks down ding 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 the match is uh, speaking of commentary a weird thing I couldn't quite understand was you got Jerry Lawler uh-huh. as a yeah. Has he got Jerry Lawler? What the fuck's with that? I don't understand. No, um, Jerry Lawler was playing, was doing colour commentary yeah. as, as usual, which to me, I've said this before, I think that means that, you know, you maybe come up with a couple of spicy takes here and there. You mm. might not always side with the face. You might sometimes side with the, the heels a bit. Yeah. Corey Graves is a great example yes. of a colour commentator who does his job really, really well. 
But here we have Jerry Lawler with absolute zero empathy for Al Snow whatsoever. In fact, at one point, he gleefully screams, Al used to love telling Pepper to play dead. He finally succeeded. <laughs> he was just like, he was being the heel and trying to, you know, he would always side with the bad guys. But it seems so inconsistent because mm. then at other moments, you've got them all being like, oh, how sad. Oh, this tragic puppy dying and I think being what fed. you have is two commentators over the course of the match realising they no longer have to sell this as being something serious. Because at the end, Jim Ross goes, you have witnessed the first and most definitely the last hell in a kennel match. I just don't get it because I thought Jerry Lawler loved puppies. Well, who who thought he's an inconsistent man is Jerry Lawler. And my favourite bump of the night in this whole match is when they're running away, someone slips and bumps on one of the fucking dogs. Oh God, that's so cringe. Oh my God. Literally falls over a dog. Now, I'm not taking anything for granted since you gave the Cactus Jack Sandman match a big old thumbs up. Mm. So with your star rating this one, Unique match type besides also and the big boss man Hell in the Kennel. Widely regarded as one of the worst of all time, but how did you find this very unique encounter? Surprisingly, I actually agree, and I would consider this one of the worst matches of all time. I gave it one star. Um, it didn't have a coast to coast, so it doesn't even get a bonus point for that. Don't bring I, I, out the second star rating. Honestly, bonus. the only reason it even got one star is because of the cute dogs. Oh, they so. were really cute. I have a question, though. Mm. What's the weird white powder that gets thrown in Bossman's face at one point? Oh, yeah, it's just wrestling powder. Like, if you're a bad guy in wrestling, one of the, the tricks of the trade is the powder which you throw in your opponent's eyes. Where does it come from? Usually a little plastic pouch. Are you fucking serious? Like cocaine? It's supposed to be cocaine? I mean, the original one was Mr. Fuji, who was the Japanese manager of Yokozuna, used to throw... It was meant to be salt, because he was like an sumo gimmick. That's cool. He throws the salt in the eyes. But then it became like, oh, it's the powder, like, you know, in the eyes. JR and Jerry are giggling like it's cocaine, like, yeah. you know. And there is something about the image of a very, very sweaty boss man who's covered in blood, covered in cocaine. And we should just let the uh, Hello Darkness, My Old Friends song just kind of roll in there. It's, it's quite a pleasing uh, image altogether in itself. Rest in peace, Pepper. You're what a waste of a lovely dog. That, I think I like to view that as being like Russo's last big fucking, last big swing of his crazy, wacky sword in WWE. Why can't there be more nice dogs in wrestling? Why does it always have to be a dog end up dying or being eaten? Or well, we had a nice dog. Killed. It was Pepper and then yeah, it got then eaten. Yeah, then it got eaten. You literally just said, that's why. It's why not safe. Why can't we have nice dogs that just are there always and they never die or get eaten and they're just, if anything, people get to pet them and <laughs> give them hugs and they could have once a year they could have a pay-per-view where they bring out all the dogs yay and the pay-per-view could be called WWE's all the dogs and then they could have one where they have the dogs that look like WWE superstars <laughs> and they do a mix match challenge yeah <laughs> who needs Vince Russo if you don't like dogs bro check your man card in at the door bro <laughs> So, Russo leaves very shortly after this. Uh, yeah. Because of this? Not because of this. But what, was the general, what was the general kind of reaction to this at the time? Because obviously, as a modern audience, this is very shocking. Within a year, they had Mick Foley ribbon and making fun of this on a special that they were running, like, you know, with, with Kevin Kelly. So, like, and, you know, Jay, with the way we always got it across in the Atchera podcast when covering stuff like this was if JR says it immediately on commentary it's literally Vince going that was fucking shit you know you can bury that oh, okay. you know like that's how you know because if it's if Vince wants you to think it's good 
JR and Jerry Lawler, whoever the commentator is, is going to go, well, that fucking sucked. Right. But if you hear JR say, like, oh, bowling shoe ugly, or don't break out the star ratings, or you'll never see this match again. Wow. <laughs> you know, the, the word unique can only be used so many times before you realize that they don't like this. So, yeah, this didn't go down well. Because I've got to admit, when I first watched this, my first thought was, oh, Vince Russo's obviously been watching too much South Park. Yeah, because you have, you know, when someone feeds their parents to them, basically. Yeah, as revenge. Yeah. Sounds very South Park. And then I only realised that, actually, no, this came three years before. Yeah, so I think it worked... Could this have influenced South Park? I doubt it somehow. I really do. Because I wouldn't be at all surprised if the creators of South Park were big wrestling fans. I don't think they are. You know, honestly, they... They've never come out with that, as far really? as I know. Because I know so. they do the pro wrestling episode, don't they? They did, yes. But that was so grandly out of touch that it felt like, to me, it could only be done by someone who oh, didn't really ever watch wrestling, watch wrestling yeah. you know? Not without its, its merits in its own way, but I didn't feel that they were ever fans. Right. But, yeah, Russo leaving, um, this was one of many things. Like, um, I mentioned there, the Mankind Marriage Proposal. There was a lot of stuff at the time where it felt that Russo... He wasn't firing on all cylinders anymore. Like, one of the stipulations that they had was, you know, Vince McMahon has to leave forever because it's like, we've done Austin McMahon so much. And then, you know, two months later, he's back. And it didn't seem apparent that a lot of Russo's ideas going forward were in line with a lot of people, uh, like, at the top. Like, he wanted Jeff Jarrett, for instance, to be feuding with Stone Cold Steve Austin. Stone Cold Steve Austin didn't want that to happen at all. You know, there's a lot of people who Vince, what Russo wanted to push, who maybe Vince McMahon didn't want to push and whatnot. But it was viewed that his quality was dipping a bit and he was approached by WCW. And WCW, their ratings were doing quite poor. Not as bad as WWE's were when Vince Russo took over as the writer for them. As a matter of fact, they were still quite a bit better. And all of a sudden, he's presented with this. You've just had the highest rated episode of TV in wrestling history. You basically, you could view it as being peaked. You're making not much money compared to the amount of work that you're doing. He was making around three or 400000 a year, we reckon. Is that at that time? At that time. I mean, that's a shitload of money, though. That is, but for the amount of work that he was doing, and considering the amount of, you know, we've, we've learned that WWE ain't so great at sharing the fruits of, no, of you know, of, of the harvest, let's just say. He was grossly underpaid, considering that, you know, you've got a staff of 20 to 30 writers now who probably, between Make that them... each, yeah. Yeah, you know, he, he was well underpaid for what he was. WCW comes along and say, we're going to pay you $2.5 million a year. Wow. Four-year contract, I think, was what was on the table. Four years. How long was he with WWE? He was with WWE, well, since 92. Here's the thing. 1992, freelance writer, handshake agreement. Never signed a deal. The whole time he was head writer, editor of the magazine, head writer for Raw, SmackDown. Never had a contract. The whole time. What? Never had a contract. Vince never gave him a contract. Huh. What's... What's Paul Heyman's opinion on Vince Russo? He usually tells the company line in that. I think he's like, he said that he was, you know, actually, be honest. I've not heard him talk about him a whole lot. But when he's talked about him, he's not really talked about him in strong terms one way or the other. Because there seems to be a lot of overlap in some respects. Mm. And I, I, I do kind of mean that as a compliment in the ballsiness of mm. Vince Russo I see sometimes reflected in sort of similar behaviour that Paul Heyman did yeah. only the difference seeming to be that Paul Heyman has a very smart business head on his shoulders and yeah. he really understands how to get the world to work for him how could you be like who's more at fault and more comfortable because like we talked about this in the Edge podcast the lads couldn't believe like even if it was just to have just to have it in writing why would you not lock up this guy yeah. like because even if he's not as important as you say as he thinks he is himself 
he is still important mm. and he still is your writer. He's... I don't understand why he wouldn't want a contract, honestly. I don't know. If I was in his shoes, I had that much power and if was, I'm the one writing all those shows, yeah. I'd be like, look, here's a real situation. If I leave right now, you've got nothing. I Offer me the best contract you can and maybe I'll stay. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they would have created an environment where, you know, in WWE, would have created an environment where it would have been like, well, then fine, there's the door, pal. Wow. Because I think Vince McMahon ultimately viewed Vince Russo as being entirely expendable. You know, that that's the reality of it. And you know what? We'll talk about his WCW and all that, but once Russo left, you know, you had a couple of people take over. You had Ed Kosky, you had Stephanie McMahon chip in, Triple H did some creative stuff. Like Foley said in his book that a lot of the top people all just kind of pitched in together in the first few months and then they kind of formed a writing team with people like Chris Kresge and whatnot later on. They did some of the best writing of the Edge era came after Russo. Like their, their ratings didn't tank. They never got back up to that crazy high number where they peaked with, but they did much, much better, generally speaking, for a long, long time after Russo was gone. They did grand. They didn't, they didn't need him in that sense. You know, he'd already set the table for him. So he's offered all this money to go to WCW, and it's like, look, you'll get complete control. You write the show. You book the matches. You'll have a staff of writers. We'll give you all the support you need. Contract, big money. It's not... A mom and pop business like WWE, this is Turner Broadcasting Network behind you. You will get this money. And he signs, and he signs Ed Ferrer as well. And the really sad thing was is that WWE went over to the UK to do uh, one of their UK shows. And Russo literally is like, yeah, when you come back, I'm not going to be here. I'm going to be in the other company. Wow. Sorry. And Vince didn't make a counter offer or anything like that. It's just fine, you're gone. Something weird going on there. Yeah. Like... Russo mentioned that he approached Vince before he left, like literally he had a breakdown and he was like literally tears in his eyes. Like, I've, you know, my wife's going to leave me. You know, I haven't seen my fucking kids in all these years. And Vince is like, well, we'll get you a nanny. You know, and that's when Russo says he realized that he was not on the same level as Vince or they're not on the same page because Vince couldn't fathom that the family might be more important or you, you might be more important than this. Like it's, you, if you're with Vince in his inner circle, this is all that fucking matters. And if you don't like it, there's the door. I, I understand that to an extent. Not saying I agree with it, but I, having done the Vince episode, I, I see where he's thinking from there. Yeah. But also, to his own credit, he's not an idiot. Like, Vince McMahon understands that sometimes investment is necessary to improve a product. Mm. Like, how... I just I find it really struggle to believe that if you came to Vince McMahon and showed the numbers of like you know this is the highest rated episode of Raw this is how much you know viewing has increased since I've been hired to write mm. for the show this is how many hours of work I put in a week um, this is what contract. I would like <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe just hire a couple of guys to work with me you know you can even pay me a bit less or whatever I just I don't think he'd be so unreasonable he'd be like no fuck off would he really actually I think Vince McMahon didn't realise. Like the uniqueness of the situation almost. As far as he was concerned, Vince Russo was just kind of like a guy who was helping out still, I ultimately think. I think that he was coming up with ideas and that Vince was still, McMahon was still the man who was putting that show together ultimately because he was putting the final say and everything. And I don't think he ever viewed Russo as being in any way pivotal or necessary. If he even had the remotest sense of that, of course he would have given him a contract. But like, even if you don't see him as some kind of like groundbreaking mega talent, mm. he's doing a job. Yeah. Pe- like, why would you not want him to continue? If he's doing that job to a, set, a certain standard, mm. why would you not encourage that behavior to continue? Like, it's 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 illogical thinking to think that you can just keep turning up the stress on someone and mm. consider them to create the same high standard. Fucking high standard. What am I talking about? <laughs> 
But you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, same output. I mean, maybe it's simple as this, is that he looked and he sees WCW always, always gave a higher offer than WWE would. Like, everyone. That was their kind of their business model, basically. We lure them away with the big money. And then Vince is going to like, well, I can't compete with that, so, you know, there you go. Or, and often it would end up being a negotiation where Vince is like, well, I can't give you that, but maybe we can do this and maybe we'll work yeah, something out. exactly. But I think when it went, when the the figure was so high that WCW were offering that I don't think McMahon was even going to entertain a counteroffer. And I think also as well, Vince is one of those, I'll never forget. Mm. You know, I may, I may, seem to forgive for the purposes of business but he'll never forget and I don't think Vince McMahon will ever and that's that's saying he'll never get over because that makes it seem like he's really dwelled on a lot but I don't think that Russo ever went back in Vince's estimation at all if he did something like hey I'm leaving and I'm actually already left and we've already signed our contracts that's what he did Mm. he didn't even allow there to be a negotiation so you know. maybe that's partly why he wouldn't because I can imagine Vince being the type of person that wouldn't respect you at all if you just take an offer that's yeah. like you negotiate that's not, that's not loyalty yeah the idea being you'd come to Vince first if you're unhappy and you come to Vince and say that you want a contract and then if you get given another offer then you can start talking about it that's yeah old school way of negotiating a and contract that's totally how he does business Vince McMahon and I yeah. just don't see Vince Russo putting that side of him across... I don't know. I don't know if this is really unfair to say, but he just doesn't seem to be a very professional person in that way. I think that there was a lot more emotion at play Mm. than people would maybe assume, thinking that this is just business people talking about business decisions. And you know what? I think, like, honestly, Vince McMahon, like probably took something from Vince Russo that he could never get back yeah. in terms of like he was never the same I would imagine after having to do that job the stress I could never imagine yeah. what he went through and you gotta think that a lot of it maybe was like well you gotta think a big part of it is like well fuck you Vince McMahon mm. I'm taking this money and I'm gonna go make this other show more successful and that'll fucking teach you to appreciate your writing staff and it's that's so just sad what, yeah that's just feeding to Vince McMahon then because he loves competition he does he loves it and it's like if he will take great joy in crushing you this wouldn't have happened if there had been any precedent for writers or yeah. head writer before him it's only because this happened that Vince McMahon probably then formulated his writing structure to be the way it was where no one person could get credit because you never heard Russo's name in the late 90s until he left and then it's all over the dirt sheets and Meltzer and everyone is saying Vince McMahon's you know best kept secret the head writer he's signed to the other company and everyone WCW thought they'd gotten a steal because no one knew about this but the reason why Vince's show has been so good is because this guy Russo has been writing this killer TV right and they weren't the people who were signing those paychecks weren't necessarily wrestling people. They're executives at a media conglomerate who look and they see numbers, yeah, numbers like you know that you would have said, and that's the decision they made. And Russo came in with a lot of power and a lot of authority, and within a few weeks he was gone again because it didn't work. A few weeks. Yeah, so his I thought he signed a contract for four years. He did. He signed a contract for a number of years. But what happened with Russo was that he came in. He had a short run for a few weeks where he was on he was running things. Then he was told, Okay, we don't like how you're doing things. You're gonna book as part of a committee and everyone will all pitch in together and you'll be the head writer and he said, No, absolutely not. I need complete control. I can't work on a committee. The committee which included Husker Du's Bob Mould, which is hilarious. Uh, don't know who that is. Oh, just a guy from an alternative band that I like, who oh. uh, Vince Russo now hates because he had to work on a committee with him. So he says, fuck it, I'm leaving, goodbye. And then WCW goes through several more 
internal changes and then they reach out and they say right Vince Russo you can come back you and Eric Bischoff who had also been excommunicated was being brought back you will now work together to make WCW work and then he was gone six months after that and Eric Bischoff came from where? Bischoff was WCW pretty much I mean he came from another company called AWA but primarily WCW is where he kind of grew so he was what one of the previous writers for WCW he was the executive vice president of WCW oh so basically like the equivalent of Vince that had been appointed by a higher up kind of committee of executives in the Turner he was the guy in charge of the wrestling branch essentially but it didn't really like Russo didn't you know I'm going to say the word again he didn't have the filter and a lot of his ideas in WCW, when it came on to seeing the changes in TV, and WCW was a show that was known for wrestling. It was where the, the better wrestling was on. You know, when we were lumbering through that episode of Raw, if we switched over to Nitro on that same night, we would have seen Rey Mysterio, Chris Jericho, Eddie Guerrero, high-flying action. You know, that's the main style of it. And then Russo comes in and is like, no, everyone needs characters, storylines... You know, backstage segments weren't really a thing in WCW until Russo came along and he tried to make it like WWF, which didn't work because WCW was a different audience. Yeah, different brand, it's different everything. New York is WWF. Southern America, that was WCW. That was wrestling. You know, that horrible word Vince didn't like. That was WCW. So you say he had no filter. Would Eric Bischoff not have been considered a filter? Well, what Russo said Bischoff's role was instead of a filter, like Vince who would say hey, how about this? Or, oh, that's a good idea, but how about this? Bischoff, and this is Russo's words, and they don't like each other at all. Bischoff, in Russo's words, was the post-filter. So after you'd done something, why did you do that? Why didn't you do this? How come you didn't do that instead? Okay. So it was kind of like, he was only there to pitch in and tell you what you should do. After you would Retroactively. And it didn't work out very well. <laughs> wow, what a surprise. A lot of Russo's ideas, which we said were kind of reined in and only alluded to, were... Full front and centre. We were going to watch a whole episode of Russo Nitro. I thought after you struggled with Russo Raw that we would limit it to a few clips. The big thing that he did was not only did he break that fourth wall, he fucking shattered it. He wanted you to question what was real. Is wrestling... We all know wrestling's fake, but this isn't fake. What's happening here? And this takes us to one of the oddest matches I think I've ever watched for any podcast... The match which preceded a backstage segment where Buff Bagwell was shown backstage going, Can you believe the finish tonight? I'm going to put this guy over? I'm no jobber, bro. It's Buff Bagwell taking on La Parca from WCW Nitro, the 18th of October, 1999. How would you describe this match, Joe? Confusing. What's different about this than normal wrestling? What are they doing differently here? Well, it's hard to say because I hadn't seen either of these people wrestle before. And I feel that from what I was hearing on the commentary, it sounds like I would have needed to have at least seen a Buff Bagwell match generally to really understand. You don't need to see no Buff Bagwell match. (laughs) Because he came in and he started doing a couple of moves and it seemed kind of like normal, boring wrestling, like a bit shit, Mm. like a couple of Irish whips and stuff. And then on commentary, they're like, Buff's not wrestling properly. They start talking about this. Like he's not. He's not doing it right. Or yeah, something. like he, he was shrugging and rolling his eyes, and he he like tell a guy to come over and put a headlock on him, and he's like, oh, and he wasn't selling anything. Yeah, I guess. It, uh, 
The idea was is that like, I don't know I don't know what he's like as a wrestler, so I just thought he was shit. Like I thought it was supposed to be selling and he just wasn't. <laughs> just like he was like, that's so funny, like, the standard of wrestling is so bad at the time, like for, yeah. for you watching now that could conceivably that oh this is just bad wrestling. Honestly, and even now I thought this was better than most of the other This is definitely the better than any match we saw in the highest rated episode of Monday Night Raw. Oh man, it was no big boss man versus chess night stick on a pole match. What are you talking about? Seven hot minutes there, like but yeah, Buff Bagwell, he's like sad and the announcers are really confused as he like literally says to like, he'll go to the park and go, go and hit me now. And the idea of this match, Joe, is that at the time there were rumours on the internet, the internet wrestling community, that Buff Bagwell was in line for a push because management and Vince Russo liked the look of this kid, Buff Bagwell. And so Russo thought the real way to get to the marks, bro, was to book an angle where Buff Bagwell was being told that he had to become a jobber and job out and that he was pissed off about his position in the company. Russo was convinced at this time, and I think still is to an extent, that the best way to make a show unpredictable is to take the rumours and the stuff that's been talked about by the internet marks and turn it on its head and fuck with them. Which I I think is, is an interesting concept, and I think that could be done really well although it seems odd that he's doing this back in 1999 like before broadband yeah like so not many people would have had access to the internet back then no. let alone most people who were watching wrestling at the time which would be like kind of teens and kids I couldn't imagine the discourse was too hot on AOL Time Warner chat back in the days the, the message boards like because uh... like it seems like that's such an innovative modern idea that is kind of used today but to do it back then when only a f- small fraction, like what, 1% of the people watching yeah. would even be involved in those circles? Like, I didn't have internet that I could access, like, even dial up regularly until, like, the year 2001, probably. Like, at home. I had it in school, like, yeah. in the year 2000, 2001 is when I had internet at home. I imagine it could be different in America, but it's it's safe to say the majority of people who are tuning in watching your show aren't online. Mm. And if they are, they're probably not reading the observer no and that's the thing is like at this time the reason why wrestling was so successful at this time like in this boom period of the attitude era and the, the late 90s and whatnot is because non-wrestling fans were watching wrestling mm. the people who were filling out those numbers and filling out the stands weren't reading the observer or all the dirt sheets or whatever because they were just casual folks who happened to like this wrestling thing that was on because it was a hoot they weren't ultra fans and yet you're tailoring your show to only be gratifying like it's going to be off-putting for normal people and it's not going to be gratifying as like hey I read that thing about Buff Bagwell this is very gratifying no, it's going to piss them off yeah it's like how dare they this goes against what I read in my Observer subscription like no one wins yeah that's the thing it's like either condescending to your core audience or it's alienating to the audience that you're trying to reach yeah it, it, it serves no one and this like you're not Deadpool mate like when you're yeah. breaking the fourth wall in this it's not fun for anyone but it could be done so well. Wrestling is such a weird unknown. Like the fact that so much of it you don't know is real or fake. Yeah. Like, even today, so much of the story is told on like social media, mm-hmm. and so many of the rumors, like with John Cena and Nikki Bella, right now That's we don't total, know yeah. how much of their relationship is real and how much isn't real. Which you know now looking back, I realize is actually quite heavily influenced by Vince Russo's writing. Yes, yeah, types you know taking real life situations yeah. and playing around with it, and what are we doing it for to get? I mean, it was TV ratings back then. I think it's it's social media followers and to be trending and to be talked about. That's what it is now. It's like yeah. an influence in that weird way. But 
like the match ends when Bagwell like literally goes hit me and he kicks him and he goes he just lays down and he gets pinned one two three and then he goes in the headset and he goes well Russo did I do a good job who are you gonna have beat me next then huh now for me there's no way in a wrestling show that you can have a wrestler like address the writer of the show the address thing. that is it, it's predetermined to that level there are so many ways you could make this work and none of them involve having a writer in mentioned at any point like it works with vince mcmahon because he's the owner of the company yeah of yeah he has power and he can make you do things you don't yeah. want to do and it makes sense for a booker to be able to do that because they determine the outcome of the match. They're not putting words in anyone's mouths. They're yeah. not deciding what the story is. But even in kayfabe, a booker could be like, well, he's writing who's going to face who. That, yeah, that works in kayfabe. That makes sense. But a writer, a writer... How do you explain a writer in you kayfabe? Can't. You literally cannot. So, like, I'm worried about this now because I feel that, like, like with the titles and stuff like that, I'm very precious about... Mm. You know, how do we, oh, I've got to talk about people being offended about wrestling being called fake. But we all know it's fake. But, you know, that's fine. I'm totally okay with wrestling being fake. And uh, that's why I watch it. That's, that's if it weren't yeah. fake, I wouldn't watch it. Simple <laughs> um, as that. It would be very upsetting to watch if it wasn't fake. I, yeah, I, have you heard I've, the fucking ate a dog? <laughs> I don't want that to be real. And I have no desire. I, I have desire for reality. And I have desire for, for real emotions. And desire for it to be taken seriously. But I have no desire for it to actually be real. If guys are going to hit each other harder in a match, that doesn't make it better. In no. My I would just watch UFC if I wanted that. But I... Personally, for me, I, I get really like, I don't think you can say wrestling is fake in any way, shape or form or make it that it's predetermined or scripted on TV without it being cringe. And I think the reason of that is because Vince Russo tarnishing the idea that this using the the line between reality and kayfabe, blurring that in a way that you have control of, I think he's, yeah, he's he's tarnished that idea. Because so you I think, think it could have worked? Oh, absolutely, I think it could have worked. Without the writer. You? you cannot have it as a writer. That doesn't mm. make sense. You've got to have it as someone with an element of actual control, like an owner or a booker. Mm. But you couldn't have Vince McMahon coming out saying, like, you're not going to beat him tonight because I made the decision, so he has to beat you. I think or you like, could have that. Could you have Vince McMahon come out and say, like, you know, it's not in the script tonight or something. No, you, know, you can't mention scripts. Mm, that's the thing. Because fine soon, line there. <laughs> there is, it's a fine line and that's what wrestling is. It's all about identifying where exactly that fine line goes and how much of that line is... Like, the only reason wrestling even works is because so much of that line is blurred and we don't know how much of it is real and how much of it isn't. That's part of the reason wrestling's so exciting is mm. that that exact middle point between reality and storyline. Yeah. Which is why it doesn't work if you go mentioning storylines. Clanging them over the head with it here. Yeah. Like, you know, you have announcers saying like, we're going off script here, folks. You know, what? or my favourite one, Billy, is, like, is his favourite line ever on commentary was a WCW pay-per-view where they, where they literally went, whoa, what do you think of that storyline development? You know, I don't think... I hate that. No, you can't have that. Mm. How I would have done it, and let me use Stone Cold versus Vince as a simplified example. Yeah. But, like, say you have Vince saying, right, Stone Cold, you're going to go out there tonight and you're going to lose. And you're going to lose to Hulk Hogan or someone, someone he hates. And you've got Stone Cold being like, fuck this asshole, I'm not going to do it. And so then he tries to, like, mess up the outcome of the match right. by refusing to be pinned. And he keeps, like, kicking out of the pin or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. Vince, backstage, getting flustered and angry, obviously still has an element of control. You can't just have Steve Austin let him do his own thing because that makes no sense because you've got to have the character there to rein them in. Mm. He then sends out something else 
to give the opponent the upper hand or something to take away Steve Austin's element of right, yeah, being able yeah. to control the outcome. And then you've got this kind of like battle of who's in control. You still don't know what's real and what's not because you're doing it in a way that doesn't imply that the character is being told to do things off script. Yeah, it's yeah. that the character himself is evolving or whatever. And you're kind of like Steve Austin pick up the script and go, eh, eh, I ain't doing this. Like, <laughs> which probably would happened in real life quite a lot, I imagine. Yeah. So yeah, it's like, and this this whole thing like is, is capped off with like a buff bagwell at the end of the match is all like surly and sitting there. And then Jeff Jarrett appears and starts talking about having stroke and how he's left the WWF. And again, that's a character who Russo booked in WCW entirely to talk almost exclusively about stroke, which was backstage influence and who's friends with the bookers and the riders. And he's got stroke because Russo's his friend and Russo wants him to be champion, so he'll be champion. And they more often than not cross that line. No, there's no subtlety about it. No. Like they did a match where it's Goldberg, Steiner, and Kevin Nash. And it's like, Goldberg's going off script. He refused to do the finish. And then Scott Steiner's like, come on, brother, pin me. And like, oh, what a great guy Scott is letting Nash do the finish. And that's the thing you definitely can't do it when you've got other wrestlers with any element of creative control. Because mm. like the stuff with Goldberg, for example, that... My take on that would have been I'd have had Goldberg booked in to do a match where he has to wrestle more than five moves and it has to be a, <laughs> has to be a long match. And me as the booker, the heel booker, I'm like, right, Goldberg, let's see how good you really are then. Well, yeah. Let's put you in a match that's half an hour long. And then you've got Goldberg struggling to come up with more than five moves. Yeah, that would be interesting. That, and that's, again, it's blurring <laughs> the line between reality and kayfabe because you don't know how many moves Goldberg as a person knows, mm. but also you don't know how many moves Goldberg as a wrestler character knows. Because, like... This is the point now when Russo Russo leaves, you know, after that ninety-nine run, he comes back then a little bit later, and the first thing he does is he completely resets everything on the show. He takes all the belts off everyone, he draws a line right there in the middle of the show and he says, One side is the new blood, all the young talent, the young guys who've been held down, and the other side is the millionaires club where you've got like Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan and you know Sting, Luger, DDP, all the basically the big names. And the idea was it meant to be a struggle between the two sides, but before you know it, Russo is then himself a character on TV. Uh, and we saw, you know, I, I I was tempted to watch loads of Russo matches where he's in it. We saw him in War Games 2000, obviously, which was a bit of a, a strange one. But we watched a lot of segments with Russo doing a lot of talking in the ring. And Russo and Goldberg, we watched some of those segments where Russo's out there saying, you know, Bill Goldberg... The only reason anyone out here thinks that you're any sort of a badass is because you've been written to be a badass. You actually think that you're this tough guy. See, now, that's true, but you can't say it, okay? It doesn't work if you say it. Everyone knows it. You don't need to say it. Him as, like, as a character on screen, as a performer, like, on the mic, all that, what, what was your take on him? Because, for me, I saw a lot of these segments and I was like, geez, this reminds me so much of, like, Vince McMahon it's like the, he would write a lot of the Vince stuff and he's doing that yeah. like, I'm, I'm running the show you know I'm the guy I don't care what these assholes in the arena say he's you know he's being McMahon isn't he but- he's definitely trying to be Vince McMahon absolutely even down to his walk you see him walk his way to the yeah. ring and he's doing the exact trying to be the cool Vince McMahon character but he's not quite pulling it off but he's saying yo bro I'm, I'm just you think I'm this brash New Yorker who's full of himself it's just a character a gimmick bro for the show that's all it is but there's a little bit of 
what's the word? There's a lovely phrase for it. It's like a self-insert mm. author. Is that what it is? Yeah. Where it's kind of like, you've written yourself to be a bit of a cool dude there. Like, yeah, because you know. he wrote the character. I think he probably is quite heavily involved with the character of Vince McMahon, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah Mr. Yeah. McMahon, I should say. So I think as he was writing this and seeing how well Vince pulls off the character, as often happens when a character is written based on a real-life person and then exaggerated, yeah. that that's the reason that works, is because Vince McMahon genuinely is like his character. You can't then just be like, oh, that character's cool. God, I, I could be cool. I could I could be cool, couldn't I? I'll be the exact same character as someone else, and I'll just copy them. I just... It's not that I don't believe he's not trying, because he, he fucking... He, he works himself up in some of these promos. Like, he's... He, he, the amount of swearing, like, mm. and this is rich coming from me, I, I realise. But, like, in a five-minute promo, he's he calls the crowd assholes, asswipes, dickwads, dickheads, mm. loads of stuff that gets beeped out. It just... I don't say I don't buy it, because he is trying fucking hard, but it's just, I don't, I think he could have been much better suited as a much different character, I, if he had to be a character Yeah, I, I get the opinion he's got an amalgamation of characters that he really liked and enjoyed writing, mm. and he's tried to put them all on him, because, you know, when you write for yourself, you can see yourself as a very multifaceted person, and mm. you can identify very easily with multiple characters. Yeah. I think it's a bit too easy then, if you're kind of designing your character to be you, you're like, well, I identify with that aspect, and that aspect, and that characteristic, yeah. and that one, and that one as well. And you think, because you as a normal human being can identify with all those things, that means they should all be part of your character. Yes. When it shouldn't, you should be thinking much simpler. Yeah. And thinking, right, these are the three elements of which I can identify with strongest. Let's stick to those. It's a real, like, what you've described there is the thought process of every, like, teenager when they were making themselves on a wrestling game as a kid. <laughs> yeah. Like, literally, I remember as a kid, I used to get so pissed off. It's like, my cousin's got, like, you know, his finisher is, like, the the F5, and he does the press slam and the shooting star press. <laughs> it's like, why? It's like, well, I'm kind of like a powerhouse, but I'm a high flyer. I'm kind of a fan favorite, but also I'm going to kick you in the balls because I'm the man. Like, you know, it's just, <laughs> there's no one to rein them in, yeah. you know? And I kind of feel that, like, Russo, he would say that he played this cowardly, brash, asshole New Yorker. And, you know, rightly so, in the same way that Paul Heyman, when he was at WCW, he's like, there's nothing they hate more in the South more than a brash New Yorker telling you how to think, how to act, and what's what's cool and what's not. And I get that. But, like, look at the stats. Vince Russo was a former world heavyweight champion in WCW. He beat Rick. You know, we're going to talk about a match, but he's undefeated. He has pinfall wins over Rick. But he's Flair. undefeated. Yeah, he never was beaten. He beat. Are Booker you Tick. serious? He was never beaten. Yeah, he won Russo's Revenge War Games. He beat Rick Flair. He beat Booker T. Yeah, these are you know he, he's undefeated. Oh, and he retired. He he get, when once he won the world title as well, he gave it up. Then he said, "I'm you know I've nothing to prove. I'm going to retire undefeated." I uh, have a question. Yeah. Did it ever get mentioned by him? In wrestling, yeah. as a heel promo or something, the fact that he is the writer and he keeps making himself win. No, I don't think he was. That's fucking was... shit, and no, that's lazy, and that's the one goddamn. Mm. Why would you even bother making yourself a character that's a writer and then have yourself win all the time as a heel if you're not even going to use that for fucking? 
promo They content. just called themselves, they were like, they were the powers that be, he ran the show. And, and again, yeah, it stopped. Like at the start, it was like, oh, so he's, he's the writer. With, with talking about a writer when he's putting everyone else down, but he'll yeah. never fucking accept that he used it to get himself <laughs> over. And you know what? People will look at, uh, you know, see Dusty Rhodes and Ric Flair, we mentioned them as bookers. And one of the big criticisms of them when they were bookers was because they were also active wrestlers at the time. It was like, well, look, Dusty Rhodes, he's the booker and he's, you know, booked himself to win the big match or to never lose, really, or to win the match but have it taken away on an unfair thing where you sympathise yeah, with them. But they're bookers, not writers. But and they're wrestlers, not writers. And why why did we go but why did we go with writers in the first place? Is that to get away from that old mentality of the booking and we're right back like in wrestling, that live fucking crowd, that rush, the fucking it's play fighting where you get reactions and it feels fucking real and he's fucking in there wrestling all these big fucking names having Scott Steiner and Kevin Nash hold him up on his shoulders. Not, I would have done the same fucking thing. You know? Look at, you know, what culture pro wrestling when they started... All their guys were all in fucking cool gimmicks with, you know, cool factions and all no, this that. This is just evidence that men can't be trusted. And honestly, we can't. Just fucking rein yourselves in, okay? Control your damn egos. In a wrestling show, if you're a wrestling fan and you are surrounded by all the cool wrestlers and you get to write a show, well, guess what? Everyone's a fucking cool heel manager then, That's you know? That's so boring. And That's it's, so lazy. It's honestly one of the things that... You know, I flirted with the idea of maybe getting involved in some sort of capacity of wrestling. I had some wrestler friends way back in like 2007 or 8. And there was a big part of me that was kind of like, you know what, there's every fucking Tom, Dick and Harry like me who wants to do wrestling and just get in and not take bumps and talk and be the cool heel manager. It's yeah. like, it, we don't, you don't need me. You know, wrestling, wrestling needs fucking actual wrestlers who can entertain. There's enough people who can fucking be the cool heel manager and usually it's people involved who want to write the fucking show about themselves. Ugh. You know, it's just... People, honestly, I think people like that should be kept as far away from any element of creative control in wrestling as possible. Because guess what? We're all not Paul Heyman. And when Paul Heyman could write the show, the first thing he did was take himself out of it. Yeah. So, like, you know... Star rating for Buff Bagwell versus La Parka. Uh, yeah, I gave it three stars. What?! How yeah. come? Why three stars? Uh, it was it was short. <laughs> I liked that. Also, I liked the fact that it was a bit bit meta. Didn't make sense to me, but I appreciated the meta factor. Mm. Like, would you say that that makes you want to see more meta, or is that? I enough? would like to see more meta, but I'd like to see it done properly, please. I'd like to see it done. Honestly, the only time I think I've ever seen it really done really well is in Lucha Underground. Yeah, and that's because they're kind of they plan it season by season they have a full writing team and they they plan the full storyline and there's people there to say no you can't do this actually and make yourself look really cool <laughs> i think wrestling has moved on from the need for that type of storyline now because i think if you look at the money they're making from their advertising and the money they're making worldwide now from the network and all that they realize like what you know you can have some storylines, some big moments, some big crazy spots. Absolutely. I mean, what got most eyes on the product recently was having Braun Strowman do crazy stuff. That was that's proper Russo era stuff. Him, you know, tipping over ambulances and stuff great. like that. I like that's great, but that once a year, and then buffered with generally good wrestling and good main events and whatnot, like a, a higher standard of wrestling. I would argue that I would like it more than once a year. I think mm. once a year is too little. I would go once a month. But I think they've convinced themselves now they don't need to do this kind of wacky writing. They can get away with just having kind of, you know, general storylines mm. and then the matches is what's more important for them and the pay-per-views because that keeps the core fan base happy and all we care about is our week-to-week kind of clips and highlights. Mm. And I think that there could be a middle ground there. I yeah. think people have been scared off by Russo's 
uh, being ahead of his time, I guess, is what it is, you know? In some ways, in and then also ways. having no goddamn taste. <laughs> I mean, I could say, though, you couldn't do this now because the internet community is... It's, it's the opposite now. Not that it's a few people, it's that there's too many people and there's no way you could play off of that in a way that is satisfying to the majority of the audience, I don't think. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily tie in the whole internet community thing because I just think that concept doesn't really... I, I just don't think it works if you're trying to reach a new audience. Mm. I don't think it makes any sense to then no. just target this 1% of your fan base. But just the breaking the fourth wall and having wrestlers break character almost to kind of put over the fact that they aren't happy, I think that can be done well. Mm. I think those are still always going to be the standout moments when, you know, people... You know, the the most talked about moments recently in the wrestling history have usually involved whether or not someone thinks something is real or not. Yes. You know, Brock Lesnar and Randy Orton, that's one of the most you know talked about things I could think of in recent memory. Mm-hmm. And that all stemmed from, oh, is it a shoot or is it a work? And that's, mm-hmm. that's a Russo thing right there is what it is. It's something that Russo really thinks strongly is that anyone can be involved in an angle. But he says that and then, and then, and then... He immediately contradicts himself because then you see him in shoot interview saying, "Oh, I don't like Jack Gallagher because I know I could beat him up. I can't watch wrestling and enjoy it if I know I can just beat up the dude in front of me." On that point, having watched a lot of Russo shoots recently, have you noticed a little bit of a trend for people he considers that he could beat up and people who he thinks aren't real wrestlers? They generally tend to be people he's just not worked with. There also tend to be people who are very over with the current audience and very hot. Not hot as in attractive, I mean like hot as in like hot with the crowd. Yeah, I mean, but like I find it so strange where he sits there and he'll rag on a guy like Finn Balor or Seth Rollins and kind of, oh, they're these flippy guys, no character, no one cares about <laughs> No him. character! And then Seth Rollins! Seth fucking Rollins, of all people, who's like got arcs for days, boys. Like, I mean, but... Then he'll turn, he'll go, they're not a real, like, someone like Jeff Jarrett or DDP or Mr. Perfect, Kurt Hennig. Those are all guys around the same height. The only difference is you worked with those guys and you Mm -hmm. probably respect them on a deeper level because you know them and you've seen it firsthand. Grew up with them. Nostalgia. But sitting in Colorado, blazing at 420 style with your big old doinks on fucking webcam, maybe it's a little bit hazier. I don't know. It just feels like he can't give credit for... For these guys being like, oh, like, oh, I can beat these guys up. Because he certainly can't beat up Ric Flair here. He doesn't look like he can beat up much of anything in this match. Honestly, with all the shoot interviews that we've had to watch, <laughs> I am now of the opinion that I don't think Vince Russo actually believes a lot of what he says. I think he, much like Jeremy Clarkson... Or Katie fucking... Or Katie Hopkins. Katie Hopkins. Although maybe to slightly less, I kind of do feel that she believes that. I feel mm. like she's just been given a platform to finally talk about it. But I feel like... There's a lot of people who have unpopular opinions almost to a deadline. Mm. It's very convenient that they will come out with these very spicy takes, like around the same time of their book launch, or around the same time as their column is released in the Mail on Sunday. It's not every podcast where you're going to hear about noted feminist and generally not nice person Jermaine Greer compared to Vince Russo. Mm. But uh, yeah, when she's got a book coming out, all of a sudden she's talking about how rape's not really rape, and Beyonce is a bad role model, and... You know, when it's maybe coming up for that subscription time of the month on Russo's network, all of a sudden he's got a big long hot take about how liking Finn Balor is gay and why if you don't like bra and panties matches, you're gay. And Yeah. And <sighs> while I completely think that, you know, regardless of whether or not he actually believes this, you know, which he probably does, but I just... It's obviously awful. Some of the stuff he says is so hateful and is. nasty. Like, there's a horrible quote I've got here of him talking about Finn Balor. 
He says, so I've come to the conclusion, if you're part of the NXT crowd, the people who are in Orlando, the this is awesome crowd, you fall into three categories. It's this simple, bro. You're either A, homosexual. Okay, you like men. For you to react this way, you have to like men. B. You can, you can be homosexual and like women, just <laughs> if you're a woman. Yeah. B. You're either no homosexual but have homosexual tendencies, or C. You're in the closet. It's that simple, bro, because men do not react to other men that way. It's not a normal function. Which, I mean, you know, I'm all for talking about normal, you know, normal functions, right? Yeah, right. We all love normal functions. But this is a guy who's, like, a bit too into wrestling all the top stars and then winning. Yeah, a I'm not bit. sure that's normal function. Anyway, <laughs> he, he goes on to say, Bro, I had someone tweet me after I made a tweet that Finn Balor has to hit the gym. Bro, I literally had a guy send me a picture of Finn Balor with his shirt off. Bro, you are probably a homosexual. If you are searching the internet for pictures of Finn Balor without his shirt on... You are probably gay. Wow, that's a spicy take there. Has he seen wrestling? All the guys have their tops off all the time. I'm Rest- sorry, you cannot look at wrestling, apparently, according to Vince Russo, without being gay. Well, God, Russo, let's just get out of the bag and call a spade a spade. Wrestling's the gayest thing there is. Yeah. It's like, that's fine. It's grand, you know? We lo- that's why we love it. Guess what? Bake Off's gay too. All, yeah. <laughs> all good things in 2018 are gay and as a very heterosexual man I can tell you that, that I'm fine with that you can be fine with that yeah. too it, there's nothing wrong with this you enjoyed watching Finn Balor rub baby all over his abs even though you're not gay it's fine it's grand we He's can gonna... all admire some great abs of course we can all you know you're going to go into an art gallery and admire the art like come on like yeah. man's cut up like a brick shithouse that's fucking it's so flimsy it's so like that's a 60 year old man with yeah. his hot take there that's so fucking like it's it's appealing to a very, very small crowd of Arrested Development 30-year-olds and maybe some angry teens and whatnot. But it's like, that's... Time's going to run past you, man. You it know? will, but for the meantime, that makes money. Like, the unfortunately, the times we live in is that people with hateful opinions can earn quite a good salary by yeah. talking to this, like small hateful audience like i i just think so much of what he says is just to rile people it up is. and get them talking about him because it's free advertising it is and that's the only way he's managed to keep himself in the headlines is like just by being very baity and very confrontational and aggressive and you know four years ago when i thought that maybe we'd do a little something on the out share podcast or whatever i was really excited because he had left tna and he left a lot of the bad stuff behind him and i was hoping that Hey, he's you know he appeared on you know, New Legacy Inc. did a great like uh, video with him where he did uh, the wrestling booking show and all that and I thought oh this is gonna be good like he's gonna open himself up not take himself so fucking seriously not be so fucking defensive and the opposite has happened because I think that the way he reacts to criticism and the way that he's reacted to wrestling changing it's like him and Jim Cornette I think are are two sides of the same coin in that way mm. they've kind of insulated themselves they've built the walls up high and no one's allowed into their secret club except very very few people and it's sad because yeah i'm sure it pays the bills and it's spicy takes but i think he's reduced himself to a caricature he has and unfortunately it means that you know in the future as as times move on and those opinions become less and less socially acceptable he's I think he's really going to regret it i think he will because i think what he's doing at the moment is doing a very good job at making his his name is Brandy Toxic. Mm. If you have the biggest you know, wrestling event of the independent scene of all time coming up all in, and you've got Cody Rhodes sit down and very calmly and not in like, a, let me tell you something, brother. It's just like, a, look, 
There are a lot of gay wrestling fans. Mm-hmm. We are inclusive. If you're not a heel, it's not for it's not for a pop. It's not get someone over. It's just hateful. It has no place in wrestling. Not to mention his fucking attitude towards women, because like the shoe interviews he's done lately, he literally talks about how he thinks that women are not born to be leaders. Yeah. That like on a genetic level, women are. He he wouldn't use the word inferior. He thinks they're superior, he's so different. superior that they should live yeah. in the kitchen and cook for men and just be lovers. You know, he he's a born again Christian. Some of the very hateful stuff seems not very Christian at times, but no. he's got a very biblical view of the world in his in his own estimation. But like, it's one of the reasons why probably a lot of our listeners are not going to listen to this episode because, and I totally respect that his opinions on women are absolutely reprehensible. They're mm. grotesque. Not needless to say, his opinions on on you know, I don't say say I'm going to assume his opinions about gay people, but the fact that if you are in a mindset where being gay is this thing to be mocked and pointed mm. out. Like, honestly, I got, you know, I got over that when I was 14. Yeah. <laughs> Just so retrograde and hateful. And the thing that pisses me off most of all is the inconsistency with which he holds these hateful opinions because mm. he just, he decides when and where he's going to hold these opinions because like, on the one hand he's like, oh bro, I believe women are naturally more loving and should be, you know, baby makers and should be wives and carers rather than, you know, men who should fight. And then he makes women's wrestling entirely a sexual-based activity and objectifies mm. them massively. I'm sorry, that's not very Christian. No, it's not, and it's 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 great. It's greatly inconsistent. I think. I mean, the only thing consistent and the only thing you can count on is that he's not gonna have, like he 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 doesn't think that if you're a woman that you're equal. No, he that, literally doesn't. He has said that much. Yeah, and he thinks that if you are gay or anyway you know not a straight or whatever that that is an object of ridicule and that's something that has to be like hunted out and discussed in, in with great ferocity in capital letters and and i think that he has reduced himself to to very little i think the hypocrisy of a lot of what he says now maybe i'm reading into this far too much but i think it reflects a very conflicted inner self mm. like I don't think even he knows who who he is or what he stands for. Well, he, you know, he when he left, uh, he left WCW, you know, in two thousand one. When he was uh, two thousand two, he came out as a born again Christian. Said that all the stuff that he written for WWE and WCW was absolute smut. It was uh, unchristian, and he took the Lord's name in vain, and he treated women horribly, and he oh, wrote a, really wrote a book called Forgiven about him becoming a born again Christian and being saved by Jesus and started uh, Ring of Glory, which is a independent wrestling promotion that was to further Christian ideals and values. Oh. And, like, here he is now. Like, someone sent me, like, a three-tweet-long three, three tweet long thing where he's going on about how great bra and panties matches were. Like, what? Yeah, I know. Like, it's... You, See, that's the thing. It's you know, like, what is it like? Fucking hold yourself to at least a standard. Like, well... I, I think it's very important as a human being to know what you believe in and what you stand for. And to know that you can change over time and you don't yeah. have to... And you don't have to so militantly defend. Like, I get it. There's a lot of people who attack Russo's stuff. And a lot of people, like, they go to the Attitude podcast who will attack stuff that is, like, in, in modern eyes, has aged poorly and reflects poorly of the times. I understand that. And that can be quite frustrating to as a creator or whatever if, if you feel your stuff is being unfairly attacked. And Russo... 
unfairly gets paid for a load of shit that he didn't do all the time. And mm. that, that is true. But it's just sad because it feels like that he is so exhausting trying to defend himself in the same way that I think Jim Cornette has exhausted himself trying to offend other mm. wrestlers. It's like, it's worn him away. I feel like he's like a ghost now or something like that. Kind of... Like, it's not going to lead to a happy life, is it? If no. that's your entire job is to just be hateful online. Dude, you're 60. That's three years of your life. You know? And, Fucking hell. But I can't help but think <laughs> back to that two and a half hour long shoot interview he did after China died about how much he loved her. And the things he said that he loved about China was her compassion, her empathy, her work ethic, the way she treated other people. She was so loving and kind. That's not consistent with his other... Yeah, you know, it's... listen to yourself. To the point where I think with a lot of people like your Pierce Morgans and whatnot, when I think that, yeah, love is put on a lot of its controversial opinions to a deadline, as you said, but I do think much like in wrestling, where one person can convince themselves that they are this character and it's bled into them and it's kind of, it's overtaken them. And I think he thinks in his head when he's... Yeah, he's you know, kind of become the character, he's hasn't he? He's become the character. And it's really hard. If your character is based on you, but also on all these other characters that you've crafted together bit by bit and then you've got to keep that character because it's your brand all through your career because that's how you make your money Mm. but you've also become a born again Christian so you've got to kind of you know reject some of that past but also you have to kind of stand by what you believe in because that's the thing it must be fucking exhausting to be Vince Russo I'm sure he would admit that it's exhausting it has to be it's so cannot be good for his mental health no and I I honestly I like I worry like I honestly worry for I worry for him because like he's a guy when like I've we watched so many shoot interviews and there's shoot interviews from like 2008 where he's like bro I'm done with this. You know, I don't want to explain. This is the last time I'm going to talk about this. And, you know, I'm, I've come to peace about Bash at the Beach or I've come to peace about this, that, or the other. And then, like, here we are in 2018 and he's, like, fucking, you know, sweared and fucking, like, going to apoplectic in the fucking webcam screaming mm. about these fucking shitty angles and stuff from fucking years ago. And it's like, Jesus Christ, like, you'll never escape it. Like, no. I, I do, I feel bad for him because I feel that he gets a lot of shit and he's been unfairly maligned and people say that he's killed companies, which he really fucking hasn't. But he's so drawn to defending himself and tries to seek this absolute truth that will never be accepted by wrestling fans. you got to wash your hands and just accept... That because of when he came in and how he came in to public consciousness in 2000, the advent of the internet, a lot of things which are taken as, as God, gospel fact now are things that started as a silly rumour on a message board 18 years ago. Mm. I feel for you, Vince Russo. I really do. But you're not going to find peace. Not, not this way. way. No, no way. <laughs> you can castrate every mark on the planet, but it will not bring you any peace. And that thing, I think, is what we tried to get across with that artwork is that he's surrounded by this fucking bollocks mm. and you will not escape it trying to sit on that throne and claim that you've been this fucking great force of wrestling change and good. It is possible to let go, but mm. you have to let go. Entirely. Entirely. Mm. And really take a look at yourself and look at what you genuinely do believe in and what who you are as a person. Mm. Coming up next, nicely segueing into this one, a steel cage match. Between the 16-time world champion, the nature boy, Ric Flair, and his opponent, he's mean, he's nasty, he's New York's favourite son, the undefeated Vince Russo. This is an interesting one, a full one-on-one match between Vince Russo and an opponent, Ric Flair. Ric Flair wrote languidly in his book, 
about how fucking disgusted he was. A fucking Megadine writer? Are you fucking kidding me? He was incensed by this. I'm not surprised. I'm not at all surprised. Russo comes out, Joe, wearing his tough enough creator wrestler gear. For someone who's meant to be a really big bad heel, the crowd don't really react to him that much at all. No. Like, he comes out with all the pomp and circumstance of a guy in a t-shirt and some track pants mm. coming to the ring. Bro, I could beat him up. I don't want to watch the TV, like. <laughs> He's trying to do the Vince walk as well. Mm. Oh, um, what is Dangerous Minds? Is this the uh, the mashup album by Eric Bischoff and Vince Russo? Ah, uh, yes, it's the cover story from WCW Magazine where it showed a very sexy pic of Russo and Bischoff looking kind of sexy together. Mm. They're the Dangerous Minds uh, who are running WCW now, you see. Right. Dangerous Minds, coming to you soon to a record store near you. Uh, keep your eyes open for that one, folks. Ric Flair is accompanied by his family. And the storyline of this one, Joe, was that Vince Russo, evil that he was, the evil writer, wanted to get to Ric Flair by influencing his family and his children and turning them against him. Oh, okay. So, actually, we got to see some segments of Vince Russo being in Ric Flair's actual home in Charlotte, North Carolina. And we got to see a very young Ashley Flair a.k.a. Charlotte in some of these segments as well. She's like literally 14. Oh, I want to see. I know. I will pop up some uh, on the uh, recommended viewing so people can see it. But it's very weird seeing like a 14-year-old Charlotte stood next to Vince Russo in a Ric Flair robe talking about how shit her dad is. Wow. So he successfully managed to turn David Flair, Rick's son, against him. But Ric Flair is accompanied by his wife and his younger son, Reed, here tonight as well. So it's, uh, it's a bit weird because... They kind of tried to, you know, do real life storylines. It's like, your dad doesn't love you. He's away all the time. Yeah, it is quite hard watching this knowing that obviously Reed Flair, Rick's son, passed away and he's like mm. only like a little teen here. It's really fucking horrid. Oh, like. God. So I wanted to ask you in this match, seeing as you've watched a few of them now, who is the better worker of the two? Vince McMahon or Vince Russo? Which hmm. of the two do you think is better between those ring ropes? Oh, that's a tricky one because they're both so bad. <laughs> they're bad in their own unique ways, though. Yeah, because like Vince Russo, I feel he puts on quite of a show when he's selling. Yeah, and I wonder how much of that is him selling and how much of that is Ric Flair being like, you were the fucking wrestle? Yeah. Like, he covers them in bruises yeah, within he, a minute. He is absolutely covered in welts and stuff. It's gross. Yeah, it's tricky because like, I feel out of Vince Russo and Vince McMahon, I know for sure who actually likes wrestling. And I get the feeling that Vince Russo does not enjoy wrestling at Even all. though he's a wrestling fan, but do you yeah, mean but like, the actual wrestling? He likes the element of wrestling that's, you know, breaks the fourth wall. That's that relationship between the crowd and the wrestling itself. He likes the, everything before the, the bell character rings. segments, the storylines. Yeah, everything but the actual wrestling. Mm. Whereas I think Vince loves all of it. And I think because he grew up with his father being who he is, working with the territories and everything, he's got a respect of wrestling, even though he hasn't bothered to train or yeah. get any of his kids to train. I do feel he has more of a respect for the actual athletic side of wrestling than Vince Russo. I think Vince McMahon has less respect for his own well-being than Vince Russo does. Yes, Vince Russo, I very much get the feeling like there's a point in this match where he brings out a ladder and I was just terrified for everyone's safety. Whereas if Vince McMahon was going to bring out a ladder, I kind of be like, oh, well, you know, if anyone's going to get hurt, it's probably just Vince McMahon. Definitely will be Vince McMahon is the one who's going to get hurt in that scenario. I mean, like, Russo is funny because he's the one who kind of thinks, oh, any old, like, wrestler, anyone can wrestle. You can put any kind of character out there and put him in a wrestling match. It's fine. Like, people don't care. But, like, very basic things like him, like, constantly looking up at Rick and, like, 
him not even he's trying to punch Ric Flair and like mm-hmm. Ric's down for him and he's not even like, he literally hits his hand against his fist like to make punch noises it's, it's awkward I'd say mm. in a way that Vince McMahon's matches were never awkward yes. like Vince always had control over at least most of his body which is funny because at the time I remember thinking how Vince had absolutely no control over his body but compared to Vince Russo mm. Vince has quite a bit of control Vince the, with Russo there was a lot of him kind of sprawled on the floor grabbing at ankles kind of flopping around Around, lots squirming. Like, I have to ask you about this because I mean, everything you think about Russo, like to take into consideration. But like Ric Flair in this match, taking like he is taking liberties. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, that's an old school wrestling mentality. Is like you want to wrestle, all right, here we go. And before you know it, you know you're getting welts and blood blisters and bruises. What do you think of that? Like Ric Flair, like he is, you know taking him to town here right i think that's a horrible attitude to have and i think it's like a really toxic part of wrestling's culture which i'm happy has i think mostly gone now Mm. from this day and age of wrestling at least in the wwe god fucking hope anyway (laughs) but i just i can't blame him in this particular instance with vince russo of all people vince russo who's like oh i can't watch a match bro unless i think i can beat up the guy and then he's saying that and he's putting himself in matches where he wins all the fucking time i bet vince russo never able to watch his own matches is what he's saying (laughs) just like if you're putting yourself as a writer against in a match against rick flair and winning. Yeah, and also, like, Flair's bumping for him as yeah. well, and he's doing chops to him and all that. It's so Yeah, I gosh. don't... It's not, I'm not going to say that what Flair did was right, but I'm going to say, in terms of, like, Rince Russo, what the fuck were you expecting? That's it. Like, Come I, on. I, I don't think anyone... You're never with someone like Rick Flair ever. Like, Flair, Piper, there's that, that class of yeah. old school wrestler where it's like, you have to take them as that absolute entity but mm. Flair's never going to go oh maybe I shouldn't hurt the magazine he will he will and he'll probably do it extra hard but yeah. just to show you just to prove a point really I like Ric Flair is not a wrestler who I would have thought had many opportunities to hurt you but like he does like that little knee drop with the one where you're meant to be land nice and safe the other side of their head and the camera cuts and he knees him right in the fucking in, head in like the nose twice like Russo legitimately got concussed he got all sorts of injuries it's amazing, from this because like they do very little actual wrestling in this. The two things he does, he hits him right in the head once and then he lands him on the back of his head with the other move. Like So every bump he takes, he's, he's he doesn't know how to bump. No. Therefore, not everyone can wrestle because if you're getting a concussion, not yeah. everyone can wrestle. This is what would happen if I wrestled. Like. Yes, that's the thing. I kind of feel unless you've got that at least basic level of like, you know, Vince, I feel him and his family, although they're not wrestlers, they would at least gone to the effort to learn how to take a bump, how to fall, yeah. how to roll, how to strike. How to be safe. Yeah. How to be safe. That's all you can ask from those people. Like, and then they probably ignore all of it. It's fine, whatever. But at least they know. Yeah, Jesus. Well, what we have here is David Flair interfering in a very confusing moment where Ric Flair then puts Rince Russo in the figure four leg lock. Now, that is a legitimately sore move, the figure four leg lock. Your fucking leg will kill you if you get put in that, if you can figure out how to put someone in it. It's the only thing more hard than actually getting the move is trying to figure out how to do the move. (laughs) But yeah, Vince Russo is in the figure four leg lock for what feels like five minutes. Mm -hmm. And he's going like, ah, not tapping out because Vince Russo's made a stronger stuff than that, Joe. Never give up. Vince Russo and John Cena have that in common. (laughs) Never tap out. So, like, your reaction to this was absolutely priceless because I don't think you figured what was going to happen. How was I supposed to... Who who has ever watched this match and thought, oh, I know what will definitely happen. Ric Flair will put the writer of the show in a figure four leg lock and then three gallons of blood will fill the ring. (laughs) 
serious Noel's house party vibes going on here. I thought Mr. Blobby would come in and you know lay out flair then or something. It's so absurd. And the reason why Russo's in the figure four for so long is because they realize they're in the wrong position. So Russo is there in the figure four trying so hard to reach up like he's trying to grab a towel after sex in position and he just he can't make it and they try and wiggle over together at the same time and then oh my god what a mess what an absolute fucking mess it goes everywhere and they can't even call it blood it is the red of the new blood the group you see that's what it was that's why they did it joe because they're the new blood and they drop blood on people much like the brood the group of vampires who vince russo wrote into the show back in 1999 would drop blood on their opponents they said they would call it a bloodbath see the same kind of ideas pop up now and again yeah great great ideas well i know. can't blame them for recycling them so many times it is so what gory the the, what the fuck like there's what like the gallons fuck? of it and they're like swimming around and like they're literally like then after the blood falls from the referee's the, like <laughs> yeah you've got them all lying in the blood david flair's kind of like fiddling with some of the blood in the corner oh my god he's stroking vince's ankle vince vince is stroking rick flair they're all kind of squirming in the blood and holding each other it's a bit weirdly sexual and then david pins so vince russo technically wins this match joe he's undefeated right so, Joe, your star rating. No, no, no. I can't just go on to a star rating <laughs> from there. Right, I've got questions. Why? Okay, First okay. question is, why did three gallons of blood fall from the ceiling? So, in storyline, the new blood, the aforementioned group of young, up-and-coming evil wrestlers headed by Russo and Bischoff, wanted to psych out their opponents with a kind of like a like gang warfare, Joe. You know, you send a fucking strong message. It's the equivalent of, of writing a big tag on the CI and the Warriors, you know? So dropping that blood, letting you know you've been tagged with the red of the new blood. We're taking over. Ow! That, that was why they did that. So... It's supposed to be that Vince Russo coordinated the blood. Yeah, Russo, even though Russo was the one who it's got the one most who got of the, in blood. the blood. Yeah. It's kind of it's kind of like an area clear attack. It's like kind of right. We got the one last shot in us. Drop the blood, guys. It's like the guy in Streets of Rage who comes with the missile launcher in the cop car to help you out and clear off the area, you know? It's like a it's like a group buff bonus, you know? Who, who's blood? It's it's not blood, Joe. It's red viscous liquid. It is not blood. We've established this one thing I know from doing the Attitude podcast. If you drop a lot of red liquid on someone during the late 90s and early 90s, you are not allowed to call it blood. It is a red, viscous liquid. Another question. Yeah. Has Vince Russo ever done a match involving female wrestlers wrestling in blood? No. He has not. It's like literally one of the only viscous liquids I can think of that have not wrestled in over the years, but he has not done that, no. Because I think he's got a bit of a thing for people squirming around in fluids. Yeah, because it's funny. When they used to do the bloodbath with the the brood, the vampires, it always happened outside the ring. Because Vince is like, you're not ruining the good clean floor. Like, you know, do it on the mats, you know. It would always happen outside the ring or very rarely in the ring. Whereas this, it's like, this is, you know, this is the perfect example. Like, if you're Vince Russo, you want to do blood being dropped on someone. In WWE, it's a small bit of blood that drops on the person, their person are just covered in blood, and they go, ah! 
in WCW, fucking gallons gush. The lights in WWE, the lights would go off and then they'd come on and they'd be covered in blood. He wanted the visual of the oosh, like the shining. And he sure got it. Yeah, like there's no doubt in my mind that's not him going, bro, the shining, the elevators, the chick goes where? This, I think, might be the strangest thing to me that has ever happened in wrestling. And this is with the knowledge of Katie Vick, boss man eating a dog. There's just the fact that Ric Flair was in a match with the writer of a company and that match ended with blood filling the ring. And that match also ended with them having to spend a minute trying to shimmy over to get it so the blood would act. Because what was going to happen was the blood was going to hit and it wouldn't hit either of them. It would have just hit the ground and they weren't in it. So they had that to move over. I don't see how that could be the case because it filled everywhere. Everyone got covered. Yeah, well, everyone got covered eventually. But at the start, only Flair got the blood on him. Like, so Rusev started rolling around in it. But it was really... It's one of the most grotesque things I've ever seen in wrestling. Yeah, it's like a proper bloodbath. It yeah. literally is. It's like, it's shocking to even see a picture of it. It's not just like red paint as well. It's like proper dark, bubbly, different mottled shades of red. It's mm. fucking horrible. Yeah. It's really, really grotesque. Yeah. So your star rating for this bloodbath. I gave it four stars out of five. Four out of five? Yeah. Why did you give it four out of five? Because I like to see Vince Russo getting beaten up. Mm-hmm. I thought it was quite fun. Um, that got a couple of stars. And also, the, just the blood filling the ring yeah. was the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. I, I don't think I've laughed that hard in years. Yeah, honestly, like... I cried. I was laughing so hard. Last night, we were playing Life is Strange uh, Season 2. And like they had just like they were keep using really cringy phrases like gnarly and these guys really shred or I'm gonna thrash so hard and then it's like is Chloe a gamer and then as soon as they I was already laughing a lot and it broke me and then this morning we watched this match and honestly I I take pictures because Joe was laughing so hard I've never seen you react that way to anything it was so unexpected and then the fact that you had to pause so I could take notes and it was just on the screen it's like. It looked like something out of a horror movie. It was so upsetting. Like you can't even tell it's Ric Flair because he's so he's got blood in his eyes and his mouth. Yeah, and, his and nose. Rick's wearing red pants and boots yeah. as well, so he just looks like Red Man, like yeah. you know. Vince Russo looks like I don't know because he's covered in blood, but he's kind of like oh, I don't know. It's a bit weird and sexy. It's yeah. It it kind of looks like one of those really sexy episodes of Grey's Anatomy when there's been a particularly sexy terrible accidents yeah where everyone's like oh my hair's all slicked back and covered in glass and blood you know that kind of a thing but I get the feeling watching it that Vince Russo knows he looks a bit sexy covered in blood they all they all they're all feeling it there they're all I don't know Ric Flair is just made of blood (laughs) oh it's horrible so yeah I gave it a couple of stars just because of the unexpected ending yeah and then that literally there's like four minutes of them just lying in the blood and squirming around and cuddling and I gave it some points for that too so that's great because like that shows you the strength of Russo the shock factor yeah because he would argue why we're doing that you never see it coming yeah never would have seen that coming ain't never been done before yeah on this particular show but that doesn't mean I think it should have been done. I still think it's a terrible, like, objectively bad decision. It makes no sense. Total example of your Monty Python booking yes, as well. Yes, exactly. It's the big foot at the end going... Pfft. Yeah, it's very much like the blood's going... Like that. And then Terry Gilliam's going to come in and he's going to have a broad say, Stop that. That is unacceptable. And then her face get all crumpled up like a little piece of paper. Put it in a waste paper basket, bro. He's gone. And then two weeks later, she shows back up. What does it matter? No one remembers. It's a story. So, top sticker, seriously, you mocks. <laughs> so, it didn't last so well in WCW. 
because Russo, eh, a couple of things didn't work so well from WCW. Uh, we talked about creative control a few times in different episodes. We talked about with Scott Hall, with DDP, with Hulk Hogan. If you're a big star in WCW, you get the say in what's going to happen. And surprisingly, when you do an angle where every single big guy with creative control is on one side, and the other side is everyone else whose salaries combined equals one of theirs you're going to come up against a brick wall. And it happened all the time where it's like, Kevin Nash has to take on 19 guys and he beats the ball in one second because Vince Russo can't really argue articulately enough to get him to change his mind. Chief among this, the clash of creative controls and very creative ideas. One of the first things I showed, Joe, which is Vince Russo at Bash at the Beach 2000 cutting a big old promo on that goddamn politician Hulk Hogan that ball son of a bitch now I tried to explain a little bit of what was going on in that match or the whole kind of angle but just seeing that was one of the first things you saw of Vince Russo that whole fucking promo on Hulk Hogan where he ends up getting sued for defamation of character and WCW gets sued for breach of contract What's your take on that? It's hard because on the one hand, I agree because I also hate Hulk Hogan. That bald uh, son of a bitch. He is a bald son of a bitch. But also, I mean, that whole promo is very bad. Mm. Do you know what the whole story is? No. So Hulk Hogan is meant to defend the world title against Jeff Jarrett, Vince Russo's best friend. Okay. (laughs) And... The idea is that he wants Hogan to lose the belt to, to Jeff Jarrett. That was the idea that they wanted to have. And Hulk Hogan says, oh, brother, no good for me. Jeff Jarrett's a small dude. If this were real, I'd beat him up. You know, the, the Hogan's the usual stuff. So he says, no, you're not going to do it. So Russo decides that, okay, we're going to do like a big angle then where everyone's going to run out and get Hulk Hogan. They're all going to try and get him. They're going to you know, beat the shit out of him. He like Hulk versus the world. And, you know, he lays them all out. And then Hogan loses. And Hogan still says, nah, I don't like it that much at all. So Russo's, like, trying to figure out, what am I going to do here? How am I going to make this work? So the idea he comes up with is, right, Hogan, if if this was real, as you're saying, and you say that you don't want to lose the belt to Jeff Jarrett, how do you think Jeff Jarrett would react? And he'd be like, well, I'm supposed to be pissed off, brothers. Exactly. He'd be so pissed off that he'd probably want to lie down in the middle of that ring and say, come on, pill me, you big ball son of a bitch. I'm not even going to wrestle you. If that's how you're going to play your creative control, fine, then beat me. We'll show you. I'm going to show everyone what a coward you are. And then he's like, but then that means that, uh, you know, uh, we'll end up having no champion or whatever. He's like, well, what we'll do is we'll uh, have your Hulk Hogan. He'll have a belt. And then Jeff Jarrett, he'll have a belt as well then. Then you can go away and we can say, Hogan, you piece of shit, you're not doing work here. Get out of here, you get out of here. And Hogan's gone with the belt. Hogan's off for six months. He gets refreshed. Kind of, people want to see him back. And then in six months you do a storyline maybe where Hogan comes back with the belt and saying, I'm the real champion, brother. And I'm going to come get that piece of shit, Jeff Jarrett. You never wrestle me for real. Let's do it. And Hulk Hogan signed off on this. Hogan said that was going to be a great idea because Hogan... Hogan, an idiot. Ag- <laughs> Hogan agreed that time off was a good idea and he agreed that that's what Russo wanted to do he want- that's why he buried Ric Flair in the desert he wanted the big stars off so they could feel special again because they'd been used too much which was yeah. a fair point I think that's a fair point I think that's actually something that should be used way more in wrestling is yeah. getting- giving lots of the top guys time off you'd have less injuries so it's a good idea in that sense and then he has to go and pretend to Jeff Jarrett and he pre- he's working everyone Russo says he goes to Jeff Jarrett and he says Hogan's not going to do the business you have to lay down from. That's how it's going to be. And Jeff Jarrett, being a nice company guy, he's like, fine, I'll go out and do it. This is, this is shit. 
And then they do the match, which so, we saw. So, sorry, Jeff Jarrett, did, would he have preferred to have just lost? I think Jeff Jarrett probably wa- like, wanted to become champion at that point, probably, definitely. But, like, if it was a choice between him losing clean to Hogan or him lying down and letting Hogan pin him, I just can't see... Like, if I was a wrestler, that, to me, would be as bad an outcome. I think... He, Jarrett had just come in with Russo basically around the same time they left WWF at the same time into WCW and genuinely I think he would have been like whatever you say Russo because I trust your vision because your vision will probably involve me at the end of the day being a top guy which it almost invariably always did so he would have went along with pretty much whatever Russo said so Russo says yeah you gotta lay down from and this is him like working him basically telling him that Hogan literally doesn't want to do business he's not telling them that they have a plan so he does it, he lays down and, you know, Hogan grabs a mic, he's like, is, is this your doing, Russo? This company's in a piece of shit state of it because of stuff like this. And he walks off all huff. And then Russo comes out later in the night and he cuts his promo. Now the problem was is that Russo didn't clear the promo with Hogan. And a lot of the things he said in the promo, including, that goddamn politician Hogan, he's a ball son of a bitch, he's holding down all the young guys in the locker room. You know, like, a lot of the stuff that we talked about in our Hogan episodes. Yeah, all true. All true. And honestly, never been said on a national TV before. Because I, I definitely couldn't say that, like, what Vince Russo said in that promo, it, it wasn't wrong. No, and he channeled the real frustrations that he obviously had with trying to work with Hulk Hogan and all these guys because he's he is really fucking like he's tears in his eyes he believes what he's saying here so yeah it's like kudos to him for saying all that because that's the kind of thing that would have been written about in dirt sheets and whatnot and not maybe said and you know everyone you know I didn't know that Hogan was a piece of shit until many many years later and that's kind of a that was a big moment where everyone's like whoa maybe this Hulk Hogan guy is not so nice after all and of course, Hogan hears this and he thinks, well, Russo has said all this shit about me. Uh, I'm suing him for defamation of character. And I'm also, I'm uh, quitting the company. And Russo gets a call from one of the higher-ups in, in T and Turner and says, well, don't let him come back because we can't afford him anyway. He's too expensive. Wow. And of course, like, Bischoff, who's meant to be running the show with Russo, didn't know what the Oh, whole, that's you know? terrible. Although if he... If it's true what Russo says and he's much more of a kind of, oh, I'll give you feedback after it's all been finished, then he's as much to blame. I guess. I mean, they should have had a bit more of a meeting about this. And like, Russo, of course, no, the announcers don't know that it's a work. No one backstage knows that it's a work. He goes up to Jimmy Hart, who's Hulk Hogan's real-life manager afterwards. He's like, what the fuck did you expect me to do, Jimmy? He won't fucking play ball. He's a piece of shit. So his manager's actually going, yeah, no, this is real. He, he literally just told me you're a piece of shit and... He thinks all these things about you. So, yeah. So they... Can you imagine, by the way, like, a lot of talk about trials going on in the wrestling world at the moment, but can you imagine the depositions for this defamation lawsuit? I'd love to see. So the judge is like, so this was a work with... You shut... You worked yourself into a shoot? What does that... What the fuck does that even mean? (laughs) Who are you? (laughs) I can't even imagine how complicated it would be for a normal court case involving any element of wrestling like the jury would have to be kind of educated on what wrestling is what kayfabe is what the what's real and what's not but then for this for the for a writer as a wrestling character who is a writer for the show criticizing the top star saying it's a shoot but it's only really a shoot if everyone knows about it like it seems like if you know if the only person who knows it's a work 
is the guy who's doing it <laughs> and even your top guy doesn't know and the owner doesn't know that it's a, what the fuck is going on there but he's te- he will take the viewpoint then that hey I watched that pay-per-view and I'd ring you up and go Joe they're calling Hogan a ball son of a bitch so it's, the whole show's gone to pot it's a fucking meltdown you gotta go buy this pay-per-view and see what happens but it doesn't it just kind of hear like oh what's that WCW's falling apart I figured yeah because it's a piece of shit that's what you, you thought at the time so uh, it's it's tough, and you know what? Uh, that's the account of events that Russo relayed on a shooting view he did a few years ago. It's probably like every other week. It's like Eric Bischoff unveils new details about Bash of the Beach 2000. I'm sure we'll get a load of Russo fans tweeting in telling us actually no, it's this that. Like everyone's got a version of this story. It's absurd. It's gone to the point where the story is so layered and complicated that it actually as interesting as it is to see this whole shoot it's too much work <laughs> yeah I, and also I can't stop thinking what shame it is that like he's managed to convince Hulk Hogan to go in on this whole honestly I wouldn't agree to do what Hulk Hogan agreed mm. to do let another guy just lie down and then you pin him and then you go away for six months and trust the fact that they'll let you back and let you redeem your own self yeah six months after damaging your reputation I wouldn't agree for that yeah well but then the fact that he's managed to convince Hogan of that but then not even bothered to check in with the promo like you could have done something really cool with that Mm. obviously he's okay with elements of the idea he might have even let you get away with saying some of the shit if you'd just shown it to him beforehand and it's a problem that occurs very often where it's kind of like when you want to tap into that well of real life emotions real life trauma opinions beliefs whatever is to fuel a promo like all the best promos in wrestling history have always all said the way you do it is you, you go into that well in there Mick Foley calls it promo land like it's a little place in his head where you go and you can kind of draw on this stuff but like it just it got too real too quick. Case in point, you know, after this, Russo helps set up TNA with his friend Jeff Jarrett. He's brought in, and uh, TNA he helped come up with the name of that as well because uh, tits and ass, and they've had to live with that ever since. But anyway, he wanted to do something called SEX Sports oh, Entertainment. Fuck, he's twelve. PMS SEX. There was the Terry Invitational Tournament, the TIT as well. There was the uh, Saskatchewan Hardcore International title shit. You know, there's, there's plenty of that. He, he loves his, his acronyms. But Sports Entertainment Extreme, SEX, he wanted to completely revitalize how we think about wrestling. The idea would be is that you don't know who's going to come out there in the ring with you. I'm on the mic. I'm cutting a promo. You send out this person. Just It's like like jazz, basically. It's like, all right, I'm vibing here. I'm doing a little something. You send out fucking this person, and I'll say something. He'll say something. And then send out someone else. Literally the first night, he's in the ring talking about, I'm Vince Rosa. I'm the smartest man in wrestling. Do you like my new haircut? And then out comes Roddy Piper, going to stir the pot and tell you that you murdered own heart by making him jump off a Titantron. Ah, so, uh, yeah, you, you know, bites you on the rear end there a little bit. We need to have some guidelines in wrestling beyond. You do. Because people are of emotions and wrestling attracts a certain breed of people. Yeah. A lot of those people are very emotional and damaged. Probably, yeah. And what the fuck did you expect was going to happen? Yeah, seriously. Like, you know. So so many bad life choices. TNA was an interesting one for Russo. He was involved in there on and off as head writer for nearly 10 years. Like, he was there for for a good long while. 2002 is when I remember him first being involved. He was there all the way up until 2013 or 14 in one way, shape, or form. Usually in different roles. When they would change over management in there, sometimes he'd go, the times he'd come back. But at the end of the day, 
Jeff Jarrett, the founder of the company, was one of his best friends. Dixie Carter, who was the president and financial backer of the company, she liked Russo. She believed in Russo and they had a connection. So he always ended up getting a job. You had a lot of crazy storylines in TNA, which was really sad because he had a roster that had the likes of AJ Styles, Samoa Joe, Christopher Daniels, the Young Bucks. What? Yeah, these are all guys who he had on his roster. Most wow. of whom he thought couldn't draw any money. He thought the best way for AJ Styles to draw money was to dress up like Ric Flair and pretend to be a young nature boy. Like He did a lot of really cringe stuff with some of the most talented wrestlers. What a waste. And invariably, I mean, in TNA, I'm talking broad strokes here, invariably the storylines came down to, like we talked before, the big faction that's going to take over, you know, the big swerve. This person who was a face is now a heel, is now a face, is now a heel, and this guy betrayed this guy. And it was around that time where he got a lot of, uh, started to get a lot of flack because he said things like, you know, the young books can't draw, you know, or small guys can't draw. And that was a lot of that stuff was coming out where he had kind of the new generation, the new era of wrestlers that were coming up, he had a lot of disdain for. Like you're saying, like Kevin Owens, for instance, and Sami Zayn. They look like my neighbours. You know, you can't have those guys be on your oh, TV I wish show. my neighbour looked like Sami Zayn. Yeah, oh. seriously. I'd be terrified if my neighbour looked like Kevin Owens. Yeah, I wouldn't need the house. No, <laughs> he'd powerbomb me on the hardest part of the patio. Like, it'd be awful. Kevin, the neighbour's outside again. He's, he's enthusing about zoos. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to look at maybe one, or, one of Russo's kind of infamous bad matches around this time. I needed a lot of reprehensible shit in this time. I'm going to say right now, honestly, one of the most upsetting things I've ever had to see in wrestling was when he did something called the Knockout Lockbox Challenge where he had all the women's wrestlers in TNA who, by the way, in spite of everything, consistently were some of the highest rated segments always on on television and he got all the women out there and they all wrestled a match where they all got a special lockbox and inside the lockbox at the end they would reveal they'd all open them and there would be different things in there. Like one lockbox might be it's like a it's kind of like a money in the bank but some of them could be bad. And one of the lockboxes is, wow, you've won a championship match, or wow, you've got a tight championship match, or you get any match you want whatsoever. And one of the boxes, you have to do a sexy striptease. And who do you think he got to do the sexy striptease? Why, it was Daphne, the one person who made it very clear that she was really not comfortable with doing the sexy striptease. Oh, God. So, like, literally in the main event segment of one of their TV shows, they did this long thing where, like, they had Daphne, like, walk down to the ring and look, like, really, like, upset and miserable as she has to pretend to do a striptease before she gets beaten up. <laughs> it's like, oh, by the way, she was a heel as well. Uh, you know, it's like, there's a, there was a certain disdain and disregard he had for, I think, the performers that were in TNA. I don't think a lot of them he took seriously. Like, because he only would book, like, when Kurt Angle came in. Yeah, Kurt Angle. Sting, yeah, you know, these are names who were big, who he knew about. But if you were a homegrown indie guy who came up through the ranks into TNA, eh. So where's suddenly his ethic of being like, oh yeah, let's give all the guys an awesome storyline. I mean, everyone had stories still, but, you know, he wasn't pushing any... He was When he was in WWF, he was pushing like younger guys like D'Lo and Jarrett and all yeah. that. But when it came to, when he was in TNA, he was pushing the now 40-year-olds, D'Lo and Jarrett. You know, it was like... All his buddies still, except he didn't have any new faves. And it felt sad that he couldn't think back to... And he'd say, oh, I elevated those guys. You know, I let the Young Bucks sing backup tracks for Victoria in a segment. I did those guys a great favour, you know. It's... He didn't. He didn't know how to book them. And I don't yeah. think... Like Cornette, he doesn't know how this new generation works. Anyway, best of all, we got to watch 
Sting versus Abyss, the last rights match from Destination X 2007. This is a match which is famous for <laughs> very, very loud Fire Russo chants. Joe, what are the rules of the last rights match? So to win, you summon down the deathbed. Definitely not a coffin. No, it's a deathbed. Because dying and funerals are one and the same. You summon the deathbed by kind of gesticulating at it. It's like you know in Shooting Stars, they would bring down the uh, the pigeon. Yeah. You, you, so when you want the bed to come, you have to go... And Mark Lamar would make a face. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. exactly like that. <laughs> and then you have to put them in the deathbed. Yes. And then... The deathbed gets taken away. Mm-hmm. Last rites, baby. Are you excited to talk about this last rights match? No. It's not just any old match. I think we're, we're maybe doing it some disservice here, just saying, oh, it's just a deathbed that comes in. There's loads of trinkets and effort that's been put Is into there this. Is there loads? There's one foam tombstone. We've got candelabras. They're so shit. They're made of plastic and they keep wobbling around. He only said, like, a week before for yeah. the... the did you get that vibe with this? Absolutely. <laughs> Especially with the tombstones. It feels to me like Vince Russo had this idea a week earlier and was like, oh, bro, it would be really cool if we get someone to do like a, a press or a slam through the tombstone. That, that the is a great book. image. I'd love that. Yeah. yeah. And you imagine it with a big tombstone, yeah. like two chairs set up and there's a big distance between them. If it was a tombstone that had like their name on it yeah. as well. It's like, you are going through yeah, this. Yeah, rest you know? in peace. Uh, Abyss. <laughs> Terrible name. <laughs> But instead, they have these tiny little cheap foam. Obviously, someone's like, they've not, their order hasn't come through, and so they've had to pop round to the nearby fancy dress shop. Or pop out through my graveyard to get the smallest graves. Yeah. No, no one will notice bigger. them. They're only the small ones. No one will notice them when they're gone. Like. It makes the whole thing very cheap looking. And it's again, it's like eyes bigger than your stomach in terms of concept. Uh, one we mentioned briefly before the electrified steel cage match. That he had promoted. Team 3D, the Dudley Boys, against LAX. It was like literally the same year as this. And all the build-up, it's like, are you going to be locked inside an electric... St-? It was. They were talking about this gimmick for weeks. And then like I read a report, it was like literally the day of the show. The wrestlers were all stood around the ring going, alright, where's the electric steel cage match? Like, Don't worry, it'll be, it'll be ready. We're, mm-hmm. we're gonna, and it was meant to have sparks and like fireworks... And none of it worked. So instead, what they did was they turned the lights on and off and they played a loud sound effect as the wrestlers had to pretend to be electrocuted. And then halfway through the match, they realized because the noise was so loud, they just stopped playing the noise. So wrestlers went into the corner and they just turned the lights on and off a little bit. That's so cringe. My high school production of John B. Keane's The Field had more like, we, we got lightning effects with the lights on and off. We didn't even need no noise. Oh. We shook a big wobbly thing of uh, of aluminium. Oh, dear. So, Abyss summons the deathbed after hitting Sting with a candelabra. Yeah, I feel it's important to say that, like, not much really happens in no. the first half of the match. There's, like, very little wrestling going on. I think Russo oftentimes designs matches thinking that the wrestlers involved have, like, a limitation or like oh they're not going to want to do a lot of bumps so we can do this match instead where you'll do no bumps but yeah. the gimmick will compensate it never works no I've got my notes written not much happening here that's the first line of my notes and the second line of my notes is 
Sting is bleeding. Yeah, that the, he bleeds out. The first shot he takes, he yeah. bleeds off of when he gets hit with a plastic candelabra. And then Abyss, like, then immediately summons the deathbed, which was very confusing because I missed him summoning the deathbed and I thought that it was summoned by Sting's blood. Oh, I see. Like, the deathbed knows. Yeah. Like, it smell it. That would be cool, though, wouldn't it? Shit, like, there's actually. First blood triggers something. There is actually a movie called Deathbeds, that, yeah. the bed that eats people. Like, I just realized is that. It's summoned by blood. It is. <gasps> That's fucking He's something. Nicked it. Well, he's not nicked enough of it because no. this is just a bed that comes down. But when it comes down, Joe, it's not just this ain't just your mama's bed coming down it's here. It's so awkward. Abyss tries to put Sting. Well, no, he does. He succeeds. He puts Sting in the the deathbed, but then Sting manages to, like escape, and then he gets caught in the fabric and falls oh. over, and then the ref gets caught in the fabric and falls over. Oh my, take the fabric out, guys, beforehand. And Sting is fucking gushing. Yeah, he's bleeding everywhere. And it's funny as well, because when uh, Abyss summons down the deathbed, the lights turn blue yeah. and all this dry eye starts coming on and suddenly it's like, whoa, we're in a meatloaf video here. Like, mm. and I would do anything for marks, but I won't do that. <laughs> it seems to me that the only offensive manoeuvre... Sting has taken that could cause him to bleed is falling over from being caught in the fabric of the deathbed. As soon as they see the deathbed, the crowd are like, ah, oh, no, no, fuck this. Fire, Russo! <laughs> yep. He tried to pass the blame on this off to Dutch Mantel, who's the other writer at the time. Oh, yeah. And all Dutch Mantel was saying, like, it wasn't me, you know it wasn't me. And they weren't chanting fire Dutch out there, were they? They were chanting fire Russo. Um, at one point, Don West on commentary says, this is something that's hard to look at. Just look at it. To Sting's mangled, bleeding face. It is hard to look at. It's horrible to look at. He bleeds more than is necessary for this very... Look at it! Look how disgusting he is! Look at his face! If you want to know what makes me embarrassed to be a wrestling fan, and, like, not, like, I've dealt with a lot of, like, self-internalised embarrassment about wrestling for a long time, like... And I've come to terms of... I'm not embarrassed by the 99% of wrestling now. But this shit still makes me embarrassed. Oh, really? Yeah, like this... Like the perfect thing where he, like, he puts the fake tombstone on someone's head and he hits it with his bat and it's like... Ah, and you it's, know. Yeah, very cheap. I, well, I it's None very... of this is like, offensive, though. I wouldn't find no, this embarrassing because it's... it's just cringe. It's just lame. But like... what I hate about this is that this is literally something where you could take something I say out of context where I'm like, I love in wrestling when you do the crazy and the... Yeah. And then kind of go, oh, what, like that? On no. paper, it sounds like a great idea. Yeah, no, Dad, not like that. Proper wrestling, like <laughs> where there's lightning bolts and... I don't know if it's a lack of money, a lack of planning. It's definitely both of those at the same time. But I've seen porn with better production values yeah. than this. Like seriously, it's so fucking rinky dink. And I felt I was I felt embarrassed showing you this. Oh, that isn't <laughs> the worst thing you've shown me. Hey, I like though the abyss sells how heavy the tombstone is. Then Bludgeon Brothers could pick up a thing or two from him, huh? No, they could not. It's awful. It makes it look so light. And then when they <laughs> hit it with the bats, obviously, again, they definitely wanted this bigger tombstone, probably made of some kind of rock. Whereas this just goes, turns into dust. Yeah, it's made out of biscuits, I think. They go through the very, 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 very tiny tombstone that's so heavy it can be perched on two flimsy little chairs. It's so small. So yeah, they go through it. Abyss smashes through and uh, Sting just closes the coffin on him. The 
lights turn off he climbs on top of the coffin as if to be kind of like Stella like he's like a re- it was a great image like, and honestly I, when I saw the end of the match that like, was an iconic image yeah. that's the image Like I think Russo has these kind of like yeah film scenes in his mind and it's like you see the blue light abyss lay out in this fucking coffin sting on top of it, blood covering him looking up at this light it looks like something out of the crow or something mm. like it's, it is and not just because sting is the just crow. the crow <laughs> and then it kind of it starts to raise up and it literally is like can't cope with both of you on at once sorry this mechanism cannot handle this level of dramatic storytelling you need to get off so he just stands there instead as it very wobbly like goes up uh, oh god I forgot as well commentary literally said Abyss is really selling the tombstone <laughs> as he pretended it weighed something whoa what do you think of that gimmick match type huh fucking hell well, what did you think of that gimmick match type, Joe? Give us a uh, a star rating. I gave it two stars. So same as same as Vince versus Shane. Okay. I thought it was a bit of fun. It is funny to see a match that, in theory, could be quite good. Like you know, Sting. He's a great wrestler. Yeah, he is. You know, I think he did a match. Was it against Ric Flair that we watched? Yeah, and that's, loved it. I think, as far as I remember, that was one of like in terms of a pure wrestling match. I still haven't seen a match where they've done such kind of basic wrestling without crazy dives mm. and stuff that it enraptures you like that so I know Sting is good yeah. Like, yeah he is I know nothing about Abyss but like this is a concept that could work really well yeah. if it had just been fucking practiced a couple of times like silly gimmicks like why was there only one thing to play with in this yeah. last rights match you know it's again storyline was 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 penned in this was something that we'll do and like they didn't even announce what the rules of this match were until the start of the match because they probably didn't know because he's probably still writing what it was interesting though amongst our match selection tonight the highest profile best reviewed one involved Vince Russo himself so maybe he was right to put himself in those matches Uh, I don't know I'm giving that credit to Ric Flair (laughs) and the blood and the blood you know so well there we go Russo left TNA, as we mentioned, the final final departure came when he accidentally emailed one of the executives from Spike TV, commentary, liner notes, and production ideas that he was meant to only send to Mike Tanay, as opposed to Mike, whatever the name of the guy was, from Spike TV. It ended up then that they got their show uh, not renewed, because they had said, please do not work with Vince Russo ever again. Wait, why? Because... They didn't like Russo's writing. They didn't like a lot of the stuff that Russo wrote. I think we mentioned before he did some intergender stuff that they didn't like. Right. I can't imagine he'd be able to handle intergender wrestling all that well. No, not really, surprisingly. But, like, there was... They didn't like the tone. Like, they had kind of... They had felt in the past that they had been... Like, it was more the principle that they had been lied to. Like, they'd been told, oh, don't worry, this guy's not going to be involved anymore. Like... There was some potential partnerships with Japan and Mexico that fell through because of Russo's involvement. One of the greatest wrestlers of all time, when he was brought into TNA under good faith from a Japanese promotion, the first thing Russo did was slap him with a gimmick like the sidekick from the Green Hornet, Kato. Oh my god. And made him play Samoa Joe's like silly kung fu sidekick you know stuff like that like they they sent over a lot of really high profile guys to Russo who then buried buried them them. he is on record and said over and over again that an American fan cannot look at a luchador a Japanese wrestler someone who doesn't speak the language whatever it is if you see a mask you can't see emotions so you can't connect with them if you hear a promo you don't hear American then you can't 
connect with them as an audience. I hate that so much because he says it as if he's such an authority on the subject, but he's basing this on fucking nothing. Like yeah. there is actual studies and data on all those things to prove otherwise. Yeah. And he's not going to listen to any of it because he's decided because he doesn't like it, because he believes those things, it must be true. And because he's the big famous writer who had the highest watched rated episode of Raw ever, he must be right. It's sad because he is so willing to throw out so many, like, kind of, well, why is it that in wrestling it's got to be this? Mm. You know, he, he will throw so much of it away. But then so puts in twice as many rules. Well, yeah, then when it comes to, like, any rules about, like, you know, you know race or fucking gender mm-hmm. or, you know, stereotypes... Uh, no, 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 no. Then we then we stick to those. Mm-hmm. That's why when you see Taka Michinoku on Raw in nineteen ninety eight, they're doing segments where it's like, ah, he can't drive, and you know, it, as opposed to he's one of the, literally one of the greatest wrestlers of all time, like in those in the ring, like. It's I, sad. Part of me wants to know his opinion on like Shinsuke Nakamura or like Asuka, because I feel at the moment they both of them are proving him so wrong. Like Absolutely. obviously, tons of wrestlers prove him wrong on a on a second by second basis but like as an example of such a prominent example yeah, of, of them a very both, mainstream getting yeah, over both of them speaking both in Japanese and in English which isn't a native tongue to either of them and if anything like because I think he would make the argument that like kind of oh like you know Rey Mysterio only became like a world champion once he started cutting promos in English mm. and all that but you know what if anything it's the ethnicity and the fact that Asuka and Shinsuke are, are from Japan and that culture, that actually, it works to the benefit of the audience. I yeah, think it makes them more appealing to the audience. Exactly, and they do it while not stereotyping the culture, but bringing that culture with them. Yeah. Like, that's why they're amazing. That's why we love them. is isn't because, like, they're, they're making jokes of things we think about their culture. They're bringing elements of that culture with them into our viewership so we can learn about it ourselves. For me, as a kid... Russo made wrestling exciting because at the time uh, he took what wrestling was, he flipped it on its head and it made me think, well, wrestling doesn't have to be these things, it can be these things instead. And it's just so sad to me now that there isn't that spark or that want anymore. Like, really? Do we want to turn on wrestling and watch the same fucking shit that was there 20 years ago? I'll tell you, right? I've spent hundreds of hours of my life as my job going back and watching every show I gushed over as a child and realising... It's not what I want to see on TV anymore. No. You know? And if you look at all the rules, no fucking, no one from Mexico or Japan or no non-native English speakers can be in a prominent position. No fucking women. And if women are there, they have to be sexualized. Don't fucking have any too many handsome men unless we think we're all gay. Like, there's so many fucking arbitrary rules and list them all down, man. That's a hateful fucking list. Mm -hmm. You know? And it's a hateful list that's saying... No, actually, you can't watch wrestling. It's not for you. No, you over there. No, it's not for you. No, women, it's not for you. Unless you're cool with, with, with you know, unless you're a cool woman. Who, yeah, yeah. You know, for someone who managed to get so many new eyes on the product, he's awful keen to turn away a lot of the eyes that are here. Because wrestling at the moment, in the last five years, it has flourished and thrived because of these new people coming mm-hmm. in. I'm so fucking thrilled to see more female fans and more people fucking come in and want to see a bit more representation all that. It makes wrestling so much more interesting. Yeah, how I just, I just do not believe anyone who says that that's not the case. It's just you are wrong. There is no debating it. You're wrong. Do you want to go to the you want to go to the zoo and see all the different animals and all the, or do you want to just go see some penguins? I only want to see Jeff Jarrett the penguin. Yeah, I love penguins. They're great, you know, and I spent a lot of my childhood liking penguins, but Jesus Christ, I've moved on a bit from penguins. And I can't assume that a child 
now wants to see the same penguins. You know, it works, this analogy, I'm sure. Yeah, we'll keep going with it. <laughs> Feathers McGraw should have never been broken in this business. <laughs> it's very obvious that because I think he's grown up, obviously, as a fan, taking in all of these pop culture references, like he absorbed so many movies and TV shows and I'm sure he's a comic book fan as well. And then it's just like he's taken that attitude and instead of kept it as that, like he's going to keep absorbing more and more and more in things, which is is a great attitude to have, you know, absorb yourself in as many different interests and tastes as possible. And yeah, you will come up with, be inspired by new ideas and everything. But instead of of doing that, he's just continued to watch the old things over and over and over again. Mm. And then his own wrestling shows over and over again. And then just regurgitated what he's seen, which is his own stuff, which was regurgitated to begin with, until eventually everything is just... It's like the human centipede. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's true. He's doubled down. It's it's the shit of someone three decades ago. There's one little story about Russo that I think is very, very telling. And, like... I think it kind of underscores why he might have a lot of the why he's so militantly defensive about all of this stuff and why he feels kind of so hard done by. He was approached to come back to WWE in 2002. He was actually rehired, came back for one day, I think it was, on the job, and half the writing staff said, because of all the stories they'd heard about him, that they would all quit uh, if, wow. if he came back. And the idea he had was that he wanted to restart the invasion storyline, which uh, involved the WCW coming in to take over the WWE. And when they did the invasion, they didn't have any of the top stars because they all had their big contracts and they all stayed at home, except for DDP, as we talked about in his episode. And now that all those stars were available, he said, hey, why don't we do that invasion? But this time, bring in the big stars, like Scott Steiner and Goldberg and Eric Bischoff. He got laughed at the door, fuck off, go away. And who do they hire over the next three months? Scott Steiner, Goldberg, Kevin Mm. Nash, Scott Hall, Eric Bischoff, like literally every name he was talking about. And I feel it's bad because... At the time, like, you know, books been books have been written about how he's killed WCW and all that, and I feel a lot of the blame went on him. And I think saying that he killed a company, like he killed TNA or he killed WCW, like there's a good Samaritan law, I think, in wrestling, and that is if you see a dying wrestling company, you try and stop and do whatever you can to fix it. There's no doubt in my mind that he tried to fix it. But those companies, we'll find out in other episodes, had problems well entrenched before and after him. He didn't kill it. Maybe he didn't save it. That's not the same. You can't put him in on murder, lads. It's negligent manslaughter at best. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a bit of a chat and an assessment about the highs and lows of the writing career of Vince Russo. And as I anticipate, our Twitter will blow up again once this episode has come out. RIP or mentions. Let's have a look at your tweets and your Facebook posts. ago I left WCW and quite frankly I didn't know if I was going to come back and the reason I didn't know is because from day one I've done nothing but deal with the bullshit of the politics behind that curtain. The fact of the matter is I have a wife, I have three children at home and I really don't need this guff. But let me tell you why I did come back. I came back for every one of the men in the locker room that week in, week out, bust their rear ends for WCW. I came back for the men behind that curtain that genuinely care about this company. And let me tell you who doesn't give a fig about this company. 
that no-good, roddy politician, Hulk Hogan. Let me tell you people what happened in this ring tonight. All day long, I'm playing politics with Hulk Hogan, because tonight, Hulk Hogan wants to play his creative control card. And to him, that means that in the middle of this ring, when he knew it was morally unsound, that he would beat Jeffrey Jarrett. Well, guess what? Hogan got his wish. Hogan got his belt and went home, and I promise everyone, you will never see that piece of work again. I know you paid good money to come here tonight, and nobody is going to be taken advantage of. So, Hulk Hogan now has the WCW belt. And Hulk, let's refer to that as THE Hulk Hogan Memorial Belt, because from here on in, that belt don't mean diddly-boo, because there will be a new WCW belt. And as far as I'm concerned, that belt still belongs to the one chap who bust his rear end week in, week out in the middle of this ring. And you fellows can love him or hate him, but that gentleman doesn't screw anybody back there, and that's Jeffrey Jarrett. Tonight in this ring, two deserving gents, Jeffrey and Booker, will compete and they'll tear this house down. And Hogan, you big, bald son of a bitch, kiss my ass! First off, we have one from Jenna ACLB. I know nothing about Vince Russo, literally zero things, and yet I am filled with a terrible sense of trepidation. I don't think I'm going to like him. Well, Jenna, I think you may well be right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... Everything we've said here in this episode, I am fully aware and fully anticipate there to be a point-by-point response from either Russo or his fans or whoever who will defend this. I have watched hundreds of hours of shooting views with the man where he has literally defended every angle and he will barrack and he will not back down. So all I'll say is do some reading, read his book if you like, you know, he's got two. Read, read around the subject. We've just given you the experience as I've researched it and we've found out together as we've walked through this stuff and with the benefit of, of growing up with them. He'll obviously have a different opinion. Others will as well. But that's how we see it at this point in time, I guess. I mean, I think there's there's fair reason why, as a new fan, you might be hesitant to... You hear more bad than good, don't yeah, you? Yeah, I, I definitely had heard things about Vince Russo, maybe not entirely fairly, but destroying companies. And then you hear about some of the angles that he it was his idea for, and you kind of you can't help but be like... Uh, okay, a bit of a strange man. And honestly, yeah. I don't think I will ever be able to like the guy because of his hateful attitudes towards every minority yeah, group. That's it. Like that's the thing, and I don't want to think anyone here thinks that we're trying to like glorify him as a person or his opinions or all that. We've uh, let you know how we feel about them. We find them to be you know toxic and abhorrent, and that's the way it is. But I really think, as unpalatable as it is you have to recognise his importance in wrestling. Because good, bad, whatever way you look at it, you can't say that he had no impact. Because he did. He changed a lot of ways that wrestling is done. And more importantly, he changed the way that things in wrestling aren't done anymore. Things that are avoided now because of him. So he's had an impact. Like, that's... Would you really think that people would argue that he hasn't had an impact? Yes. That's very strange to me because I don't understand. Like, he's invented new genres of matches that are used today. So, that, how can that not be the case? That's the WWE kind of viewpoint. Of view, like, like, listen to JBL. Like, you want another WWE viewpoint? Listen to JBL talk about, you know, Vince Russo. And JBL be like, he was, he was a writer. He was a guy. He, you know, none of us respect him. He didn't know what he was doing, you know. And the reality is, right, the Attitude Era could have been just as successful without him. Mm. There's no doubt in my mind because the talent was there. And there was enough creative people there who were steering the ship in that direction anyway. 
Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Rock, two of the greatest stars of all time who happen to be on the same show at the same time. Everyone, we're trying at the moment desperately for there to be a guy, Roman Reigns. Mm. There was two guys at once. Yeah. That, and when he took over. So that, you know, you always have to look at the environment around him. So he had a lot of help, but you can't say he did, just because other people helped make it a reality doesn't mean he didn't have an impact. No. You know, there was other people involved. He was still part of that. Yeah, I mean, I think if you've had ideas that have then lasted beyond your time at that company, mm. you've obviously had an impact. FT Punk says, medium, hot, slash, possibly spicy take. I prefer Russo's unpredictable, sometimes nonsensical booking to the predictability that seems more prevalent now. A lot of what he did was garbage, but at least it garnered a reaction. Bad writing is better than boring writing. Yeah, and bad, not boring writing will get you through a couple of weeks, a couple of months, maybe even a year when the product is considered to be crazy hot and that's the thing you know, that kennel from hell match that we watched that's one of the highest grossing pay-per-views of the attitude era see now i i think know? i have to disagree because i i would prefer boring writing and good wrestling mm. which doesn't make me feel like i'm so unwelcome in this community <laughs> yeah 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 like literally makes me feel like i shouldn't even be a human mm. Like, I, I don't want to feel like that. And yeah. I would much rather be bored than insulted. I think what people point out, though, is that when wrestling is on a hot streak, you can do no wrong. And when wrestling is not popular, you can do no right. Mm. And because he happened to be around when there was a lot of things that were very successful, his bad stuff kind of didn't get dwelled on a lot. Mm. Like, no one was complaining about how bad Vince Russo was for writing the stuff in 1999, because there's so much other good stuff, even though he did a lot of bad things. People, by and large, didn't care. And a lot of the stuff he's done, I think, aren't evidently awful, except in hindsight. Passing Train says, I've never liked this idea that Russo came up with the ideas and Vince McMahon was the filter. It's evident from post-Russo WWE that the two Vinces have very similar ideas mm. about what makes an entertaining storyline. And perhaps that's why they were so successful in, in the late 90s. Yeah, they definitely had similar... They wanted to get similar things out of the product. You know, there's no question in my mind. And yeah, I mean, I could list you all, like, if we looked solely at women's wrestling, I could probably list you all the stuff that Russo did and then all the stuff that came after him. And you probably would say the stuff that came after him was worse. It was worse, yeah. Like, it's, even yeah. out of the Attitude Era, I would argue that, because you know, at least in the Attitude Era, you've got the kind of, it's the late 90s, way! Well, it's 2004, why are we voting Yeah, when wrestling is outfits? boring and offensive. Yeah, it's like... Yeah, it's 2004. Why are we all voting on what sexy nurses' outfits the wrestlers are going to wear in the women's match tonight? Sorry, the divas are going mm. to wear, you know? So Vince McMahon wants what Vince McMahon wants. Some of that overlapped with Vince Russo. And any of these angles that we would turn our noses up at and criticize or talk about, those are all ones that Vince McMahon wanted on his TV show and gave the okay to. So it's... He's as culpable. Yeah, I mean, when we did our episode on Vince McMahon, we said even then how Vince needs a filter. Yeah. Vince can't be the filter, okay? <laughs> he, he's, his holes are too big. Says a lot about Vince Russo, though, if Vince McMahon can act as a filter for your ideas and tell you if they're too crazy. Philip Goad says he put a world title on actor and defends it because people still talk about it. People still also talk about the Hindenburg, but that <laughs> didn't do a lot for the Zeppelin industry. That's true. And one thing I want to point out is that one of the reasons why Russo probably gets unfairly maligned is because his failures are so much more entertaining and so much more enthralling than his successes. He needs to come to terms with that because no one's ever going to give him credit for that good stuff, I think, the way they want to well, tear just, him down for the bad stuff. I don't think if you're going... I don't think it's... 
I don't think you should be allowed to only take credit for the good stuff yeah. without holding responsibility for the negatives. And that's the trouble. I just genuinely think he's so obsessed with defending his terrible behaviour that until he gets past that, no one cares yeah. to give him the credit of, mm. actually, you know, you did do all this good stuff. Because honestly, why why would you? When he's wanting to take credit for, like, everything ever that's happened and then also to claim that they're all amazing ideas. Mm, yeah. Come on now, be realistic. <laughs> Got to take the good with the bad. Speaking of, Kavin says, I absolutely think he has inflated his own worth massively and oversold himself, and that's why he's gotten work in the business time and time again. He has some worth in a creative team, but maybe don't put him in charge of an entire company? I think he's devalued him, his, uh, his, his standing, really. Mm. He's like, literally, if there ever was someone who could have kept their mouth shut for five, six oh, years. Oh, God, the book deals he would have book. been offered. Reality is now, you've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of his podcast. But he couldn't have done that, 20 though. 20 interviews, two books. I think he always signed that fate for himself, I think, from the moment he left WWE, mm. or WWF, rather. When he immediately left there and started doing interviews about how he was the guy responsible for the highest rated episode of mm. Raw and he was responsible for saving WWE and he was responsible for all the best innovative storylines and stuff, he's inflating himself so much right from the get-go mm. that, of course, then people are going to lump him in with the death of WCW or yeah. the death well, of well, TNA. you're so important. Yeah, if you're so it's massively impactful on the industry, if you can influence it that much, then why can't you also handle the criticism? And people always wonder, though, how come no one ever talks about, you know, Brian Gortz, Ed Kosky, uh, you know, these the, the other writers who wrote just as much TV and probably wrote plenty of bad, you know, bad shit in WWE did not stop in late 1999, folks. No, it folks. did not. It continued for fucking over a decade. And, you know, it got worse. Genuinely, like, I do feel it's, he's in a bad place because he was the first and he was the first writer and that, that exact, that inflated sense of, of, of place and ego that came with him going to WCW. No other writer has ever been given any sort of scrutiny at all, like... We like we struggled in researching on the ITR podcast to find out. Well, when he went, who who wrote the fucking thing? Because mm. no one no, there's not even pictures of half of these guys. You know, Brian Gewertz, he was the head writer for WWE for over ten years. He was the yeah. Rock's personal comedy writer. He now works for the Rock's production company, doing writing and stuff. I think I've seen one picture of him. Wow. He's not got you know. I'd love to pick those brains and find out, but you know what? You never got it because. You know, lips are sealed. Maybe yeah. there'll be a book someday. Maybe there'll be a podcast. But literally, Russo has made a cottage industry that went through an industrial revolution and then some. And this was even before podcasts were a thing. I kind of feel like every wrestler has, got, has said everything they can, they can say 10 times over now. And Russo, even though he has so much, like, what would he, he couldn't even offer anything to people in NXT now, I feel, because it's like, well, you. You know what you think. Yeah. <laughs> You're an open books, plural. <laughs> and unfortunately, he's shown that you know, his open book is very much one that is no longer associated with modern thinking and innovation. No. Mark Doubt says, His idea of incorporating everyone into a character and storyline is genius, as it did help make the lower card memorable. But sometimes his lack of long-term planning and the characters he thought up weren't to par. I was thinking the other day, there was actually like three or four times where he had a gimmick that was hyped up for weeks and weeks with little videos, like Beaver Cleavage. Mm. Then they debut and they literally, they're like, I'm not doing this crap anymore. Like, you know, it's very recurring thing with him, you know. 
Fish Chips Whips says, The king of all internet trolls, a man whose history in wrestling I choose to ignore because he's a disgusting human who doesn't deserve recognition. <laughs> uh, Scott Cavaliero says, He is clueless. He has no idea what build-up is in a story. He books baby faces as total idiots that no one can get behind. He throws stipulation matches about for the sake of it. Writes terrible shoot angles to fool the insider fans who already know it's not a shoot. I think is so more often done badly than it is done well, where you have like someone pretending to, you know, be shooting and they're you know, obviously it's it's all scripted. Brian Bradshaw says Vince Russo is the Donald Trump of wrestling. He yep. bigs up his own career despite succeeding little and failing a lot. Claims the success of others as his own, cannot handle criticism, and despite being such a hate filled man, is still popular with many. And how to wrestling inexplicably did an episode about them. <laughs> <laughs> Sean Somerville says, arguably the most notorious and well-known wrestling writer in the history of the business. Probably more notorious and well-known than every other wrestling writer combined. Yeah, and I think a lot of wrestling writers probably now know we don't make ourselves known because that happens. Yes. It's, it, it only leads to bad things. Mm-hmm. Vcom7418 says, I have really mixed thoughts on the guy. As a booker, with Katie Vick, Claire Lynch, at least allegedly, and Sammy slash Lashley from Raw recently not being his creation, he is automatically exempt from having the title of the worst booker there is. (laughs) What's Claire Lynch? Claire Lynch was a storyline involving AJ Styles in uh, TNA where they had a lady say that AJ had fathered a bastard child and had left them high and dry. Jesus. Yeah, and AJ was the face, so... Wow! Hey, man, I didn't have no kid. Nice going, Russell. Check my chest, man, ain't no tattoo there. I ain't have no kid. Fuck off. Dan TV Man says, Following up on the Goldberg refusing to follow the script segment, please try and explain to Joe how Russo's philosophy is everything in wrestling is fake except what you're seeing right now. This is real. Until later when we will call this fake. Well, I mean, you know what's happening when it's real, when the announcers are going... I guess this is uh, one of those shoot angles I've heard about. Like, uh, are we being Russo swerved? Honestly, it is. It's it's the it's the ultimate logic hole there. If you continually make people try and question what's real and what's not, and like that's the end of the day. It's such a weird thing to get fixated on. Like, what does it matter? Like, seriously, what does it matter to your enjoyment of the wrestling show? It's uh, Vince Russo is laser focused on this idea of of fake and real. Like, he'll say, I'm a mark for the honeymooners. He doesn't go on about, that's fake or real. But if you're a mark for wrestling, you think this is real. Mm. You know, if you take a mark to be someone who's really enthusiastic and probably self-admittedly a little bit too enthusiastic about the given medium. I'm a mark for brining chicken at the moment, mm. okay? But when why is it wrestling has to have that added bit then? But if you're a mark for wrestling, you have to think it's real. And therefore, we have to play on that. I don't give a shit. I think it's a really old-fashioned way of looking at things. Like yeah. Once upon a time, maybe when he was growing up watching wrestling, that might have been the case. But like yeah. nowadays, as a modern fan, more often than not, they realise it's it's predetermined. I mean, I guess it's because in Russo, if he was a child of the 70s, and if you come from that era, you remember a time when you watched TV and it was, as far as you were concerned, it was real. Mm. And then you get into the 80s where it's said, no, it's not real. And then we kind of go from there. Whereas like, I my entire like from when I was a child, I'm a grown ass man now. From when I was a child, at no point did I ever think any of it was real. Yes, I think it's 
people who don't watch wrestling are the ones who don't really know if it's real or not. <laughs> and if we if we seem exasperated about fake, it's because we don't care. It no. is no business to bring it up. Why, Granny, why do you have to bring up everyone's weight every time we're at dinner? It has nothing to do with dinner. <laughs> Shut up. Yes, I know at some point someone may have cared about their weight as it pertains to dinner, but not now. It's just a way to make you feel better and everyone else feel worse. Yeah, pretty much. Well, Joe, RIP or mentions, that was fucking exhausting. We are moving on from Vince Russo onto Pastures Green. Let us know your thoughts. Always use the hashtag. We will revisit these episodes along with all of our episodes in our new revisited series over on patreon.com slash howtowrestling. The story continues for all of our previous episodes as we are revisiting all of them one by one. But yeah, let us know your feedback on Vince Russo. Our next episode, Joe, is one that I'm so excited about. Someone who crossed paths with Russo and TNA and someone who made such an indelible impact on that company. And really our first real breakout megastar who I'd say really became a star in TNA. We're going to be talking about the amazing Awesome Kong, a.k.a. Karma, a.k.a. Amazing Kong. She has had a story career through Japan, TNA, and very, very briefly in WWE, and appeared recently on Glow on Netflix. Yes, season two coming soon. Very excited for that. I consider that research. I consider that to be total research. We'll binge that like we binged all of Total Bellas. Yeah! (laughs) That was research as well for How To Scenery Visited, okay? Don't judge us. But Awesome Kong, one of the absolute iconic women in professional wrestling. An absolute trailblazer, changing everything about what you think a female wrestler can be, the types of characters they can be, and the types of matches that they put on. She, along with people like Gail Kim and others in TNA, put on some of the best matches in that company's history. I was a massive fan of TNA back during her peak run. Her departure from that company and eventual return. There's some horrible stuff that's happened to her along the way. But we want to know your thoughts, your match recommendations using the hashtag HowToKong. Because I figure she's known as Amazing Kong and Awesome Kong and Karma. We just pick one. HowToKong. That is going to be the hashtag that we're using for this episode and Joe I'm very excited for you to see her I mean, what do you know about her? nothing all I know is that she's in Glow and she hasn't aged in the past how many years she's been off wrestling oh my god I think you may have I'm going to call it right now you may have a new favourite wrestler by the end of all of this I reckon just from the way she looks I think so because she sounds like the type of person I'm always saying needs to be in wrestling yeah she is she is she was what wrestling needed at the time and in my opinion still needs to this day absolutely still needs today so yeah we want some of our highlight matches her absolute best brawls in TNA and Japan and let's maybe look at some of her time in WWE as well and discuss what happened there and why it didn't become the big run maybe that we thought it all would be we want your thoughts opinions and your match recommendations for Awesome Kong so Joe how do you feel at the end of all of this exhausted I want a bath. Yeah? I feel dirty and tired. Oh, goodness. Dirty and tired. Well, on that bombshell. <laughs> Until next time, where we're going to be looking at Awesome Kong. It's going to be a goodbye from me, Kevin. And a goodbye from me, Joe. I swear to God, we'll see you next time on How to Wrestling. See ya, bro. <laughs> <laughs>